Hey listeners, Rob here, Head of Research at 80,000 Hours. Today we have not a normal episode, but rather a recording of the 80,000 Hours Career Guide, which has just been updated for this year, 2023. And this week is getting a re-release on the website and as a physical book and also as this audiobook. From 2016 through about 2019, this career guide was the core content on the website. It was by far the most prominent thing that you would find if you went to 80,000hours.org. Many of us helped contribute to it here and there, but it's first and foremost the brainchild of our founder and repeat guest on the show, Benjamin Todd. The aim of the guide was to help people find a fulfilling career that does good. And indeed, that's that's the subtitle of the guide, uh, Find a Fulfilling Career That Does Good. It was really quite popular, and uh, people regularly told us it was useful for helping them find a career that they thought uh, was having substantially more impact. But in 2019, we, we decided to deprioritize it in favor of what we called our Key Ideas series, but have now renamed the Advanced series. That one kind of struck a more philosophical and rigorous tone and, and was preferred by, by some people. You know, it put theory and philosophy and long-termism more front and center than discussion of careers per se. And that certainly had its advantages, but, you know, looking over the user feedback, the problem that we saw was that for the typical reader, it seemed like the advanced series seemed on average worse at helping people find a more impactful career. That probably is not going to be true for everyone. You know, big fans of the show and longtime listeners, I think will often uh, value the advanced series more. But for the majority of people, it seemed like the old version just did a better job. Noticing that, my colleagues thought, well, why not bring back the career code? So we've done that. But in order to do it, uh, it did need some editing to uh, bring it up to date, given that much of it was written back in, in 2016. Among other edits, Benjamin and the research team went over the references and footnotes to make them up to date and bring them in line with what we think the evidence currently shows about some of these topics. Uh, we substantially changed our recommendations about career capital in particular. Uh, there were a whole lot of improvements to our advice on personal fit and career exploration. And the career planning article got fleshed out and uh, there was a shiny new career planning template added to that. And of course, we've recorded this audiobook version, uh, which, which has never existed before. The guide has 11 parts, and it's reasonably long, but you can use the chapters feature in your podcasting app to skip to whatever part you'd like to listen to the most. We've also put together a separate podcast feed titled The 80,000 Hours Career Guide, which you could go and subscribe to, which breaks it all down into individual pieces, and also includes nine other appendices that have a lot of really useful information in them, but which we decided to leave out of, uh, out of this file in the interests of time and length. The 11 chapters in the guide are 1. What makes for a dream job 2. Can one person make a difference? What the evidence says 3. Three ways anyone can make a difference, no matter their job 4. Want to do good? Here's how to choose an area to focus on 5. The world's biggest problems and why they're not what first comes to mind 6. Which jobs help people the most 7. Which jobs put you in the best long-term position 8. How to find the right career for you 9. How to make your career plan. 10. All the best advice we could find on how to get a job. And 11. One of the most powerful ways to improve your career. Join a community. And then to wrap it all together, there's a cheery final note where you get to imagine being on your deathbed. We really like this update and hope that, like the previous version, it's going to continue to help people out for many years. And every so often they'll email us and tell us how the book changed their life in a really positive way, uh, which is always super heartwarming to hear. If you want to share it with a friend who you think might get some use out of it, we've set up an easy form for you to do that at 80,000hours.org slash gift. And it's also available as a book on Amazon if you happen to have a thing for having heavy physical objects in your house. 
Okay, uh, we really hope you enjoy and we'll be back with a regular interview before too long. Eighty thousand hours. Find a fulfilling career that does good. By Benjamin Todd and the Eighty Thousand Hours team. Narrated by Perrin Walker. Introduction. You'll spend about eighty thousand hours working in your career, forty hours a week, fifty weeks a year, for forty years. So, how to spend that time is one of the most important decisions that you'll ever make. Choose wisely, and you'll not only have a more rewarding and interesting life, you'll also be able to help solve some of the world's most pressing problems. But how should you choose? Back in 2011, we were students at Oxford in the UK. We wanted to figure out how we could do work we loved while having a positive impact. We wondered: Should we work at a non-profit, go to grad school, try to earn high salaries and give back through philanthropy, give up and go meditate in a cave, or something else entirely? Most career guides we read were about how to land different jobs, but few gave advice on what jobs to aim for in the first place. Most people we knew didn't even use formal career advice, relying instead on conversations with friends. As for doing good with your career, people suggested things like medicine, social work, teaching, or most thrillingly, working in corporate social responsibility. But valuable as these careers are, we felt like there might be even higher impact options out there. For instance, we recognised that some of the highest impact people in history came from different fields. Martin Luther King Jr. was a pastor who shaped the U.S. civil rights movement. Marie Curie was a scientist who pioneered life-saving medical technologies through her research into radioactivity. Since founding Eighty Thousand Hours, our team has spoken to hundreds of experts, spent hundreds of hours reading the relevant literature, and conducted our own analyses of the many job options available. We still have a lot to learn. These questions are difficult to settle, and we've made some mistakes. But we don't think anyone else has spent as long researching these topics as we have. Among the things we've learned, if you want a satisfying career. Follow your passion can be misleading advice. You might be able to do more good as a bureaucrat than a charity worker, and many conventional approaches to making the world a better place don't actually work. We've also come up with more research-backed and hopefully better ways to approach age-old questions like how to figure out what you're good at and how to be more successful. One of the most important things we've learned is that if lots of people already work on an issue, the best opportunities to help are more likely to have already been taken. But that means the most common and popular issues to work on, like health and education in rich countries, are precisely not the ones where you can have the biggest impact. Instead, you need to find something more unconventional. At the same time, we found real ways to help with important neglected problems. For instance, by focusing on the world's poorest people, it's really possible to save hundreds of lives while doing work you enjoy too. We've even found that our generation faces issues that could affect the entire future of civilization, and that relatively few people focus on them. This includes issues such as pandemics even worse than COVID nineteen and the creation of smarter than human AI, which we've been recommending people work on since twenty fourteen. As of today, thousands of people have significantly changed their career plans based on our advice. Some of them are researching ways to prevent the next pandemic. Some are working on neglected areas of government policy. Some are developing groundbreaking technology, and others have used our research to figure out their own paths. How to use this guide. Here's what we'll cover: one, what makes for a dream job; two, can one person make a difference; three, how to have a real positive impact in any job; four, how to choose which problems to focus on; five, what are the world's biggest and most urgent problems; six, what types of jobs help the most; seven, which jobs put you in a better position; eight, 
how to find the right career for you. 9. How to write a career plan. 10. How to get a job. And 11. How our community can help. The first four chapters are about what options to aim for long term. The rest is about how to get there and take action. We designed the guide especially for English-speaking students and recent graduates in their 20s, who are lucky enough to have the security and ability to make helping the world an important goal. However, we also have advice about all kinds of career decisions, and many of the core ideas apply to readers of any age or circumstance. At the end, there are also a few more resources. Some additional articles that further explore our key ideas, summaries of our career reviews, and summaries of our top problem area profiles. To get the most out of this guide, we recommend reading each chapter, then doing the exercises that go with each one. If you complete them, you'll have applied the ideas to your own career, and it'll be easy to use our online career template to make your new career plan. Go to 80k.link ncp. When we've delivered this content over an afternoon, often over half the people who attended changed what they had planned to do with their lives. So let's get started. What's the best way you can use your 80,000 hours? Chapter 1. What makes for a dream job? We all want to find a dream job that's enjoyable and meaningful. But what does that actually mean? Some people imagine that the answer involves discovering their passion through a flash of insight, while others think that the key elements of their dream job are that it be easy and highly paid. We've reviewed three decades of research into the causes of a satisfying life and career, drawing on over 60 studies, and we didn't find much evidence for these views. Instead, we found six key ingredients of a dream job, They don't include income, and they aren't as simple as following your passion. In fact, following your passion can lead you astray. Steve Jobs was passionate about Zen Buddhism before entering technology. Maya Angelou worked as a calypso dancer before she became a celebrated poet and civil rights activist. Rather, you can develop passion by doing work that you find enjoyable and meaningful. The key is to get good at something that helps other people. Where we go wrong. The usual way people try to work out their dream job is to imagine different jobs and think about how satisfying they seem. Or they think about times they've felt fulfilled in the past and self-reflect about what matters most to them. If this were a normal career guide, we'd start by getting you to write out a list of what you most want from a job, like working outdoors and working with ambitious people. The best-selling career advice book of all time, What Colour Is Your Parachute?, recommends exactly this. The hope is that deep down, people know what they really want. However, research shows that although self-reflection is useful, it only goes so far. You can probably think of times in your own life when you were excited about a holiday or party, but when it actually happened, it was just okay. In the last few decades, research has shown that this is common. We're not always great at predicting what will make us most happy, and we don't realise how bad we are. You can find an overview of some of this research in the footnotes. It turns out we're even bad at remembering how satisfying different experiences were. One well-established mistake is that we often judge experiences mainly by their endings. If you missed your flight on the last day of an enjoyable holiday, you'll probably remember the holiday as bad. Quote, The fact that we often judge the pleasure of an experience by its ending can cause us to make some curious choices. Professor Dan Gilbert, stumbling on happiness. This means we can't just trust our intuitions. We need a more systematic way of working out which job is best for us. The same research that proves how bad we are at self-reflection can help us make more informed choices. We now have three decades of research into positive psychology, the science of happiness, as well as decades of research into motivation and job satisfaction. We'll summarise the main lessons of this research and explain what it means for finding a fulfilling job. Two overrated goals for a fulfilling career. People often imagine that a dream job is well-paid and easy, 
In 2015, one of the leading job rankings in the US provided by CareerCast rated jobs on the following criteria. 1. Is it highly paid? 2. Is it going to be highly paid in the future? 3. Is it stressful? And 4. Is the working environment unpleasant? Based on this, the best job was... Actuary. That is, someone who uses statistics to measure and manage risks, often in the insurance industry. It's true that actuaries are more satisfied with their jobs than average, but they're not among the most satisfied. Only 36% say their work is meaningful, so being an actuary isn't a particularly fulfilling career. So the career cast list isn't capturing everything. In fact, the evidence suggests that money and avoiding stress aren't that important. Money makes you happier, but only a little. It's a cliche that you can't buy happiness, but at the same time, better pay is people's top priority when looking for new jobs. Moreover, when people are asked what would most improve the quality of their lives, the most common answer is more money. What's going on here? Which side is right? A lot of the research on this question is remarkably low quality, but several major studies in economics offer more clarity. We reviewed the best studies available, and the truth turns out to lie in the middle. Money does make you happy, but only a little. For instance, here are the findings from a huge survey in the United States in 2010. This is a graph with household income on the x-axis and life satisfaction from 1 to 10 on the y-axis. And there's a line labelled life satisfaction that begins by increasing quite rapidly, so that for every given increase in household income, there's quite a lot of life satisfaction increase. But by the end of the graph, it's flattened out, so that life satisfaction isn't increasing much as household income goes up. You can see that going from a pre-tax income of $40,000 to $80,000 was only associated with an increase in life satisfaction from about 6.5 to 7 out of 10. That's a lot of extra income for a small increase. This is hardly surprising. We all know people who've gone into high-earning jobs and ended up miserable. But this result may be too optimistic. If we look at day-to-day happiness, income seems even less important. Positive affect is whether people reported feeling happy yesterday. The left axis of the chart below shows the fraction of people who reported yes. This line goes flat around $50,000, showing that beyond this point, income had no relationship with day-to-day happiness in this survey. And here's the graph the text was referring to. It has a positive affect line superimposed on it, this time with fraction of people on the y-axis, and we notice that this flattens off even earlier than life satisfaction. The picture is similar if we look at the fraction who reported being not blue or stress-free yesterday. And here's a third graph, this time it has not blue and stress-free lines superimposed on it, and we notice that those level off very quickly. These lines are completely flat by $75,000, so beyond this point, income had no relationship with how happy, sad, or stressed people felt. We think there's a good chance this result is an error, and day-to-day happiness does continue to increase with income, at least a little bit. A more recent study found exactly this, though it found that day-to-day happiness increases more slowly than life satisfaction. Everything we've covered above is only about the correlation between income and happiness, but the relationship might be caused by a third factor. For example, being healthy could both make you happier and allow you to earn more. If this is true, then the effect of earning extra money will be even weaker than the correlations above suggest. Finally, $75,000 of household income is equivalent to an individual income of only $40,000 if you don't have kids. To customise these levels for yourself, make the following adjustments, all pre-tax. The $40,000 figure was for 2009. Due to inflation, it's more like $55,000 in 2023. Add $25,000 per dependent who does not work that you fully support. Add $50,000 if you live in an expensive city, for example New York or San Francisco. Or subtract 30% if you live somewhere cheap, for example, rural Tennessee. 
Add more if you're especially motivated by money, or subtract some if you have frugal tastes. And add 15% in order to be able to save for retirement, or however much you personally need to save in order to maintain the standard of living you want. As of 2023, the average college graduate in the United States can expect to make about $77,000 per year over their working life, while the average Ivy League graduate earns over $120,000. The upshot is that if you're a college graduate in the US or a similar country, then you'll likely end up well into the range where more income has little effect on your happiness. Don't aim for low stress. Many people tell us they want to find a job that's not too stressful. And it's true that, in the past, doctors and psychologists believed that stress was always bad. However, we did a survey of the modern literature on stress, and today, the picture is a bit more complicated. One puzzle is that studies of high-ranking government and military leaders found they had lower levels of stress hormones and less anxiety, despite sleeping fewer hours, managing more people, and having higher occupational demands. One widely supported explanation is that having a greater sense of control by setting their own schedules and determining how to tackle the challenges they face protects them against the demands of the position. There are other ways that a demanding job can be good or bad, depending on context. Here's a table showing whether certain variables are good or neutral or bad. First, we have types of stress. The intensity of demands can be good when challenging but achievable, and bad when mismatched with ability, either too high or too low. Another type of stress is duration, can be good or neutral in the short term, and bad when it's ongoing. There are some different contexts, like control, which can be good or neutral with high control and autonomy, or bad with low control and autonomy. Power, it's good or neutral to have high power and bad to have low power. And social support, it's good or neutral to have good social support and bad to have social isolation. And two ways of coping. Mindset, it's good to reframe demands as opportunities and stress as useful, and it's bad to view demands as threats and stress as harmful to health. And finally, altruism. It's good or neutral to perform altruistic acts, and it's bad to focus on yourself. This means the picture looks more like the following graph. Having a very undemanding job is bad. That's boring. Having demands that exceed your abilities is bad too. They cause harmful stress. The sweet spot is where the demands placed on you match your abilities. That's a fulfilling challenge. And this is a graph that plots ability on the x-axis against demands on the y-axis. It shows anxiety increasing as demands increase and boredom increasing as they decrease. But there's a line showing a zone where demands and ability are evenly matched and it's labelled the stretch zone, challenge. Instead of seeking to avoid stress, seek out a supportive context and meaningful work, and then challenge yourself. What should you aim for in a dream job? We've applied the research on positive psychology about what makes for a fulfilling life and combined it with research on job satisfaction to come up with six key ingredients of a dream job. These are the six ingredients. 1. Work that's engaging. What really matters is not your salary, status, type of company, and so on, but rather what you do day by day and hour by hour. Engaging work is work that draws you in, holds your attention, and gives you a sense of flow. It's the reason an hour spent editing a spreadsheet can feel like pure drudgery, while an hour spent playing a video game can feel like no time at all. Computer games are designed to be as engaging as possible. What makes the difference? Why are computer games engaging while Office Admin isn't? Researchers have identified four factors. One, the freedom to decide how to perform your work. Two, clear tasks with a clearly defined start and end. Three, variety in the types of tasks. And four, feedback so you know how well you're doing. Each of these factors has been shown to correlate with job satisfaction in a major meta-analysis, R equals 
and they're widely thought by experts to be the most empirically verified predictors of job satisfaction. That said, playing computer games is not the key to a fulfilling life. And not just because you won't get paid. That's because you also need... 2. Work that helps others. The following jobs have the four ingredients of engaging work that we discussed, but when asked, over three quarters of people doing them say they don't find them meaningful. Revenue analyst, fashion designer, TV newscast director. These jobs, however, are seen as meaningful by almost everyone who does them. Fire service officer, nurse or midwife, and neurosurgeon. The key difference is that the second set of jobs seem to help other people. That's why they're meaningful. And that's why helping others is our second factor. There's a growing body of evidence that helping others is a key ingredient for life satisfaction. People who volunteer are less depressed and healthier. A meta-analysis of 23 randomized studies showed that performing acts of kindness makes the giver happier. And a global survey found that people who donate to charity are as satisfied with their lives as those who earn twice as much. Helping others isn't the only route to a meaningful career, but it's widely accepted by researchers that it's one of the most powerful. We explore jobs that really help people in the next chapter, including jobs that help indirectly as well as directly. 3. Work you're good at. Being good at your work gives you a sense of achievement, a key ingredient of life satisfaction discovered by positive psychology. It also gives you the power to negotiate for the other components of a fulfilling job, such as the ability to work on meaningful projects, undertake engaging tasks, and earn fair pay. If people value your contribution, you can ask for these conditions in return. For both reasons, skill ultimately trumps interest. Even if you love art, if you pursue it as a career but aren't good at it, you'll end up doing boring graphic design for companies you don't care about. That's not to say you should only do work you're already good at, but you want the potential to get good at it. In Chapter 8, we'll look in more detail at how to work out what you're good at. 4. Work with supportive colleagues. Obviously, if you hate your colleagues and work for a boss from hell, you're not going to be satisfied. Since good relationships are such an important part of having a fulfilling life, it's important to be able to become friends with at least a couple of people at work, and this probably means working with at least a few people who are similar to you. However, you don't need to become friends with everyone, or even like all of your colleagues. Research shows that perhaps the most important factor is whether you can get help from your colleagues when you run into problems. A major meta-analysis found social support was among the top predictors of job satisfaction. R equals 0.56. People who are disagreeable and different from you can be the people who give you the most useful feedback, provided they care about your interests. This is because they'll tell it like it is and have a different perspective. Professor Adam Grant calls these people disagreeable givers. When we think of dream jobs, we usually focus on the role, but who you work with is almost as important. A bad boss can ruin a dream position, while even boring work can be fun if done with a friend. So when selecting a job, Will you be able to make friends with some people in the workplace? And more importantly, does the culture of the workplace make it easy to get help, get feedback, and work together? 5. Work that doesn't have major negatives. To be satisfied, everything above is important, but you also need the absence of things that make work unpleasant. All the following tend to be linked to job dissatisfaction. A long commute, especially if it's over an hour by bus. Very long hours. Pay you feel is unfair and job insecurity. Although these sound obvious, people often overlook them. The negative consequences of a long commute can be enough to outweigh many other positive factors. 6. Work that fits with the rest of your life. 
you don't have to get all the ingredients of a fulfilling life from your job. It's possible to find a job that pays the bills and excel in a side project, or to find a sense of meaning through philanthropy or volunteering, or to build great relationships outside of work. We've advised plenty of people who have done this. There are famous examples too. Einstein had his most productive year in 1905 while working as a clerk at a patent office. So this last factor is a reminder to consider how your career fits with the rest of your life. Recap. Before we move on, here's a quick recap of the six ingredients. This is what to look for in a dream job. One, engaging work that lets you enter a state of flow. Freedom, variety, clear tasks, feedback. Two, work that helps others. Three, work you're good at. Four, supportive colleagues. Five, no major negatives like long hours or unfair pay. And six, a job that fits your personal life. How can we sum this all up? Should you just follow your passion? Follow your passion has become a defining piece of career advice. Here's a chart from Google Ngram that shows how common the phrase follow your passion is in books in different time periods. Shows the frequency in books on the y-axis and the year on the x-axis. The line is very close to zero until about 1997 when it starts to increase a bit. In 2005, it starts to really pick up. And by the end of the chart in 2023, it's gone up over 40 times. The idea is that the key to finding a great career is to identify your greatest interest, your passion, and pursue a career involving that interest. It's an attractive message. Just commit to your passion and you'll have a great career. And when we look at successful people, they are often passionate about what they do. Now, we're fans of being passionate about your work. The research above shows that intrinsically motivating work makes people a lot happier than a big paycheck. However, there are three ways follow your passion can be misleading advice. One problem is that it suggests that passion is all you need. But even if you're deeply interested in the work, if you lack the six ingredients from above, you'll still be unsatisfied. If a basketball fan gets a job involving basketball but works with people they hate, receives unfair pay, or finds the work meaningless, they're still going to dislike their job. In fact, following your passion can make it harder to satisfy the six ingredients because the areas you're passionate about are likely to be the most competitive, which makes it harder to find a good job. And there's a bar chart here that compares students passionate about sports, arts, or music, which is around 80% or more, with occupations in art, culture, recreation, and sport, which seems to only be a few percent. A second problem is that many people don't feel like they have a career-relevant passion. Telling them to follow their passion makes them feel inadequate. If you don't have a passion, don't worry. You can still find work you'll become passionate about. And the third problem is that it can make people needlessly limit their options. If you're interested in literature, it's easy to think that you must become a writer to have a satisfying career and ignore other options. It's also easy to have the idea that your one true passion will be immediately obvious and eliminate options that aren't immediately satisfying. But in fact, you can become passionate about new areas. If your work helps others, you practice to get good at it, you work on engaging tasks, and you work with people you like, then you'll become passionate about it. The six ingredients are all about the context of the work, not the content. 20 years ago, we would never have imagined being passionate about giving career advice, but here we are writing this book. Many successful people are passionate, but often their passion developed alongside their success and took a long time to discover rather than coming first. Steve Jobs started out passionate about Zen Buddhism. He got into technology as a way to make some quick cash. But as he became successful, his passion grew until he became the most famous advocate of doing what you love. In reality, rather than having a single passion, our interests change often, and more than we expect. 
Think back to what you were most interested in five years ago, and you'll probably find that it's pretty different from what you're interested in today. And as we saw above, we're bad at knowing what really makes us happy. This all means you have more options for a fulfilling career than you think. Do what contributes. Rather than follow your passion, our slogan for a fulfilling career is get good at something that helps others. Or simply do what contributes. We highlight get good because if you find something that you're good at that others value, you'll have plenty of career opportunities, which gives you the best chance of finding a dream job with all the other ingredients, engaging work, supportive colleagues, lack of major negatives, and fit with the rest of your life. You can have all the other five ingredients, however, and still find your work meaningless. So you need to find a way to help others too. If you prioritize making a valuable contribution to the world first, you'll develop a passion for what you do. You'll become more content, ambitious, and motivated. This is what we found in our career advising. For instance, Jess was interested in philosophy as an undergraduate and considered pursuing a PhD. The problem was that although she finds philosophy interesting, it would have been hard to make a positive impact within it. Ultimately, she thought this would have made it unfulfilling. Instead, she switched into psychology and public policy and became one of the most motivated people we know. To date, thousands of people have made major changes to their career path by following our career advice. Many switched into a field that didn't initially interest them, but that they believed was important for the world. After developing their skills, finding good people to work with, and finding the right role, they've become deeply satisfied. Here are two more reasons to focus on getting good at something that helps others. You could be more successful. If you make it your mission to help others, then people will want to help you succeed. This sounds obvious, and there's now empirical evidence to back it up. In the excellent book Give and Take, Professor Adam Grant argues that people with a giving mindset end up among the most successful. This is both because they get more help and because they're more motivated by a sense of purpose. One caveat is that givers also end up unsuccessful if they focus too much on others and burn out. So you also need the other ingredients of job satisfaction we mentioned earlier, and to set limits on how much you give. It's the right thing to do. The idea that helping others is the key to being fulfilled is hardly a new one. It's a theme from most major moral and spiritual traditions. Set your heart on doing good. Do it over and over again and you will be filled with joy. Buddha. A man's true wealth is the good he does in this world. Muhammad. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. Jesus Christ. Every man must decide whether he will walk in the light of creative altruism or in the darkness of destructive selfishness. Martin Luther King Jr. What's more, as we'll explain in the next chapter, as a college graduate in a developed country today, you have an enormous opportunity to help others through your career. Ultimately, this is the real reason to focus on helping others. The fact that it'll make you more personally fulfilled is just a bonus. Conclusion To have a dream job, Don't worry too much about money and stress and don't endlessly self-reflect to find your one true passion. Rather, get good at something that helps others. It's best for you and it's best for the world. This is the reason we set up 80,000 Hours. Our mission is to help you find a career that contributes. But which jobs help people? Can one person really make much difference? That's what we'll answer in the next chapter. Apply this to your own career. These six ingredients especially helping others and getting good at your job, can act as guiding lights. They're what to aim to find in a dream job long-term. Here are some exercises to help you start applying them. 1. Practice using the six ingredients to make some comparisons. Pick two options you're interested in, then score them from 1 to 5 on each factor. 2. The six ingredients we list are only a starting point. 
there may be other factors that are especially important to you. So we also recommend doing the following exercises. They're not perfect. As we saw earlier, our memories of what we've found fulfilling can be unreliable. But completely ignoring your past experience isn't wise either. These questions should give you hints about what you find most fulfilling. When have you been most fulfilled in the past? What did these times have in common? Imagine you just found out you're going to die in 10 years. What would you spend your time doing? And can you make any of our six factors more specific? For example, what kinds of people do you most like to work with? 3. Now, combine our list with your own thoughts to determine the four to eight factors that are most important to you in a dream job. 4. When you're comparing your options in the future, you can use this list of factors to work out which is best. Don't expect to find an option that's best on every dimension. Rather, focus on finding the option that's best on balance. The bottom line, what makes for a dream job? To find a dream job, look for 1. Work you're good at. 2. Work that helps others. 3. Supportive conditions. Engaging work that lets you enter a state of flow, supportive colleagues, lack of major negatives like unfair pay, and work that fits your personal life. Chapter 2. Can one person make a difference? What the evidence says. It's easy to feel like one person can't make a difference. The world has so many big problems, and they often seem impossible to solve. So when we started 80,000 Hours, with the aim of helping people do good with their careers, one of the first questions we asked was, how much difference can one person really make? We learned that while many common ways to do good, such as becoming a doctor, have less impact than you might first think, others have allowed certain people to achieve an extraordinary impact. In other words, one person can make a difference, but you might have to do something a little unconventional. In this chapter, we start by estimating how much good you could do by becoming a doctor. Then we share some stories of the highest impact people in history and consider what they mean for your career. How much impact do doctors have? Many people who want to help others become doctors. One of our early readers, Dr. Greg Lewis, did exactly that. I want to study medicine because of a desire I have to help others, he wrote on his university application. And so the chance of spending a career doing something worthwhile, I can't resist. So we wondered, how much difference does becoming a doctor really make? In 2012, we teamed up with Greg to find out. Since a doctor's primary purpose is to improve health, we tried to figure out how much extra health one doctor actually adds to humanity. We found that over the course of their career, an average doctor in the UK will enable their patients to live about an extra combined 100 years of healthy life, either by extending their lifespans or by improving their overall health. There is, of course, a huge amount of uncertainty in this figure, but the real figure is unlikely to be more than 10 times higher. Using a standard conversion rate, used by the World Bank among other institutions, of 30 extra years of healthy life to one life saved, 100 years of healthy life is equivalent to about three lives saved. This is clearly a significant impact. However, it's less of an impact than many people expect doctors to have over their entire career. There are three main reasons this impact is lower than you might expect. One, researchers largely agree that medicine has only increased average life expectancy by a few years. Most gains in life expectancy over the last 100 years have instead occurred due to better nutrition, improved sanitation, increased wealth, and other factors. Two, doctors are only one part of the medical system, which also relies on nurses and hospital staff, as well as overhead and equipment. The impact of medical interventions is shared between all of these elements. And three, most importantly, there are already a lot of doctors in the developed world, so if you don't become a doctor, somebody else will be available to perform the most critical procedures. Additional doctors therefore only enable us to carry out procedures that deliver less significant and less certain results.
The last point is illustrated by the chart below, which compares the impact of doctors in different countries. The y-axis shows the amount of ill health in the population, measured in disability-adjusted life years, or dailies, per 100,000 people, where one daily equals one year of life lost due to ill health. The x-axis shows the number of doctors per 100,000 people. Here's a graph titled Dailies per 100,000 People versus Doctors per 100,000 People. Looking at the graph, we notice that as the number of doctors increases, the dailies gained drops off pretty rapidly. Much of the gains seem to come from the initial 100 doctors per 100,000 people. You can see that the curve goes nearly flat once you have more than 150 doctors per 100,000 people. After this point, which almost all developed countries meet, additional doctors only achieve a small impact on average. So, if you become a doctor in a rich country like the US or UK, you may well do more good than you would in many other jobs, and if you're an exceptional doctor then you'll have a bigger impact than these averages, but it probably won't be a huge impact. In fact, in the next chapter we'll show how almost any college graduate can do more to save lives than a typical doctor. And in the rest of the career guide, we'll cover many other examples of common but ineffective attempts to do good. These findings motivated Greg to switch from clinical medicine into biosecurity, for reasons we'll explain over the rest of the guide. Who were the highest impact people in history? Despite this uninspiring statistic about how many lives a doctor saves, some doctors have had much more impact than this. Let's look at some examples from the highest impact careers in history and see what we might learn from them. First, let's turn to medical research. By 1968, it had been shown that a solution of glucose and salt administered via feeding tube or intravenous drip could prevent death due to cholera. But millions of people were still dying every year from the disease. While working in a refugee camp on the border of Bangladesh and Burma, Dr. David Narlin sought to turn this insight into a therapy that could be used in poor rural areas. He showed in a study that simply drinking a solution made at the right concentration and consumed at the right rate could be almost as effective as delivery via feeding tube or IV. This meant the treatment could be delivered with no equipment and using extremely cheap and widely available ingredients. Since then, this astonishingly simple treatment has been used all over the world, and the annual rate of child deaths from diarrhoea has plummeted from around 5 million to 1.5 million. Researchers estimate that the therapy has saved over 50 million lives to date, mostly children's. If Dr. Nylon had not been around, somebody else would, no doubt, have discovered this treatment eventually. However, even if we imagine that he sped up the rollout of the treatment by only five months, his work alone would have saved about 500,000 lives. This is a very approximate estimate, but it makes his impact more than 100,000 times greater than that of an ordinary doctor. But even just within medical research, Dr. Nylon is far from the most extreme example of a high-impact career. For example, one estimate puts Carl Landsteiner's discovery of blood groups as saving tens of millions of lives by enabling transfusions. Beyond the medical field, later in the guide we'll cover the stories of a hugely impactful mathematician, Alan Turing, and bureaucrat Viktor Zhdanov. Or let's think even more broadly. Roger Bacon and Galileo pioneered the scientific method without which none of the discoveries we discovered above would have been possible, along with other major technological breakthroughs like the Industrial Revolution. These individuals were able to do vastly more good than even outstanding medical practitioners. The unknown Soviet lieutenant colonel who saved your life. Or consider the story of Stanislav Petrov, a lieutenant colonel in the Soviet army during the Cold War. In 1983, Petrov was on duty in a Soviet missile base when early warning systems apparently detected an incoming missile strike from the United States. Protocol dictated that the Soviets order a return strike. But Petrov didn't push the button. He reasoned that the number of missiles was too small to warrant a counterattack, thereby disobeying protocol. If he had ordered a strike, there's at least a reasonable chance hundreds of millions would have died. 
The two countries may have even ended up engaged in an all-out nuclear war, leading to billions of deaths and potentially the end of civilization. If we're being conservative, we might quantify his impact by saying he saved a billion lives. But that's almost certainly an underestimate, because a nuclear war would also have devastated scientific, artistic, economic, and all other forms of progress, leading to a huge loss of life and well-being over the long run. Later in the guide, we'll discuss why we think these long-run effects could be vastly more important than just saving a billion lives from nuclear catastrophe. Yet even with the lower estimate, Petrov's impact likely dwarfs that of Nalan and Landsteiner. What do these differences in impact mean for your career? We've seen that some careers have had huge positive effects, and some have vastly more than others. Some component of this is due to luck. The people mentioned above were in the right place at the right time, giving them the opportunity to have an impact that they might not have otherwise received. You can't guarantee you'll make an important medical discovery. But it wasn't all luck. Landsteiner and Nalan chose to use their medical knowledge to solve some of the most harmful health problems of their day and it was foreseeable that someone high up in the Soviet military might have an opportunity to have a large impact by preventing conflict during the Cold War. So, what does this mean for you? People often wonder how they can make a difference, but if some careers can result in thousands of times more impact than others, this isn't the right question. Two different career options can both make a difference, but one could be dramatically better than the other. Instead, the key question is, what are some of the best ways to make a difference? In other words, what can you do to give yourself a chance of having one of the highest impact careers? Because the highest impact careers achieve so much, a small increase in your chances means a great deal. The examples above also show that the highest impact paths might not be the most obvious ones. Being an officer in the Soviet military doesn't sound like the best career for a would-be altruist, but Petrov probably did more good than our most celebrated leaders, not to mention our most talented doctors. Having a big impact might require doing something a little unconventional. So how much impact can you have if you try, while still doing something personally rewarding? It's not easy to have a big impact, but there's a lot you can do to increase your chances. That's what we'll cover in the next couple of chapters. But first, let's clarify what we mean by making a difference. We've been talking about lives saved so far, but that's not the only way to do good in the world. What does it mean to make a difference? Everyone talks about making a difference or changing the world or doing good but few ever define what they mean. So here's a definition. Your social impact is given by the number of people whose lives you improve and how much you improve them over the long term. This means you can increase your social impact in three ways. One, by helping more people. Two, by helping the same number of people to a greater extent. And three, doing something which has benefits that last for a longer time. We think the last option is especially important because many of our actions affect future generations. For example, if you improve the quality of government decision-making, you might not see many quantifiable short-term results, but you will have solved lots of other problems over the long term. There's a diagram here, two ways to have more social impact. On the x-axis, we have number of people helped, and on the y-axis, we have degree of improvement. And then we have a rectangle-shaped area between those axes, titled social impact. And we can see that we can increase the area of that rectangle by stretching it up the y-axis to increase the degree of improvement, or along the x-axis by helping more people. There's more information about what it means to make a difference in Appendix 1. So, how can you improve lives with your career? In the next chapter, we'll cover how any college graduate can make a big impact in any job. After that, we'll cover how to choose a job in which you can fulfill your potential for impact. Chapter 3. Three ways anyone can make a difference, no matter their job. No matter which career you choose, anyone can make a difference by donating to charity, engaging in advocacy, or volunteering. 
Unfortunately, many attempts to do good in this way are ineffective, and some actually cause harm. Take sponsored skydiving. Every year, thousands of people collect donations for good causes and throw themselves out of planes to draw attention to whatever charity they've chosen to support. This sounds like a win-win. The fundraiser gets an exhilarating once-in-a-lifetime experience while raising money for a worthy cause. What could be the harm in that? Quite a bit, actually. According to a study of two popular parachuting centres, over a five-year period, 1991 to 1995, approximately 1,500 people went skydiving for charity and collectively raised more than £120,000. That sounds pretty impressive, until you consider a few caveats. First, the cost of the diving expeditions came out of the donations. So of the £120,000 raised, only £45,000 went to charity. Second, because most of the skydivers were first-time jumpers, they suffered a combined total of 163 injuries, resulting in an average hospital stay of nine days. In order to treat these injuries, the UK's National Health Service spent around £610,000. This means that for every £1 raised for the charities, the Health Service spent roughly £13. So the net effect was to reduce resources for health services. Ironically, many of the charities supported focused on health-related matters. What about volunteering? One problem is that volunteers need to be managed. If untrained volunteers use the time of trained managers, it's easy for them to cost the organisation more than the value they add. In fact, the main reason many volunteering schemes persist is that if someone is a volunteer for an organisation, they're more likely to donate. When the organisation Forge cut its volunteering scheme to be more effective, it inadvertently triggered a big drop in donations. So while volunteering can be effective in the right circumstances, it's often not. In our research, we found that any college graduate in a rich country can do a huge amount to improve the lives of others. And they can do this without changing jobs or making big sacrifices. We'll cover three examples. Donating 10% of your income to effective charities, advocating for important causes, and helping others be more effective. Donating effectively. How can you take whichever job you find the most personally rewarding and do a huge amount of good? Give 10% of your income to the world's poorest people. It's as simple as that. How much good can donations do? A lower bound. Since 2008, Give Directly has made it possible to give cash directly to the poorest people in East Africa via mobile phone. We don't think this is the most effective way to donate to charity by any means. Later, we'll discuss higher impact approaches. But it's simple and quantifiable, so it makes a good starting point. As we saw in Chapter 1, the more money you have, the less additional money will improve your life. For instance, in the US, doubling your income is only associated with about a half-point gain in life satisfaction on a scale of 1 to 10. These surveys have been extended around the world. There are examples in the chart below. So here's a chart with self-reported annual household income from 0 up to 130,000 on the x-axis. On the y-axis, self-reported life satisfaction from 1 to 10. Then we have lines for different countries. So first we have India's line, which is quite low on the income axis, but quite steeply increasing on the life satisfaction axis. Then there's a line for Russia, which begins steeply but starts to level off. That one ends at around $30,000. Then overlapping that one, we have Italy, which doesn't begin as steeply as India or Russia, but it in turn flattens off even more as the income increases, and it stops around $50,000. And then we have the line for the United States, which starts off flatter than the rest of them, at just under 20000 and flattens off even more by the time it gets up to the top of the graph at 130000 And those four overlapping lines seem to map out a curve that increases rapidly at the start and then starts to flatten out towards the end. Poor people served by GiveDirectly in Kenya have an average individual consumption of about $800 per year. This figure is based on how much $800 could buy in the US, meaning it already takes into account the fact that money goes further in poor countries. The average US college graduate has an annual individual working income of about $77,000 in 2023. 
or $54,500 post-tax. This means that assuming the above relationship holds, a dollar will do about 68 times more good if you give it to someone in Kenya rather than spending it on yourself. If someone earning that average level of income were to donate 10%, they could double the annual income of seven people living in extreme poverty each year. Over the course of their career, they could have a major positive impact on hundreds of people. Grace is a typical recipient of donations from GiveDirectly. She's a 48-year-old widow who lives with four children. I would like to use part of the money to build a new house, since my house is in a very bad condition. Secondly, I would wish to pay fees for my son to go to a technical institute. My proudest achievement is that I've managed to educate my son in secondary school. My biggest hardship in life is that I lack a proper source of income. And my current goals are to build and own a pit latrine and to dig a borehole, since getting water is a very big problem. GiveDirectly conducted a randomized controlled trial of their program and found that recipients experienced significant reductions in hunger, stress, and other bad outcomes for years after receiving the transfers. These results add to substantial existing literature showing that cash transfers have significant benefits. How much sacrifice will this involve? Normally, when we think of doing good with our careers, we think of paths like becoming a teacher or charity worker, which often pay under half of what you could earn in the private sector, and may not align with your skills or interests. Compared to switching to those careers, giving 10% of your income could easily be less of a sacrifice. Moreover, as we saw in Chapter 1, once you start earning more than about $55,000 per year, extra income won't affect your happiness that much, while acts that help others, like giving to charity, probably make you happier. To take just one example, one study found that in 122 of 136 countries, if respondents answered yes to the question, did you donate to charity last month, their life satisfaction was higher by an amount also associated with a doubling of income. In part, this is probably because happier people give more, but we expect some of the effect runs the other way too. How to have a bigger impact than being a doctor The reason donations can be so effective is that it's possible that you can send your money to the best organisations in the world, working on the biggest and most neglected issues. Although many charities aren't effective, the best are. And while GiveDirectly is certainly an effective charity, there are others that some experts argue are even better. GiveWell, a leading independent charity evaluator, estimates that its top charities, such as Helen Keller International and the Against Malaria Foundation, can prevent a death for about every $5,000 in donations it receives. In addition, this provides other benefits that come with the treatment of malaria, such as improved overall quality of life and increased income, which causes further positive ripple effects over time. With a typical US graduate salary, donating 10% of your income to the Against Malaria Foundation could therefore save more than one life every year. These kinds of proven cost-effective health programs offer such a good opportunity to do good that even the most prominent aid skeptics have offered few arguments against them. One life saved per year would amount to 40 lives saved over a 40-year career. In the previous chapter, we estimated that a typical doctor in clinical medicine saves three lives over their career. So by donating 10% of your income, you could achieve around 10 times as much impact. We've just used the Against Malaria Foundation and GiveDirectly to provide a concrete lower bound on what you can achieve. We actually think there are many charities that are even more effective. Some charities work on issues that seem even higher stakes and more neglected, such as preventing a catastrophic pandemic. We'll discuss why we think pandemics are more pressing than global health later in the guide. If everyone in the richest 10% of the world's population donated 10% of their income, that would be $5 trillion per year. That would be enough to double scientific research funding, raise everyone in the world above the $2.15 per day poverty line, provide universal basic education, and still have plenty left over to fund a renaissance in the arts, go to Mars, and then invest $1 trillion in mitigating climate change. None of this would be straightforward to achieve, 
but it at least illustrates the enormous potential of greater giving. How is this possible? It's astonishing that we can do so much good while sacrificing so little. How is this possible? There's a graph here with percentile global income distribution 2008 on the x-axis and income per person on the y-axis. The line drawn on this stays really close to zero until you get to about the 50th percentile, then it starts to gradually increase, and then it zips up right at the end. It looks like around 50% of the area under the curve is found on the 90th percentile and above. There's an arrow pointing about halfway up that big spike at the end, and it says, you're here, roughly. Consider one of the most important graphs in economics, the graph of world income. The x-axis shows the percentage of people in the world who earn each level of income, as indicated by the y-axis. Income has been adjusted to indicate how much that specific dollar amount will buy in a person's home country, that is, purchasing power parity. If the world were completely equal, the line would be horizontal. As citizens of countries like the US and the UK, we know we're rich by global standards. We don't usually think of ourselves as the richest people in the world. We're not the bankers, CEOs, or celebrities, after all. But actually, if you earn $60,000 per year after taxes and don't have kids, then globally speaking, you are the 1%. These numbers are approximate, but it's still the case that if you're reading this, you're very likely in that big spike on the right of the graph, and perhaps even way off the chart, while almost everyone else in the world is in the flat bit at the bottom that you can hardly even see. There's no reason to be embarrassed by this fact, but it does emphasise how important it is to consider how you can use your good fortune to help others. In a more equal world, we could just focus on helping those around us and making our own lives go well. But it turns out we have an enormous opportunity to help other people with little cost to ourselves, and it would be a terrible shame to squander it. Take action right now. Many of the staff at 80,000 Hours have been so persuaded by these arguments that we've pledged to give at least 10% of our lifetime income to the world's most effective charities. We did it through an organisation called Giving What We Can, with whom we are partnered. Giving What We Can enables you to take a public pledge to give 10% of your income to the charities you believe are the most effective. You can take the pledge in just a few minutes. It's likely to be the most significant thing you can do right now to do more good with your life. It's not legally binding. You can choose where the money goes, and if you're a student, it only commits you to give 1% until after you graduate. You'll be joining over 9,000 people who've collectively pledged over $3 billion. The pledge is not for everyone. We'd recommend being cautious if you're planning to have an impact mainly through your work, especially if that might involve lower wage work like at a charity, if you have significant debt or financial problems, or if you're not sure you can stick to it. And if you're not quite ready yet, Giving What We Can allows you to take a trial pledge to give as little as 1% of your income for any period you choose, to see how it goes before making any long-term commitment. Take the pledge here at adk.link gwc. What if you don't want to give money? How to help through effective political advocacy? Just as we happen to be rich by virtue of where we were born, we also happen to have political influence for the same reason. Rich countries have a disproportionate impact on issues like global trade, migration, climate change, and technology policy, and are generally at least partly democratic. So if you prefer to do something besides giving money, consider advocating for important issues. We were initially sceptical that one person could have real influence through political advocacy, but when we dug into the numbers, we changed our minds. Let's take perhaps the simplest example, voting in elections. Several studies have used statistical models to estimate the chances of a single vote determining the US presidential election. Because the US electoral system is determined at the state level, if you live in a state that strongly favours one candidate, your chance of deciding the outcome is effectively zero. But if you live in a state that's contested, your chances rise to between 1 in 10 million and 1 in a million. That's quite a bit higher than your chances of winning the lottery. 
Remember, the US federal government is very, very big. Let's imagine one candidate wanted to spend 0.2% more of GDP on foreign aid. That would be about $187 billion in extra foreign aid over their four-year term. One millionth of that is $187,000. So if voting takes you an hour, it could be the most important hour, the highest in expected value, you'll spend that year. The figures are similar in other rich countries. Smaller countries have less at stake, but each vote counts for more. We've used the example of voting since it's quantifiable. But we expect the basic idea, the very small chance of changing a very big thing, applies to other forms of well-chosen advocacy, such as petitioning your congressperson, getting out the vote for the right candidate, or going to a town hall meeting. We think this is likely to be even more true if you're careful to focus on the right issues. More on this in the next chapter. Being a multiplier to help others be more effective. Suppose you don't have any money or power, and you don't feel like you can contribute by working on an important problem. What then? One option is to try to change that. We cover how to invest in yourself, no matter what job you have, in Appendix 2. That aside, you might know someone who does have some money, power, or skills, so you can make a difference by helping them achieve more. For instance, if you could enable two other people to give 10% of their income to charity, that would have even more impact than doing it yourself. These are both examples of being a multiplier. By mobilizing others, it is often possible to do more than you could through just your own efforts. Suppose you've come across a high-impact job, but you're not sure it's a good fit for your skills. If you can tell someone else about the job and they take it, that does as much good as taking it yourself, and in fact more if they're a better fit for it than you. It's often possible to raise more for charity through fundraising than you might be able to donate yourself. Or if you work at a company with a donation matching scheme, you might be able to encourage other employees to use it. What matters is that more good gets done, not that you do it with your own hands. We're reminded of an old, most likely fictional story about a time when President John F. Kennedy visited NASA. Upon meeting a janitor, Kennedy asked him what he was doing. The janitor replied, Well, Mr. President, I'm helping put a man on the moon. Conclusion. Anyone can make a difference. So, good news. You don't need to throw yourself out of a plane to do good. In fact, there are far easier and safer ways to have an impact that are much more effective. Due to our fortunate positions in the world, there's a lot we can do to make a difference without making significant sacrifices, whatever jobs we end up in. Here are some key ways to make a big positive impact without changing jobs. 1. Give 10% of your income to effective charities. 2. Use your political influence, such as by voting. And 3. Help others have an impact. You might like to consider taking the 10% pledge right now. Or take a moment to consider how else you might be able to make a big impact with a little sacrifice. What if you want to make a difference directly through your career? If you can achieve so much with just 10% of your income, then what you could achieve with your entire job over decades could be huge. That's what we'll cover in the next three chapters. Chapter 4. Want to do good? Here's how to choose an area to focus on. If you want to make a difference with your career, one place to start is to ask which global problems most need attention. Should you work on education, climate change, poverty, or something else? The standard advice is to do whatever most interests you, and most people seem to end up working on whichever social problem first grabs their attention. That's exactly what I, Benjamin, did. At age 19, I was most interested in climate change. However, my focus on climate change wasn't the result of a careful comparison of the pros and cons of working on different problems. Rather, I'd happened to read about it, and found it engaging because it was sciency, and I was geeky. The problem with this approach is that you might happen to stumble across an area that's just not that big, important, or easy to make progress on you're also much more likely to stumble across the problems that already receive the most attention, 
which makes them lower impact. So how can you avoid these mistakes and do more good? We've developed three questions to ask yourself to work out which social problems are most urgent, where an extra year of work will have the greatest impact. It's based on work by Open Philanthropy, a foundation with billions of dollars of committed funds, and the, modestly named, Global Priorities Institute, a research group at Oxford. You can use these steps to compare areas you could enter, for example, pandemic prevention, risk from AI, or global health. Or if you're already committed to an area, you can compare projects within that area, for example, research into malaria or HIV. 1. Is this problem large in scale? We tend to assess the importance of different social problems using our intuition, that is, what seems important on a gut level. For instance, in 2005, the BBC wrote, The nuclear power stations will all be switched off in a few years. How can we keep Britain's lights on? Unplug your mobile phone charger when it's not in use. This so annoyed David McKay, a physics professor at Cambridge, that he decided to find out exactly how bad leaving your mobile phone plugged in really is. The bottom line is that even if no mobile phone charger were ever left plugged in again, Britain would save at most 0.01% of its personal power usage. And that's leaving aside industrial usage and the like. So even if entirely successful, a quick estimate shows that this BBC campaign could have no noticeable effect. McKay said it was like trying to bail out the Titanic with a tea strainer. Instead, that effort could have been used to change behaviour in a way that could easily have a thousand times as much impact on climate change such as installing home insulation. Decades of research has shown that we're bad at intuitively assessing differences in scale. For instance, one study found that people were willing to pay about the same amount to save 2,000 birds from oil spills as they were to save 200,000 birds, even though the latter is objectively 100 times better. This is an example of a common error called scope neglect. To avoid scope neglect, we need to use numbers to make comparisons, even if they're very rough. In Chapter 2, we said that social impact depends on the extent to which you help others live better lives. So based on this definition, a problem has greater scale, the larger the number of people affected, the larger the size of the effects per person, and the larger the long-run benefits of solving the problem. Scale is important because the effect of activities on a problem is often proportional to the size of the problem. Launch a campaign that ends 10% of the phone charger problem and you achieve very little. Launch a campaign that persuades 10% of people to install home insulation and it's a much bigger deal. There's a cartoon illustration here, with a character looking in the fridge with an alarmed look, while their apron is on fire, as is the stove and the tea towel attached to the stove. The room is rapidly filling with smoke, and the person is saying, Holy crap, Susie, we're out of coriander! It's captioned, If we cared so little about the relative importance of different problems in our personal lives. 2. Is this problem neglected? In a previous chapter, we saw that medicine in the US and UK is a relatively crowded problem. There are already over 850,000 doctors in the US and health spending is high, which makes it hard for an extra person working on health to make a big contribution. Health in poor countries, however, receives much less attention, and that's one reason why it's possible to save a life for only about $5,000. The more effort that's already going into a problem, the harder it is for you to be successful and make a meaningful contribution. This is due to diminishing returns. When you pick fruit from a tree, you start with those that are easiest to reach, the low-hanging fruit. When they're gone, it becomes harder and harder to get a meal. It's the same with social impact. When few people have worked on a problem, there are generally lots of great opportunities to make progress. As more and more work is done, it becomes harder and harder to be original and have a big impact. It looks a bit like this. There's a diagram here with effort on the x-axis and impact on the y-axis. There's a line that starts out increasing a little bit, then it begins to increase more rapidly 
and then after increasing quite rapidly for a while, it begins to flatten out again. The problems your friends are talking about and interested in working on are exactly those where everyone else is already focused. So they're not the neglected problems, and probably not the most urgent. Rather, the most urgent problems, those where you have the greatest impact, are probably areas you've never thought about working on. We all know about the fight against cancer, but what about parasitic worms? It doesn't make for such a good charity music video that these tiny creatures have infected one billion people worldwide with neglected tropical diseases. These conditions are far easier to treat than cancer, but we never even hear about them because they very rarely affect rich people. So instead of following the trend, seek out problems that other people are systematically missing. For instance, 1. Does the problem affect neglected groups like those far away from us, non-human animals, or future generations, rather than us? 2. Is the problem a low-probability event, which might be getting overlooked? And 3. Do few people know about the problem? Following this advice is harder than it looks because it means standing out from the crowd, and that might mean looking a little weird. 3. Is this problem solvable? Scared Straight is a program that takes kids who have committed misdemeanors to visit prisons and meet convicted criminals, confronting them with their likely future if they don't change their ways. The concept proved popular not just as a social program, but as entertainment. It was adapted for both an acclaimed documentary and a TV show on A&E, which broke ratings records for the network upon its premiere. There's just one problem with Scared Straight. It probably causes young people to commit more crimes. Or more precisely, the young people who went through the program did commit fewer crimes than they did before, so superficially it looked like it worked. But the decrease was smaller compared to similar young people who never went through the program. This effect is so significant that the Washington State Institute for Public Policy estimated that each $1 spent on scared straight programs causes more than $200 worth of social harm. This estimate seems a little too pessimistic to us, but even so, it looks like it was a huge mistake. No one is sure why this is, but it might be because the young people realised that life in jail wasn't as bad as they thought, or they came to admire the criminals. Some attempts to do good, like scared straight, make things worse. Many more fail to have an impact. David Anderson of the Coalition for Evidence-Based Policy estimates, Of social programmes that have been rigorously evaluated, most, perhaps 75% or more, including those backed by expert opinion and less rigorous studies, turn out to produce small or no effects, and in some cases negative effects. This suggests that if you choose a charity to get involved in without looking at the evidence, you will most likely have no impact at all. Worse, it's very hard to tell which programs are going to be effective ahead of time. Don't believe us? Try our 10-question quiz at 80,000hours.org slash articles slash can you guess and see if you can guess what's effective. The quiz asks you to guess which social interventions work and which don't. We've tested it on hundreds of people and they hardly do better than chance. So before you choose a social problem to work on, ask yourself, 1. Is there a way to make progress on this problem with rigorous evidence behind it? For instance, lots of studies have shown that malaria nets prevent malaria. Two, alternatively, is there a way to test promising but unproven programs that could help solve this problem and find out whether they work? And three, is this a problem where there's a small but realistic chance of making a massive impact? For instance, stopping catastrophic pandemics via better policy. If the answer to all of these is no, then it's probably best to find something else. Look for the best balance of the factors. You probably won't find something that does brilliantly on all three dimensions. Rather, look for what does best on balance. A problem could be worth tackling if it's extremely big and neglected, even if it seems hard to solve. Your personal fit and expertise. 
There's no point working on a problem if you can't find any roles that are a good fit for you. You won't be satisfied or have much impact. So while it's a great idea to find a problem that has a good combination of being big, neglected and solvable, you'll also want to find a specific role that's a good fit for you. As we'll cover in Chapter 8, personal fit is so important that it can easily be better to focus on an area you think is less pressing in general, if it's a sufficiently good fit for you. Early in your career, you only need to have a vague idea of what problems you might want to work on in the future. Your main focus should be exploring to figure out what you're good at and building skills that will plausibly be useful, which we cover in the next two chapters. Later, you can use those skills to tackle the most pressing problems at the time. If you're already an expert in a certain skill, then your focus should be on finding a way to use that expertise to tackle a pressing problem. It wouldn't make sense for, say, a great economist who's crushing it to go and become a biologist. Rather, there is probably a way to apply economics to the issues you think are most pressing. You can also use the framework above to narrow down subfields, for example, development economics versus employment policy. So what are the world's most urgent problems? What are the biggest problems in the world that no one is talking about and are possible to solve? That's what we'll cover next. The bottom line, how can you find the world's most pressing problems? The most pressing problems are likely to have a good combination of the following qualities. 1. Big in scale. What's the magnitude of this problem? How much does it affect people's lives today? More crucially, how much of an effect will solving it have in the long run, including the very, very long run, if there are any such effects? 2. Neglected. How many people and resources are already dedicated to tackling this problem? How well allocated are the resources that are currently being dedicated to the problem? Are there good reasons why markets or governments aren't already making progress on this problem? And three, solvable. How easy would it be to make progress on this problem? Do interventions already exist to solve this problem effectively? And how strong is the evidence behind them? To find the problem you should work on, also consider personal fit. Could you become motivated to work on this problem? If you're later in your career, do you have the relevant expertise? See how we apply this framework in the next chapter. Chapter 5 the world's biggest problems, and why they're not what first comes to mind. We've spent much of the last 10 plus years trying to answer a simple question. What are the world's biggest and most neglected problems? We wanted to have a positive impact with our careers, and so we set out to discover where our efforts would be most effective. Our analysis suggests that choosing the right problem could increase your impact by over a hundred times, which would make it the most important driver of your impact. Here we give a summary of what we've learned. Read on to hear why ending diarrhea might save as many lives as world peace, why artificial intelligence might be an even bigger deal, and what to do in your own career to make the most urgent changes happen. In short, the most pressing problems are those where people can have the greatest impact by working on them. As we explained in the previous chapter, this means problems that are not only big, but also neglected and solvable. The more neglected and solvable, the further extra effort will go. And this means they're not the problems that first come to mind. If you just want to see what we think the answer is, go to Appendix 9, where you can also see summaries of our problem profiles. Why issues facing rich countries aren't always the most important, and why charity shouldn't always begin at home. Most people who want to do good focus on issues in their home country. In rich countries, this often means issues like homelessness, inner-city education, and unemployment. But are these the most urgent issues? In the US, only 5% of charitable donations are spent on international causes. The most popular careers for talented graduates who want to do good are teaching and health, which together receive about 40% of graduates, and mainly involve helping people in the US. There are some good reasons to focus on helping your own country. 
you know more about the issues, and you might feel you have special obligations to it. However, back in 2009, we encountered the following series of facts. They led us to think that the most urgent problems are not local, but rather poverty in the world's poorest countries, especially efforts within health such as fighting malaria and parasitic worms. And as we'll come on to later, we now think there are even more pressing issues than global poverty. Chapter 5. The World's Biggest Problems and Why They're Not What First Comes to Mind We've spent much of the last 10-plus years trying to answer a simple question. What are the world's biggest and most neglected problems? We wanted to have a positive impact with our careers, and so we set out to discover where our efforts would be most effective. Our analysis suggests that choosing the right problem could increase your impact by over 100 times, which would make it the most important driver of your impact. Here, we give a summary of what we've learned. Read on to hear why ending diarrhea might save as many lives as world peace, why artificial intelligence might be an even bigger deal, and what to do in your own career to make the most urgent changes happen. In short, the most pressing problems are those where people can have the greatest impact by working on them. As we explained in the previous chapter, this means problems that are not only big, but also neglected and solvable. The more neglected and solvable, the further extra effort will go and this means they're not the problems that first come to mind. If you just want to see what we think the answer is, go to Appendix 9, where you can also see summaries of our problem profiles. Why issues facing rich countries aren't always the most important, and why charity shouldn't always begin at home. Most people who want to do good focus on issues in their home country. In rich countries, this often means issues like homelessness, inner-city education, and unemployment. But are these the most urgent issues? In the US, only 5% of charitable donations are spent on international causes. The most popular careers for talented graduates who want to do good are teaching and health, which together receive around 40% of graduates, and mainly involve helping people in the US. There are some good reasons to focus on helping your own country. You know more about the issues, and you might feel you have special obligations to it. However, back in 2009, we encountered the following series of facts. They led us to think that the most urgent problems are not local, but rather poverty in the world's poorest countries, especially efforts within health, such as fighting malaria and parasitic worms. And as we'll come to later, we now think there are even more pressing issues than global poverty, in particular catastrophic risks that could affect the whole world in future. Why do we say the most urgent problems aren't local? Well, remember the distribution of world income that we came across in Chapter 2. Even someone living on the US poverty line of $14,580 per year, as of 2023, is richer than about 85% of the world's population, and about 20 times wealthier than the world's poorest 700 million who mostly live in Central America, Africa, and South Asia on under $800 per year. These figures are already adjusted for the fact that money goes further in poor countries, purchasing power parity. As we also saw earlier, the poorer you are, the bigger difference extra money makes to your welfare. Based on this research, because poorer people in Africa are 20 times poorer, we'd expect resources to go about 20 times further in helping them. There are also only about 40 million people living in relative poverty in the US, about 6% as many as the 650 million in extreme global poverty. There are also far more resources dedicated to helping this smaller number of people. Overseas development aid from the world's developed countries is in total only about $200 billion per year, compared to $1.7 trillion spent on welfare in the US alone. Finally, as we saw earlier, a significant fraction of US social interventions probably don't work. This is because problems facing the poor in rich countries are complex and hard to solve. Moreover, even the most evidence-based interventions are expensive and have modest effects. The same comparison holds for other rich countries, such as the UK, Australia, 
Canada and the EU. Though if you live in a low-income country, then it may well be best to focus on issues there. All this isn't to deny that the poor and rich countries have very tough lives, perhaps even worse in some respects than those in the developing world. Rather, the issue is that there are far fewer of them, and they're harder to help. So if you're not focusing on issues in your home country, what should you focus on? Global health, a problem where you could really make progress. Earlier, we told the story of Dr. Narlin, who helped to develop oral rehydration therapy as a treatment for diarrhoea. What if we were to tell you that over the second half of the 20th century, efforts by Dr. Narlin and others did as much to save lives as achieving world peace over the same period would have done? The number of deaths each year due to diarrhoea has fallen by 3 million over the last five decades due to advances like oral rehydration therapy. Meanwhile, all wars and political famines killed about 2 million people per year over the second half of the 20th century. And we've had similar victories over other infectious diseases. Here's a chart. It shows immunizable diseases, diarrheal diseases, malaria, smallpox, and war. And war is set as a benchmark level of 2 million deaths per year on the y-axis. Then we have years 1960 and 2001 compared for the others. So in 1960, immunizable diseases killed 5 million per year. In 2001, that's just over 1 million. Diarrheal diseases in 1960, just over 4.5 million per year. In 2001, 1.5 million. Malaria in 1960, just under 4 million. In 2001, just over half a million. Smallpox, nearly 3 million per year in 1960, and none in 2001. The global fight against disease is one of humanity's greatest achievements, but it's also an ongoing battle that you can contribute to with your career. A large fraction of these gains were driven by humanitarian aid, such as the campaign to eradicate smallpox. In fact, although many experts in economics think much international aid hasn't been effective, even the most sceptical agree there's an exception, global health. For instance, William Easterly, author of The White Man's Burden, why the West's efforts to aid the rest have done so much ill and so little good, wrote, Put the focus back where it belongs. Get the poorest people in the world such obvious goods as the vaccines, the antibiotics, the food supplements, the improved seeds, the fertiliser, the roads. This is not making the poor dependent on handouts. It is giving the poorest people the health, nutrition, education and other inputs that raise the payoff to their own efforts to better their lives. Within health, where to focus? An economist at the World Bank sent us this data, which also amazed us. Here's a graph. On the y-axis, we have the cost-effectiveness of an intervention in health per $1,000 spent. On the x-axis, we have the interventions in order of effectiveness. So at least half of the x-axis is taken up by cost-effectiveness so low you can't really see it above zero. And then it begins to increase gradually, and then rapidly all at the end. The most cost-effective interventions are above 300 on the y-axis, in health per $1,000. Whereas even by around the 90th percentile, they're still around 100 on the y-axis. That's captioned, cost-effectiveness of health interventions as found in the Disease Controls Priorities Project 2. This is a list of health treatments, such as providing tuberculosis medicine or surgeries, ranked by how much health they produce per dollar, as measured in rigorous randomised controlled trials. Health is measured in a standard unit used by health economists called the quality-adjusted life year. The first point is that all these treatments are effective. Essentially all of them would be funded in countries like the US and UK. People in poor countries, however, routinely die from diseases that would certainly have been treated if they'd happened to have been born somewhere else. Even more surprising, however, is that top interventions are far better than the average, as shown by the spike on the right. The top interventions, like vaccines, have been shown to have significant benefits, but are also extremely cheap. The top intervention is over 10 times more cost-effective than the average, and 15,000 times more than the worst. 
This means if you're working at a health charity focused on one of the top interventions, you'd expect to have 10 times as much impact compared to a randomly selected one. This study isn't perfect. There were mistakes in the analysis affecting the top results, and that's what you'd expect due to regression to the mean. But the main point is solid. The best health interventions are many times more effective than the average. So, how much more impact might you make with your career by switching your focus to global health? Because, as we saw in the first chart, the world's poorest people are over 20 times poorer than the poor in rich countries, resources go about 20 times as far in helping them. Then, if we focus on health, there are cheap, effective interventions that everyone agrees are worth doing. We can use the research in the second chart to pick the very best interventions, letting us have perhaps five times as much impact again. In total, this makes for a hundredfold difference in impact. Does this check out? The UK's National Health Service and many US government agencies are willing to spend over $30,000 to give someone an extra year of healthy life. This is a fantastic use of resources by ordinary standards. However, research by GiveWell has found that it's possible to give an infant a year of healthy life by donating around $100 to one of the most cost-effective global health charities, such as Against Malaria Foundation. This is about 0.33% as much. This suggests that, at least in terms of improving health, one career working somewhere like AMF might achieve as much as 300 careers focused on one typical way of doing good in a rich country. Though our best guess is that a more rigorous and comprehensive comparison would find a somewhat smaller difference. It's hard for us to grasp such big differences in scale, but that would mean that one year of equally skilled effort towards the best treatments within global health could have as much impact as what would have taken others 100 years working on typical rich country issues. These discoveries caused many of us at 80,000 Hours to start giving at least 10% of our incomes to effective global health charities. No matter which job we ended up in, these donations would enable us to make a significant difference. In fact, if the hundredfold figure is correct, a 10% donation would be the equivalent of donating 1,000% of our income to charities focused on poverty in rich countries. However, everything we learned about global health raised many more questions. If it's possible to have 10 or 100 times more impact with just a little research, Maybe there are even better areas to discover? We considered lots of avenues to help the global poor, like trade reform, promoting migration, crop yield research, and biomedical research. To go in a very different direction, we also seriously considered working to end factory farming. The idea, in brief, is that the interests of animals get very little protection by our current economic and political systems, but there are huge numbers of them. Around 100 billion animals die every year in factory farms. For example, we helped to found animal charity evaluators, which does research into how to most effectively improve animal welfare. We still think factory farming is an urgent problem. See Appendix 9. But in the end, we decided to focus on something else. Why focusing on future generations might be even more effective than tackling global health. Which would you choose from these two options? 1. Prevent one person from suffering next year. Or 2. Prevent 100 people from suffering the same amount 100 years from now. Most people choose the second option. It's a crude example, but it suggests that they value future generations. If people didn't want to leave a legacy to future generations, it would be hard to understand why we invest so much in science, create art, and preserve the wilderness. We would certainly choose the second option. And if you value future generations, then there are powerful arguments that helping them should be your focus. We were first exposed to these by researchers at University of Oxford's modestly named Future of Humanity Institute. So, what's the reasoning? First, future generations matter. But they can't vote, they can't buy things, and they can't stand up for their interests. This means our system neglects them. 
You can see this in the global failure to come to an international agreement to tackle climate change that actually works. Second, their plight is abstract. We're reminded of issues like global poverty and factory farming far more often. But we can't so easily visualise suffering that will happen in the future. Future generations rely more on our goodwill, and even that is hard to muster. Third, there will probably be many more people alive in the future than there are today. The Earth will remain habitable for at least hundreds of millions of years. We may die out long before that point, but if there's a chance of making it, then many more people will live in the future than are alive today. To use some hypothetical figures, if each generation lasts for 100 years, then over 100 million years there could be 1 million future generations. This is such a big number that any problem that affects future generations potentially has a far greater scale than one that only affects the present. It could affect 1 million times more people and all the art, science, culture and well-being that will entail. So the problems that affect future generations are potentially the largest in scale and the most neglected. What's more, because the future could be long and the universe is so vast, almost no matter what you value, there could be far more of what matters in the future. This suggests that we have much greater reason than people usually realise to help the future, and not just the near future but also the very long-run future, go well. But can we actually help future generations or improve the long term? Perhaps the problems that affect the future are big and neglected but not solvable? One way to help future generations, avert neglected existential risks. In the summer of 2013, Barack Obama referred to climate change as the global threat of our time. He's not alone in this opinion. When many people think of the biggest problems facing future generations, climate change is often the first to come to mind. One reason for that is that many fear that climate change could lead to a catastrophic civilizational collapse and could even lead to the end of the human species. We think this thought is, to some extent, on the right track. The most powerful way we can help future generations is, we think, to prevent a catastrophe that could end advanced civilization, or even prevent any future generations from existing. If civilization survives, we'll have a chance to later solve problems like poverty and disease, while anything that poses a truly existential threat will prevent any such progress. However, climate change is also widely acknowledged as a major problem, conspiracy theorists aside, and receives tens or even hundreds of billions of dollars of investment. Our guess is also that there are issues that pose much greater risks of ending civilization. So while we think tackling climate change is an important way to help future generations, we think it's likely even higher impact for many to focus on more neglected and more existentially dangerous issues. Biorisk, the threat from future disease. In 2006, The Guardian ordered segments of smallpox DNA via mail. If assembled into a complete strand and transmitted to 10 people, the study estimated it could infect up to 2.2 million people in 180 days, potentially killing 660,000 if authorities did not respond quickly with vaccinations and quarantines. We first wrote about the risks posed by catastrophic pandemics back in 2016. Seven years later, and three years after the emergence of COVID-19, we're still concerned. COVID-19 disrupted the world and has, so far, killed over 10 million people. But it's easy to imagine scenarios far worse. In the future, we might face diseases even deadlier than COVID-19 or smallpox, whether through natural evolution or created through bioengineering, the technology for which is becoming cheaper and more accessible every year. In our eyes, the chance of a pandemic that kills over 100 million people over the next century seems similar to and likely greater than the risk of nuclear war or runaway climate change. So it poses a threat that's at least similar in magnitude to both the present generation and future generations. But risks from pandemics are even now far more neglected than either of these. We estimate that over $600 billion is spent annually on efforts to fight climate change, 
compared to $1 to $10 billion towards biosecurity aimed at addressing the worst-case pandemics. Moreover, there are some ways the risks from pandemics could be even greater. It's very difficult to see how nuclear war or climate change could kill literally everyone and permanently end civilization. But bioweapons with this power seem very much within the realm of possibility, if given enough time. At the same time, there's plenty of relatively straightforward things that could be done to improve biosecurity, such as improving regulation of labs, building bigger stockpiles of personal protective equipment or PPE, and developing cheap diagnostics to detect new diseases quickly. Overall, we think biosecurity is likely more pressing than climate change. We currently think that biosecurity is one of the world's most pressing problems. But there are issues that might be even more important, and seem to be even more neglected. Preventing an AI-related catastrophe Around 1800, civilization underwent one of the most profound shifts in human history, the Industrial Revolution. There's a graph here with years from 0 to 2000 on the x-axis, and world average income in 1990 US dollars on the y-axis. This graph stays more or less flat, it's only going up slightly until about 1800, staying below $1,000, and then suddenly it just turns a corner and shoots upwards, and ends at nearly $8,000. And the point where it starts to increase rapidly is labelled, something weird happened. Looking forward, what might be the next transition of this scale, the next pivotal event in history that shapes what happens to all future generations? If we could identify such a transition, that may well be the most important area in which to work. One candidate is bioengineering, the ability to fundamentally redesign human beings, as discussed, for example, by Yuval Noah Harari in Sapiens. But we think there's an issue that's even more neglected and is developing far more rapidly. Artificial intelligence. Billions of dollars are spent trying to make artificial intelligence more powerful, but hardly any effort is devoted to making sure that those added capabilities are implemented safely and for the benefit of humanity. This matters for two main reasons. First, powerful AI systems have the potential to be misused. For instance, they might be used to develop dangerous new technology, such as new and more powerful weapons. Second, there is a risk of accidents when powerful new AI systems are deployed. This is especially pressing due to the alignment problem. This is a complex topic, so if you want to explore it properly, we recommend reading our full problem profile on artificial intelligence, found at 80k.info AI. But here's a quick introduction. In the 1980s, Chess was held up as an example of something a machine could never do. But in 1997, world chess champion Garry Kasparov was defeated by the computer program Deep Blue. Since then, computers have become far better at chess than humans. In 2004, two experts in artificial intelligence used truck driving as an example of a job that would be really hard to automate. But today, self-driving cars are already on the road. In August 2021, a team of expert forecasters predicted that it would take five years for a computer to be able to solve high school competition-level maths problems. Less than a year later, Google built an AI that could do just that. At the end of 2022, ChatGPT became the fastest-growing web platform ever. The most recent of these advances are possible due to progress in machine learning. In the past, we mostly had to give computers detailed instructions for every task. Today, we have programs that teach themselves. The same algorithm that can play Space Invaders has also learned to play about 50 other arcade games, caption images, chat with humans, and manipulate a real robot arm. Machine learning has been around for decades, but improved algorithms, especially around deep learning techniques, faster processes, bigger data sets, and huge investments by companies like Google and Microsoft have led to amazing advances far faster than expected. Due to this, many experts think human-level artificial intelligence could easily happen in our lifetimes. Here are the results of a 2022 survey of hundreds of top AI researchers from AI Impacts. There's a table here 
For a 10% chance of human-level machine intelligence, the median response was 2032, the mean response was 2042, with a standard deviation of 40 years. For a 50% chance of human-level machine intelligence, the median response was 2052, the mean response was 2127, and the standard deviation was 530 years. And for a 90% chance of human-level machine intelligence, the median response was 2086, the mean response was 5406, and the standard deviation was 40,000 years. You can see half the experts give a 50% or higher chance of human-level AI happening by 2050, just 30 years in the future. Admittedly, they are very uncertain, but high uncertainty also means it could arrive sooner rather than later. Why is this important? Gorillas are faster than us, stronger than us, and have a more powerful bite. But there are only 100,000 gorillas in the wild compared to 7 billion humans, and their fate is up to us. A major reason for this is a difference in intelligence. Right now, computers are only smarter than us in limited ways, for example, playing StarCraft. And this is already changing the economy. But what happens when computers become smarter than us in almost all ways, like how we're smarter than gorillas? This transition could be hugely positive or hugely negative. On the one hand, just as the Industrial Revolution automated manual labour, the AI revolution could automate intellectual labour, unleashing unprecedented prosperity and access to material resources. But we also couldn't guarantee staying in control of a system that's smarter than us. It might be more strategic than us, more persuasive, and better at solving problems. So we need to make sure the AI system shares our goals. This, however, is not easy. No one knows how to program moral behaviour into a computer. Within computer science, this is known as the alignment problem. Solving the alignment problem might be hugely important, but today, very few people are working on it. We estimate the number of full-time researchers working directly on the alignment problem is around 300, making it over 10 times more neglected than biosecurity. At the same time, there is momentum behind this work. In the last 10 years, the field has gained academic and industry support, such as Stephen Hawking, Stuart Russell, who wrote the most popular textbook in the field of AI, and Geoffrey Hinton, who pioneered the field of AI. If you're not a good fit for technical research yourself, you can contribute in other ways, for example by working as a research manager or assistant, or donating and raising funds for this research. This will also be a huge issue for governments. AI policy is fast becoming an important area, but policymakers are focused on short-term issues like how to regulate self-driving cars and job loss, rather than the key long-term issues, i.e. the future of civilization. Of all the issues we've covered so far, reducing the risks posed by AI is among the most important but also the most neglected. Despite also being harder to solve, we think it's likely to be among the most high-impact problems of the coming decades. This was a surprise to us when we first considered it, but we think it's where the arguments lead. These days we spend more time researching machine learning than malaria nets. Dealing with uncertainty and going meta. Our views have changed a great deal over the last 12 years, and they could easily change again. We could commit to working on AI or biosecurity, but might we discover something even better in the coming years? And what might this uncertainty imply about where to focus now? Global Priorities Research If you're uncertain which global problem is most pressing, here's one answer. More research is needed. Only a tiny fraction of the billions of dollars spent each year trying to make the world a better place goes towards research to identify how to spend those resources most effectively, what we call global priorities research. As we've seen, some approaches are far more effective than others, so this research is hugely valuable. A career in this area could mean working at Open Philanthropy, the Global Priorities Institute, Rethink Priorities, Economics Academia, Think Tanks, and elsewhere. Broad interventions, such as improved politics. 
The second strategy is to work on problems that will help us solve lots of other problems. We call these broad interventions. For instance, if we had more enlightened governments, that would help us solve lots of other problems facing future generations. The US government in particular will play a pivotal role in issues like climate policy, AI policy, biosecurity, and new challenges we don't even know about yet. So US governance is highly important, if maybe not neglected or tractable. Political action in your local community might have an effect on decision-makers in Washington. In the last chapter, we did an analysis of the simplest kind of political action, voting, and found that it could be really valuable. On the other hand, issues like US governance already receive a huge amount of attention, which makes them hard to improve. We generally favour more neglected issues with more targeted effects on future generations. For instance, fascinating research by Philip Tetlock shows that some teams and methods are far better at predicting geopolitical events than others. If the decision-makers in society were informed by much more accurate predictions, it would help them navigate future crises, whatever those turn out to be. However, the category of broad interventions is one of the areas we're most uncertain about, so we're keen to see more research on it. Capacity building and promoting effective altruism. If you're uncertain which problems will be most pressing in the future, a third strategy is to simply save money or invest in your career capital, so you're in a better position to do good when you have more information. However, rather than make personal investments, it can be even better to invest in a community of people working to do good. In an earlier chapter, we looked at Giving What We Can, a charity building a community of people who donate 10% of their income to whatever charities are most cost-effective. Every $1 invested in growing Giving What We Can has led to over $9 already donated to its top recommended charities and a total of over $3 billion pledged. By building a community, Giving What We Can has been able to raise much more money than their founders could have donated individually. They've achieved a multiplier on their impact. But what's more, the members donate to whatever charities are most effective at the time. If the situation changes, then at least to some extent, the donations will change too. This flexibility makes the impact over time much higher. Giving What We Can is one example of several projects in the effective altruism community a community of people who aim to identify the best ways to help others and take action based on their findings. 80,000 Hours itself is another example. Better career advice doesn't sound like one of the most pressing problems imaginable, but many of the world's most talented young people want to do good with their lives and lack good advice on how to do so. This means that every year, thousands of them have far less impact than they could have. We could have gone to work on issues like AI ourselves, but instead, by providing better advice we can help thousands of other people find high-impact careers. And so, if we do a good job, we might hope to have thousands of times as much impact ourselves. What's more, if we discover new, better career options than the ones we already know about, we can switch to promoting them. Just like giving what we can, this flexibility gives us greater impact over time. We call the indirect strategies we've covered, global priorities research, broad interventions and promoting effective altruism, going meta because they work one level removed from the concrete problems that seem most urgent. The downside of going meta is that it's harder to know if your efforts are effective. The advantage is they're usually more neglected, since people prefer concrete opportunities over more abstract ones, and they allow you to have a greater impact in the face of uncertainty. How to work out which problems you should focus on. You can see our list of the world's most pressing problems in Appendix 9. But that's just our list... What matters for your career is your personal list. The assessment of problems greatly depends on value judgments and debatable empirical questions, and you might not share our answers. There are a number of key ways in which we might be wrong. Personal fit is also vital, and so are the particular opportunities you can find. We don't think everyone should work on the number one problem. If you're a great fit for an area, 
you might have over 10 times as much impact working there as you would in one that doesn't motivate you. So this could easily change your personal ranking. Just remember, there are many ways to help solve each problem, so it's often easier than it first seems to find work you enjoy that helps with problems you might not have yet considered working on. Moreover, it's easier to develop new passions than most people expect. Despite all the uncertainties, your choice of problem might be the single biggest factor determining your impact. If we rated global problems in terms of how pressing they are, we might intuitively expect them to look like this. Here's a graph with problems in order of impact arranged on the x-axis and expected impact on the y-axis, and they increase smoothly and gradually. Some problems are more pressing than others, but most are pretty good. But instead, we've found that it looks more like this. Here's the same graph, but now the problems are so low in impact for most of the x-axis that you can hardly see them, and then suddenly they shoot up at the end. Some problems are far higher impact than others, because they can differ by 10 or 100 times in terms of how big, neglected, and solvable they are, as well as your degree of personal fit. So getting this decision right could mean you achieve over 100 times as much with your career. If there's one lesson we draw from all we've covered, it's this. If you want to do good in the world, it's worth at some point really taking the time to learn about different global problems and how you might contribute to them. It takes time and there's a lot to learn, but it's hard to imagine anything more interesting or more important. Apply this to your own career. You don't need to figure out which global problems you want to focus on right at the start of your career. Early on, the top priority is to explore to figure out what you're good at and to build valuable skills. It's common to not directly tackle the problems you think are most pressing for many years. However, it is useful to at least have a rough idea of which problems you'd like to work on in the future, since this can greatly affect which kinds of skills seem most useful to build. For instance, if you guess that reducing risks from AI is in your shortlist, that would suggest gaining some pretty different skills and experience to global health, though some skills are useful in both, such as management. So even if you're right at the start of your career, we'd suggest spending at least a couple of days thinking about this question. Here's an exercise. 1. Using the resources above, write down the three global problems that you think are most pressing for you to work on. Your personal list will depend on your values, empirical assumptions, and personal fit with the areas. And 2. What are you most uncertain about with respect to your list? How might you learn more about those questions? For example, is there something you could read? Someone you could talk to? You can find summaries of our evaluations of different problem areas in Appendix 9, and our complete and up-to-date evaluations at adk.link vek. This list of problems is just a starting point. The next step is to find concrete career options that will make a difference within the area, which we cover in the next chapter, and then to find an option with excellent personal fit, which we cover in Chapter 8. Chapter 6. Which jobs help people the most? Many people think of Superman as a hero, but he may be the greatest example of underutilized talent in all of fiction. It was a blunder to spend his life fighting crime one case at a time. If he'd thought a little more creatively, he could have done far more good. How about delivering vaccines to everyone in the world at super speed? That would have eradicated most infectious disease, saving hundreds of millions of lives. Here, we'll argue that a lot of people who want to make a difference with their career fall into the same trap as Superman. College graduates imagine becoming doctors or teachers, but these may not be the best fit for their particular skills. And like Superman fighting crime, these paths are often limited in the amount they could potentially contribute to solving a problem. In contrast, Nobel Prize winner Carl Landsteiner discovered blood groups, enabling hundreds of millions of life-saving operations. He would have never been able to carry out that many surgeries himself. Below, we'll introduce five ways you could use your career to help tackle the social problems you want to help work on, which we identified in the previous chapter. The five ways are earning to give, communication, 
research, government and policy, and organisation building. We'll make concrete recommendations on how to pursue each approach. To get even more ideas, take a look at the summaries of our career reviews in Appendix 8. 1. Earning to give. Would Elton John have done more good if he'd worked at a small non-profit? We don't normally think of becoming a rock star as a path to doing good. Quite apart from the value of his music, Elton John has saved the lives of thousands of people by reducing the spread of HIV-AIDS. So here's one way of doing more good that's not normally put on the table. Earning to give. We often meet people who are interested in taking a higher-earning job like software engineering, but are worried they won't make a difference. Part of the reason is we don't usually think of earning more money as a path for people who want to do good. However, there are many effective organisations that have no problems finding enthusiastic staff but don't have the funds to hire. People who are a good fit for a higher earning option can donate to these organisations, making a large indirect contribution. We define earning to give as working in a job with a neutral or positive direct impact, which pays more than what someone would have done otherwise. And while donating a large fraction of the extra earnings, typically 20 to 50% of the total salary, to organisations they think are highly effective. Earning to give is not just for people who want to work in the highest paying industries. Anyone who aims to earn more in order to give more is on this path. But if you're a good fit for a higher earning path, it could be one of your higher impact options. Consider the story of Julia and Jeff, a couple from Boston with three children. Through his relationship with Julia, Jeff became interested in using his career for good. Jeff used to work as a research technician. He decided to train up to become a software engineer and eventually got a job at Google. The couple were able to earn more than twice as much, so started to donate about half their income to charity each year. By doing this, they may have had more impact than they could by working directly in a non-profit. Compare Jeff's impact to that of the CEO of a non-profit. Here's a table comparing a Google software engineer to a non-profit CEO. The engineer's salary is 250000 the CEO's 65000 Donations, 125000 from the software engineer and zero from the non-profit CEO. Money to live on, 125000 for the engineer, 65000 for the CEO. And direct impact of work, neutral for the software engineer and very positive for the CEO. Jeff could live on about two times as much as he would have earned in the non-profit sector and still donate enough to fund the salaries of about two non-profit CEOs. Jeff's guess is that the direct impact of his job was approximately neutral. He also thinks that he became happier in his work because he enjoys engineering. Moreover, Jeff and Julia could switch their donations to whichever organisations were most in need of funds at any given time based on their research, whereas it's harder to change where you work. This flexibility is particularly valuable if you're uncertain about which problems will be most pressing in the future. Making this much difference is possible because, as we saw earlier, we live in a world with huge income inequality. It's possible to earn several times as much as a teacher or non-profit worker, and vastly more than the world's poorest people. At the same time, hardly anyone donates more than a few percent of their income, so if you are willing to do so, you can have an amazing impact in a very wide range of jobs. Earlier, we also saw that any college graduate in a developed country can have a major impact by giving 10% of their income to an effective charity. The average graduate earns $77,000 per year over their life, and 10% of that could save about 40 lives if given to a Against Malaria Foundation, for example. If you could just earn 10% more and donate the extra, then that's twice as much impact to gain. And if you think there are better organisations to fund than Against Malaria Foundation, perhaps working on different problems or doing research or communicating important ideas, the impact is even higher. Since we introduced the concept of earning to give in 2011, hundreds of people have taken it up and stuck with it. Some give around 30% of their income, and a few even give more than 50%. Collectively, they'll donate tens of millions of dollars to high-impact charities in the coming years. In doing so, 
they are funding passionate people who want to contribute directly, but who otherwise wouldn't have the resources to do so. One of the people we advised in 2011, Matt, donated over $1 million while still in his 20s and was featured in the New York Times. He found his new job more enjoyable, too. Should you earn to give? Earning to give has been one of our most memorable and controversial ideas, attracting media coverage in the BBC, Washington Post, Daily Mail, and many other outlets. For this reason, many people think it's our top recommendation. But it's not. We see earning to give mostly as a baseline. It's a path that many could pursue and do a lot of good, on the scale of saving 100 lives or more, as we just argued. But we think that most of our readers can have an even greater impact again by pursuing one of the other approaches below. Overall, for people we speak to one-on-one, we only think about 10% should earn to give. In fact, in 2022, Jeff left his high-paying job at Google. He's now a researcher at the Nucleic Acid Observatory, building a wastewater monitoring system that he hopes will help detect pandemics before they start. Jeff and Julia are still going to donate over 30% of their income, but given Jeff's lower salary, they expect most of their positive impact to come directly from their work. When is earning to give especially promising? You're a good fit for a higher earning option, like Jeff was for software engineering, and you're not a good fit for other impactful options. Definitely don't become a software engineer if you'd hate it. There's a particular job you really want to do for other reasons, where you think you can make significant donations. For instance, you might be someone who's always wanted to be a doctor, or you might need a higher earning job to support your family. You think a higher earning option will be good for building skills, for use in more direct work later on, and earning to give could help you to stay engaged with social impact while you do so. For example, working at a tech startup can help you learn organization building skills that are useful when running nonprofits. In the next chapter, we explain why it's important to gain career capital. You're very uncertain about which problems are most pressing. Earning to give provides flexibility because you can easily change where you donate, or even save the money and give later. Though money isn't the only thing that's transferable. Many skills, including those we cover below, can easily be transferred across problem areas. Or you want to contribute to an area that is particularly funding-constrained, rather than primarily talent-constrained. Common objections to earning to give. Don't many high-earning jobs cause harm? We don't recommend taking a job that does harm in order to donate the money, and we've written an entire article about why, which you can find in Appendix 5. In practice, most people who earn to give work in the fields of technology, asset management, medicine, or consulting. And we think there are many positions in these industries that have roughly neutral or a small positive impact. For instance, many, but not all, financial traders make profits at the expense of other traders. So they're moving money around, mostly from rich people to other rich people. Of course, some high-earning jobs can cause a lot of harm. A particularly stark illustration is Sam Bankman-Fried. Sam founded a cryptocurrency exchange with the stated goal of earning to give. In fact, we featured him on our website as an example of someone pursuing a positive career. But Sam ended up being charged with fraud. We've written more about Sam below, but here's the bottom line. While we think you can do a lot of good through earning to give, we think doing harm for the greater good is almost never a good idea, even if you think the donations might outweigh the costs of a harmful career. Can people actually stick with it? Won't people earning to give end up being influenced by their peers to spend the money on luxuries rather than donating? We were worried this would happen when we first introduced the idea, but it hasn't happened as often as you might think. Hundreds of people are pursuing earning to give, and while some have left because they thought they could do more good elsewhere, surprisingly few that we know of have simply given up their plans to donate. In part, this is because many people pursuing earning to give made public pledges of their intentions to donate. 
often through giving what we can. The existence of a community that earns to give also makes it much easier to stick with today. But if you try to earn vast sums of money, there's a much more substantial risk that power corrupts. For this reason, we're more concerned about people who try to earn as much as possible to the exclusion of all else. We'd suggest publicly pre-committing to making donations. And if you do end up with a lot of money, you should set up safeguards to help make sure you use the money responsibly, such as a board, formal governance structures, and advisors who can keep you in check. What if I wouldn't be motivated doing a high-earning job? In that case, don't do it. We only recommend earning to give if it's a good fit. Just bear in mind, as we covered previously, that you can become interested in more jobs than you might think. Approach 2. Communication. Consider the following options. 1. Earn to give yourself. Or 2. Persuade two friends to earn to give. The second path does more good. In fact, probably about twice as much. This illustrates the power of communication careers. Many of the highest impact people in history have been communicators and advocates of one kind or another people who spread important ideas and solutions to pressing problems. Take Rosa Parks, who refused to give up her seat to a white man on a bus, sparking a protest which led to a Supreme Court ruling that segregated buses were unconstitutional. Parks was a seamstress in her day job, but in her spare time she was very involved with the civil rights movement. After she was arrested, she and the NAACP worked hard and worked strategically, staying up all night creating thousands of flyers to launch a total boycott of buses in a city of 40,000 African Americans while simultaneously pushing forward with legal action. This led to major progress for civil rights. There are also many examples you don't hear about, like Viktor Zhdanov, who was arguably one of the highest impact people of the 20th century. In the 20th century, smallpox killed around 400 million people, far more than died in all the century's wars and political famines. Credit for the elimination often goes to D.A. Henderson, who was in charge of the World Health Organization's smallpox elimination program. However, the program already existed before he was brought on board. In fact, he initially turned down the job. The program would probably have eventually succeeded even if Henderson hadn't accepted the position. Zhdanov single-handedly lobbied the WHO to start the elimination campaign in the first place. Without his involvement, it would not have happened until much later, and possibly not at all. So why has communicating important ideas sometimes been so effective? First, ideas can spread quickly so communication is a way for a small group of people to have a large effect on a problem. A small team can launch a social movement, lobby a government, start a campaign that influences public opinion, or just persuade their friends to take up a cause. In each case, they can have a lasting impact on the problem that goes far beyond what they could achieve directly. Second, spreading important ideas in a careful, strategic way is neglected. This is because there's usually no commercial incentive to spread socially important ideas. Instead, advocacy is mainly pursued by people willing to dedicate their careers to making the world a better place. Moreover, the ideas that are most impactful to spread are those that aren't yet widely accepted. Standing up to the status quo is uncomfortable, and it can take decades for opinion to shift. This means there's also little personal incentive to stand up for them. Communication is also an area where the most successful efforts do far more than the typical efforts. The most successful advocates influence millions of people, while others might struggle to persuade more than a few friends. This means if you're an exceptionally good fit for communication, it's often the best thing you can do, and you're likely to achieve far more by doing it yourself than you could by funding someone to engage in communication or advocacy on your behalf. Communication careers can be pursued as a full-time job, such as many jobs in the media, as part of a wider role like an academic who does science communication, or alongside almost any job, like Rosa Parks. 
communication careers are defined by their focus on spreading ideas on a big scale. But it's also possible to have a similar impact on a more person-to-person level as a community builder. For instance, the American women's rights activist Susan B. Anthony hated writing. So while her co-founder at the Women's Loyal National League, Elizabeth Cady Stanton, was a powerful communicator, writing long books and editing their weekly newsletter, Anthony primarily focused on organising and building a community. Anthony's work running events, talking to activists, and building the suffragist community in the United States eventually led to the 19th Amendment to the US Constitution, guaranteeing all adult women the right to vote. It's often called the Anthony Amendment in her honour. Community building often works well as a part-time position. For instance, Huan was a student at Stanford when they came across 80,000 hours and realised the importance of reducing existential risks. However, they also saw there were no organisations on campus focusing on that idea. So they founded the Stanford Existential Risk Initiative, which runs courses and conferences about the topic to build a community of students aiming to work on these risks. Approach 3. Research. People often pan academics as ivory tower intellectuals whose writing has no impact. And we agree there are many problems with academia that mean researchers achieve less than they could. However, we still think research is often high impact, both within academia and outside it. Along with communicators, many of the highest impact people in history have been researchers. Consider Alan Turing. He was a mathematician who developed code-breaking machines that allowed the Allies to be far more effective against Nazi U-boats in World War II. Some historians estimate this enabled D-Day to happen a year earlier than it would have otherwise. Since World War II resulted in 10 million deaths per year, Turing may have saved about 10 million lives. And he invented the computer. Turing's example shows that research can be both theoretical and high-impact. Much of his work concerned the abstract mathematics of computing, which wasn't initially practically relevant but became important over time. On the applied side, we saw lots of examples of high-impact medical research in Chapter 2. Of course, not everyone will be an Alan Turing and not every discovery gets adopted. Nevertheless, we think that in some cases, research can be one of the best ways to have an impact. Why? First, when new ideas are discovered, they can be spread incredibly cheaply, so it's a way that a single career can change a field. Moreover, new ideas accumulate over time, so research contributes to a significant fraction of long-run progress. However, only a relatively small fraction of people are engaged in research. Only 0.1% of the population are academics, and the proportion was much smaller throughout history. If a small number of people account for a large fraction of progress, then on average, each person's efforts are significant. Second, because there's little commercial incentive to do research relative to its importance, if you do care more about social impact than profit, then it's a good opportunity to have an edge. Most researchers don't get rich, even if their discoveries are extremely valuable. Turing made no money from the discovery of the computer, whereas today it's a multi-billion dollar industry. This is because the benefits of research come a long time in the future and can't usually be protected by patents. In fact, the more fundamental the research, the harder it is to commercialise, so all else equal, we'd expect fundamental research to be more neglected than applied research and therefore higher impact. On the other hand, applied issues can be more urgent. Breakthroughs like the microscope can let us make fundamental breakthroughs faster. So it's hard to say whether applied or fundamental research has a higher impact on average. So in theory, research can be very high impact. Does research actually help with the most pressing problems facing the world today? We think it does. When you look at the problems we're most concerned about, like preventing future pandemics or reducing risks from AI systems, many are mainly constrained by a need for additional research. For example, research could help us develop ways to decrease the time it takes to go from a novel pathogen to a safe, widely distributed vaccine. Alternatively, technical machine learning research could help us build safeguards into AI systems to prevent dangerous behaviour. Like communication, research is especially promising when you're a very good fit, because the best researchers achieve much more than the median, 
Most papers only have one citation, whereas the top 0.1% of papers have over a thousand citations. And when we did a case study on biomedical research, remarks like this were typical. One good person can cover the ground of five, and I'm not exaggerating. If you might be a top 20% researcher in a topic that's relevant to a pressing problem area, then it's likely to be one of your most impactful options. And if you might be exceptional in an academic field, maybe top few percent, even if you can't see now how it'll be useful, that's an option you should probably seriously consider. As we saw earlier, Dr. Nalan helped to save millions of lives with a simple innovation, giving patients with diarrhea water mixed with salt and sugar. While lots of research happens in academia, there are also many research positions elsewhere. For example, many private companies develop crucial technology. BioNTech is famous for developing the first COVID vaccine, while think tanks often do important research in policy. Example, Neil was doing an undergraduate degree in maths when he decided that he wanted to work in AI safety. Our team was able to introduce Neil to researchers in the field and helped him secure internships in academic and industry research groups. This helped him see AI safety as a concrete career path, and that, despite scepticism of long-termism, AI posed a major risk to even people alive today. Neil didn't feel like he was a great fit for academia. He hates writing papers. So he applied to roles in commercial AI research labs. He's now a research engineer at DeepMind. He works on mechanistic interpretability research, which he thinks could be used in the future to help identify potentially dangerous AI systems before they can cause harm. Don't forget supporting positions. Becoming an academic administrator doesn't sound like a high-impact career, but that's exactly why it is. Research requires administrators, managers, grant makers, and communicators to make progress. Many of these roles require very capable people who understand the research, but because they're not glamorous or highly paid, it can be hard to attract the right people. For this reason, if a role like this is a good fit for you, then it can be promising. What ultimately matters is not who does the research, but that it gets done. A hero of ours is Sean O'Hagerty. He studied for a PhD in comparative genomics, but ultimately decided to pursue academic project management. He became a manager at the Future of Humanity Institute, which undertakes neglected research into emerging existential risks, like risks from AI and engineered pandemics. He did a huge amount of work behind the scenes to keep things running as funding rapidly grew. When there was an opportunity to start a new research group in Cambridge, he used what he learned to lead efforts there too. At one point, managing both groups. The field would have moved much more slowly without his management. If you're interested in positions like these, the best path is usually to pursue a PhD, pick a field, then apply to research groups. If you want to enable great research, you need a combination of familiarity with the field and operations skills. Approach 4. Government and policy. When we think of careers that do good, we might not first think of becoming an unknown government bureaucrat. But senior government officials often oversee budgets of tens or even hundreds of millions. If you could enable those budgets to be spent just a couple of percent more effectively, that would be worth millions of extra dollars spent on those programs. And more broadly, the scale of the influence in government positions can be enormous. For instance, Susie Doister wanted to become a public defender to ensure disadvantaged people have good legal defence. She realised that in that role she might improve criminal justice for perhaps hundreds of people over her career, but by changing policy she might improve the justice system for thousands or even millions. Even if the impact per person is smaller, the numbers involved give her the chance of making a greater impact. She was able to use her legal background to enter government, and now works in the executive office of the President of the US on criminal justice reform, and from there she can explore other areas of policy in the future. Government is often crucial in addressing many of the issues we most recommend people work on, because they are the only institutions that create and enforce laws and regulation. For example, 
only governments can do something like ban battery cages for egg-laying hens. They can also act to solve coordination problems that are difficult for individual actors to tackle. When the COVID-19 pandemic hit, contact tracing was essential to slow its spread, but it wasn't in any individual's self-interest to participate. Governments stepped in to provide contact tracing services, benefiting society as a whole. Positions in policy require a wide range of skill types, so there should be some high-impact options for nearly everyone. Approach 5. Building organisations. When most people think of careers that do good, the first thing they think of is working at a charity. The thing is, lots of jobs at charities just aren't that impactful. Some charities focus on programs that don't work, like Scared Straight, which cause kids to commit more crimes. Others focus on ways of helping that don't have much leverage, like Superman fighting criminals one by one, or Dr. Landsteiner focusing on performing surgeries rather than doing the work to discover blood groups. Another problem is that many want to work at organisations that are more constrained by funding than by the number of people enthusiastic to work there. This means if you don't take the job, it would be easy to find someone else who's almost as good. Think of a lawyer who volunteers at a soup kitchen. It may be motivating for them, but it's hardly the most effective thing they could do. Donating one or two hours of salary could pay for several other people to do the work instead, or they could do pro bono legal work and contribute in a way that makes use of their valuable skills. However, there are plenty of other situations when working for a nonprofit is the most effective thing to do. Nonprofits can tackle issues that other organizations can't. They can carry out research that doesn't earn academic prestige, or do political advocacy on behalf of disempowered groups, such as animals or future generations, or provide services that would never be profitable within the market. And there are lots of nonprofits doing great work that really need more people to help build and scale them up. There are also lots of niches that aren't being filled where we need new nonprofits set up to tackle them. More broadly, helping to build an organisation can be a route to making a big contribution, because organisations allow large groups of people to coordinate, and therefore achieve a bigger impact than they could individually. Moreover, if you help build or start an effective organisation, it can continue to have an impact even after you leave. And if you can help make an already existing and impactful organisation somewhat more effective, that can also be a route to a big impact. Claire joined Lead Exposure Elimination Project, or LEAP, as its third staff member. She thought that joining LEAP would help build her career capital, especially her skills and connections, and more importantly, that lead exposure in low- and middle-income countries is an important, solvable, and highly neglected problem. Since joining, Claire has developed LEAP's programs and managed the team implementing them, as well as led the hiring for crucial new staff. LEAP has since started working with governments and industry in 16 countries, and has successfully advocated for the government in Malawi to monitor levels of lead in paints. These organisations don't even need to be non-profits. Some social impact projects are better structured as businesses, and could also include think tanks, research groups, advocacy groups, and so on. For instance, SendWave enables African migrant workers to transfer money to their families through a mobile app for fees of 3%, rather than 10% fees with Western Union. So for every $1 of revenue they make, they make some of the poorest people in the world several dollars richer. Within three years, they'd already had an impact equivalent to donating millions of dollars, and they've grown even more since then. The total size of the market is hundreds of billions of dollars, several times larger than all foreign aid spending. If they can continue to slightly accelerate the rollout of cheaper ways to transfer money, it'll have a big impact. Organisation-building careers are a good fit for people who can develop skills in areas like operations, people management, fundraising, administration, software systems, and finance. Pursuing this path usually means first focusing on building some of these skills, which can be done at any competent organisation, and then later on using them to contribute to the organisations you think are most impactful. To find impactful organisations, think about which problems you think are most pressing, 
and then try to identify the best organizations addressing those problems. In our problem profiles, we list recommended organizations to give you some ideas. Finally, try to identify those that have a pressing need for your skills and a role that might be a great fit for you. What if you want to found an organization? One mistake people make is trying to work out which organizations should be founded from their armchair or by choosing an issue that they've happened to come across in their own lives. Instead, go and learn about big, neglected social problems. Take a job in the area, do further study, and speak to lots of people working on the problem to find out what the world really needs. You need to get near the edge of an area before you'll spot the ideas others haven't and have the connections you'll need to execute. More ideas for impactful careers. These categories aren't intended to be comprehensive. There are lots of impactful options that don't naturally fit into them. For example, experts in information security are sorely needed by organisations working to prevent AI-related and biological catastrophes. There aren't very many trained information security experts to begin with, and only a few are trying to use their careers to solve these urgent problems. To see a much longer list of ideas, which still isn't exhaustive, check out Appendix 8. A word of caution. Power, harm, and corruption. Sam Bankman-Fried founded the cryptocurrency exchange FTX with the stated goal of earning to give. He briefly became the world's richest person under 30 and made large donations to pressing causes. We previously featured him across our site as a positive example of someone pursuing a high-impact career. Sam is now charged with fraud. FTX collapsed into bankruptcy and billions of dollars of customer funds went missing. This has done a lot of harm to individual depositors and society, both through the money lost and the indirect harms of criminal activity. It may have also harmed the reputation of the causes he was supporting and the idea of earning to give in general. For our part, we felt betrayed and shaken when we found out what had happened and ashamed of our past promotion of him. It now seems clear that even if Sam told himself that the rewards justified the risks, that was totally wrong. How might this be relevant to you? Each of the five paths covered in this chapter offers ways to substantially increase the amount that you can contribute to solving a problem. But generally, the greater your ability to contribute the greater your ability to do harm, whether by making a substantial mistake, supporting the wrong issues, or acting unethically. Moreover, as you gain more ability to affect the world, you may face more temptations to act badly. Power corrupts is a cliche for a good reason. This might be hard to imagine if you're at the start of your career, but if you end up in a powerful position in government, running a large organisation, with a degree of fame, or with lots of money, you may face situations where acting ethically will pose a risk of losing the large influence you have like a politician lying to stay in office. This can be true even if you didn't originally seek power for your own benefit. You may also face difficult ethical trade-offs, such as taking roles you think involve an element of harm in order to achieve a potentially greater positive impact. And typically, the more influence you have, the harder it will be for people to disagree with you, because they'll fear the consequences, so you'll become less able to make good decisions just at the point you most need to. Working on problems that are unusually important and neglected also further raises the stakes, because if you slip up, you've set back a more important issue, and the fact that few other people are working on the issue magnifies your potential for harm. One key point is that we don't generally recommend taking jobs or actions you think are harmful for the greater good. We talked about that in the section on earning to give above, but it can come up with whatever approach you choose to take. It's also one reason why we see building good character as an important part of career capital, which is coming up in the next chapter. What's the right approach for you? We've now seen that by thinking broadly, Considering earning to give, communication, research, government and policy, and organisation building, there are many ways to make a big contribution to solving pressing problems. If you want to choose between these broad categories, how might you approach it? What's most crucial is your degree of fit. 
Any of these categories can be an impactful career if you're good at it. Throughout this chapter, there is a vital general principle to bear in mind. The most successful people in a field have far more impact than the typical person. For instance, a landmark study of expert performers found a small percentage of the workers in any given domain is responsible for the bulk of the work. Generally, the top 10% of the most prolific elite can be credited with around 50% of all contributions, whereas the bottom 50% of the least productive workers can claim only 15% of the total work. And the most productive contributor is usually around 100 times more prolific than the least. Just as we saw with choosing a problem, this means the most effective approach for you will be something you enjoy, that motivates you, and is a good fit for your skills. We sometimes come across people tempted to do a job they'd hate in order to have more impact. That's likely a bad idea, since they'll just burn out. Their example could also discourage others from using their careers to do good. An outstanding charity worker will likely do more good than a mediocre engineer earning to give, and the reverse is also true. We cover the importance of personal fit and how to work out which career is best for you in Chapter 8. But don't worry if you feel unsure, that's normal. Finding a career that fits often takes many years. If you're at the start of your career, it's fine to just have some vague ideas about where you're aiming and make them more specific over time. And while personal fit is important, it's also important not to narrow down too early. As we've seen, people often underestimate how easily they can become interested in new jobs. So it's important to explore widely, giving yourself a chance to become interested in new approaches, but then to focus on what's going well. You also don't need to limit yourself to your background so far. 80,000 hours is a long time, and so you have a lot of scope to learn new skills. Putting personal fit aside, note that there is no single best approach for every problem. Rather, focus on the approaches that are most needed by the problems you want to solve. For instance, breast cancer doesn't need more advocacy to promote awareness because almost everybody is aware that breast cancer is a problem. Instead, it probably needs more skilled researchers to develop better treatments. If you just focus on raising awareness, then your efforts won't go as far. Also consider that these approaches are not mutually exclusive, and you can do more than one at the same time. For instance, a teacher helps their students direct impact, but could also develop new educational techniques, research, or tell their students about pressing problems, communication. We know a teacher who did private tutoring in order to donate more. As we've seen, often your impact is more about how you use your position than the position itself. Conclusion. In which job can you help the most? There are many more paths to helping others in your career than we normally talk about. Elton John started as a singer and saved thousands of lives through earning to give. Rosa Parks was a seamstress and helped to trigger the civil rights movement in America through communication and advocacy. Alan Turing was a mathematician who helped to end World War II through research as well as inventing the computer. Most people aren't born rock stars, but even at a normal graduate salary, anyone can have an astonishing impact through earning to give, literally saving hundreds of lives. And it's often possible to do even more through communication, research, government and policy, or building organisations. By expanding the range of options you consider, it's often possible to find a path that's not only higher impact, but also a better fit and more satisfying too. In this way, even if you don't want to be a doctor or a teacher, it's possible to do far more good with your career than is normally thought. Apply this to your own career. Before we move on, make an initial short list of high-impact careers you could work towards in the long run. Here's some ways to generate ideas. 1. Go over each approach in this chapter. Try to generate two to three more specific paths within each that might be a good fit for you and meet your other personal criteria. 2. Take your list of pressing problems from earlier. What do those problems most need? Can you think of any career paths you might be able to take that could help address those needs? 3. See our list of career reviews and note down any other ideas there. 
That's at 80k.info slash CRV. Four, are there any other paths that you're aware of that you might excel at? Or are unique opportunities open only to you? Add them to your list too. Five, imagine your ideal working day, hour by hour. What jobs might fit with that? What job would you do if money were no object? Or if you only had 10 years left to live? Does that give you any other ideas for fulfilling longer-term career paths? The aim at this point is just to come up with more options. We'll explain how to further narrow down in Chapter 8. In generating options, err towards including more rather than less. In particular, we often talk to people who only ever really think about jobs that are closely related to their past experience, and that's often a mistake. For example, you don't need to have studied anything to do with politics in order to work in government and policy. It's often possible to get a job in a new area without specific experience, and even if it takes a couple of years to transition, that can easily be worth it in the context of the rest of your career. This is especially true if you're an undergraduate. What you've studied so far has little bearing on what you might do in the future. Recap of our career guides so far. Back in Chapter 1, we saw that an enjoyable and fulfilling job helps others, is something you're good at, and has the right supportive conditions, for example, engaging work, supportive colleagues, and fit with the rest of your life. We've now also seen that the jobs that most help others, one, are focused on the most pressing problems, those that are big in scale, neglected, and solvable as we covered in Chapter 4. Two, take an approach that might let you make a big contribution, such as research, communication, earning to give, government and policy, and building organisations. That's what we covered in this chapter. And three, provide you with the chance to excel. We'll explain how to work out where you have the best personal fit later on. Should you sacrifice to do more good? People often ask us whether they should sacrifice what they enjoy in order to have a greater impact. But as we discussed above, doing good involves less sacrifice than it first seems. A personally satisfying job involves helping others because that's fulfilling. And a high-impact job will also need to be personally satisfying. Because if you don't like your job, you probably won't be good at it and you'll burn out. So there's a lot of overlap. We've also seen there are lots of ways to have a big impact, and some of these probably won't involve much sacrifice. Rather than making sacrifices, the key thing to focus on is finding these highly effective ways to help. That's not to say there's no trade-off at all. It's unlikely that the very best career for you personally is also the one that most benefits the world. Ultimately, you'll have to make a value judgment about how to weigh helping others against your own interests. But fortunately, the trade-off is less than it first seems. How can I put myself in the best position to get a high-impact job? Some people can just walk into their dream job, one that matches all the criteria above, right away. And if you can do that, go for it. But for many others, you'll need to build your skills, connections, credentials and character what we call career capital. By doing this, you can open up a wider range of options than just those you think you have today. In the next chapter, we'll look at how to build career capital and best position yourself for long-term success. The bottom line, in which career can you help people the most? Once you've chosen a problem, as we covered in the previous article, the next step is to work out how best to contribute to solving it. Think broadly about the paths where you can make the biggest contribution, including research, communications and community building, taking high-earning jobs to donate to charity, government and policy, and organisation building. Focus on the approaches that are most needed in your problem area. Some problems are best solved through changing policy. Others most need research, while others require funding and so on. Ultimately, in the long term, you want to find the option that does best on a combination of 1. How pressing the problem is, 2. How large your contribution will be, 3. Your degree of personal fit, and 4. Fit with your other personal goals. Chapter 7. Which jobs put you in the best long-term position? 
People like to lionize the Mozarts, Malala Yousafzais, and Mark Zuckerbergs of the world, people who achieved great success while young. There are all sorts of awards for young leaders, like the Forbes 30 Under 30. But these stories are interesting precisely because they're the exception. Most people reach the peak of their impact in their middle age. Income usually peaks in the 40s, suggesting that it takes around 20 years for most people to reach their peak productivity. Similarly, experts only reach their peak abilities between age 30 to 60, and if anything, this age is increasing over time. Here's a table. It shows different fields and their age of peak output. For theoretical physics, lyric poetry and pure mathematics, the age of peak output's around 30. For psychology and chemistry, it's around 40. Novel writing, history, philosophy and medicine, around 50. Business, the average age of S&P 500 CEOs is 55. And politics, the average age of a first-term US president is 55. When researchers looked in more detail at these findings, they found that expert-level performance in established fields usually requires 10 to 30 years of focused practice. Kay Anders Eriksson, a leader in this field of research, said after 30 years of research, I have never found a convincing case for anyone developing extraordinary abilities without intense extended practice. For Mozart to succeed so young, he needed to start young. Mozart's father was a famous music teacher and trained him intensely as a toddler. All this may sound like a bit of a downer. Being successful takes a lot of time. But consider the flip side. You can become much more skilled than you are today. Lots of people come to us saying, I'm not sure I have any useful skills to contribute. And that's often true. If you've just graduated, you've probably spent the last four years studying Moby Dick, quantum mechanics and Machiavelli, and your future job is unlikely to involve any of those things. However, Erickson's research also suggests that anyone can improve at most skills with focused practice. Sure, other factors are important too. If you're seven feet tall, it's going to be a lot easier to get good at basketball. But that doesn't mean short people can't improve their game. This means even if you don't feel you have much to contribute now, you can become much more skilled in the future and probably keep improving for decades. This should normally be the top priority early in your career. Why career capital is so important. Chantel wanted to make a difference straight out of university and even managed to land an exciting job as a program manager at a non-profit working to prevent pandemics. But the small team made it tricky to find time to develop her skills and she wasn't able to have the impact she hoped for in the role. After a few months, she was stressed, sleeping badly, and burned out. Chantelle decided to go to graduate school instead. Not only is she enjoying it much more, she also feels like she's learning things that could really support her future career. While it sucks to delay doing something meaningful, it's rare to have a big impact right away. Early in your career, it's more important to ensure you invest in your skills and get the training you need to maximise your long-term impact. This is especially true because it's possible to become far more productive over the course of your career. Consider the potential impact of a scientist, politician, or CEO at the peak of their influence, age 40 to 50, compared to the influence they had as a fresh undergraduate. In our advising, we've seen lots of examples of people becoming far more successful, happy, and capable by investing in themselves, often in surprising areas that they never thought they'd be good at. Focusing on impact too much too early can even be short-sighted, because it can preclude being in an even better position later. This means that for most people, the top priority early in their career is to build what we call career capital. So what is career capital? Five components of career capital. By career capital, we mean anything that puts you in a better position to make a difference or secure a fulfilling career in the future. We normally break it down into the following components, which you can use to compare your options in terms of career capital. Skills and knowledge. What will you learn? How useful will it be? And how fast will you learn? A job will be best for learning when you're pushed to improve and get lots of feedback from mentors and colleagues. Ask yourself, where will I learn fastest? Connections. 
Who will you work with and meet? Will they include potential future collaborators on impactful projects, supportive friends and mentors, people who are influential, or people who will help you expand into new circles? Credentials. We don't just mean formal credentials like having a law degree, but also your achievements and reputation, or anything else that acts as a good signal to future collaborators or employers. If you're a writer, it could be the quality of your blog. If you're a coder, it might be your GitHub. If you're interested in doing good, how can you show you've cultivated that interest? Character. Will this option help you cultivate virtues like generosity, compassion, humility, integrity, honesty, good judgment, and respect of important norms? In particular, will you be able to work alongside people with good character, since that has a huge influence? These traits are vital to being trusted, working with others, and not doing harm. They also determine whether, when faced with a high-stakes decision, you'll be able to do what's best for the world. And runway. How much money will you save in this job? Your runway is how long you could comfortably live with no income. It depends on both your savings and how much you could reduce your expenses by. We recommend aiming for at least six months of runway to maintain your financial security, while 12 to 18 months of runway gives you the flexibility to make a major career change. It's usually worth paying down high-interest debt before donating more than 1% per year or taking a big pay cut for greater impact. How can you get the best career capital? Get good at something useful. If we were going to summarize all our advice on how to get career capital into one line, we'd say, get good at something useful. In other words, gain abilities that are valued in the job market, making it easier to bargain for the ingredients of a fulfilling job, as well as those that are needed in tackling the world's most pressing problems. Once you have valuable skills, you'll also need to learn how to sell those skills to others and make connections. This can involve deliberately gaining credentials, such as by getting degrees or creating public demo projects. Or it can involve what's normally thought of as networking, such as going to conferences or building up a Twitter following. So it's true, all these kinds of activities build your career capital too. But all of these activities become much easier once you have something useful to offer, which is why we put the emphasis on building skills first. Getting good at something useful usually involves a combination of the following four ingredients. One, choose valuable skills to learn. We covered some broad skill types that we think are valuable for doing good in the previous chapter. Organization building, communication and community building, research, earning to give, and government and policy. Two, find skills that are a good fit for you. Those that match your talents and that you can learn fastest, which we'll cover in the next chapter. Three, practice. Getting good at most jobs takes years, if not decades. You shouldn't expect to excel right away. This also makes it vital to find good mentorship to do something you can stick with for a long time. And four, increase your chances of being in the right place at the right time. For example, it's much easier to get to the top of a brand new field that's growing rapidly than an established area like law, since there are far fewer people to compete with. Likewise, being part of the right scene can be a huge factor. So if you've stumbled across a community, person or organisation with momentum, sticking with that may pay off. In short, try to maximise your rate of useful learning. In the next section, we'll cover some concrete types of jobs that people we've worked with have often found useful for improving their career capital. There's also a lot you can do within your existing job to invest in yourself and improve your career capital. We cover it in Appendix 2, which includes advice on building character, networking, saving money, and becoming more generally effective. We also cover how to sell your existing career capital effectively in Chapter 10, on how to get a job. What skills will be most valuable in the future? Thinking of becoming an illustrator, legal clerk, or medical technician? These jobs might soon be gone. 
2020 analysis looked at the effects of three kinds of automation on the labour market over the past few decades. Standard software, robots, and AI. The author found that advances in IT and standard software have reduced the number of people working in highly routine or administrative jobs, while advances in robotics have replaced many manual jobs, but not those requiring social intelligence or creativity. But it's the rapid recent advances in AI, in particular machine learning, which we think could have the biggest impact on your career. To date, machine learning has worked best when you can gather lots of data to train an algorithm on a specific test. So we're already seeing automation in places like running power plants or analysing medical tests. As we saw in Chapter 5, in the last few years, we've seen huge advances in far more general and more creative AI systems. The most advanced AI systems can pass complex academic exams better than most humans, generate extremely realistic images from text, and solve some difficult coding problems. None of this was possible even a year ago. A paper from 2013, which we've written about in the past, speculated that tasks involving creativity would be among the hardest to automate, but generating ideas is one of the strengths of the latest AI systems. For instance, they can generate hundreds of images in the style of Dali crossed with Pollock nearly instantly, or endless ideas for attention-grabbing headlines. The types of tasks that seem hardest to automate likely involve decision-making and problem-solving, for example, choosing from a variety of AI-generated images, especially decisions where it's important for a human, perhaps for legal reasons, to stay in the loop. Social intelligence and relationship building. Difficult motor skills. Robots are lagging behind generative AI systems, so jobs from plumbing to surgery are likely to be least affected, at least for now. And high-level expertise. AI systems are still not as accurate as top human experts within their area of expertise, though it's not clear how long this will last. It's very hard to predict how this will affect the labour market over the next 10 years. The 2020 analysis discussed above argued that jobs between the top 70th percentile and the 99th percentile in terms of income will be most affected by advances in AI and are likely to see lower relative income. The list of jobs most likely to be affected includes chemical engineers, optometrists, and dispatchers. In contrast, the list of the least affected jobs included entertainment performers, food preparation workers, and college instructors. This analysis is just one model, so we shouldn't fully trust it. It's not that the jobs most affected by automation will see reduced employment or income. If each chemical engineer you hire can do the work that two could previously, that could lead to hiring half as many engineers, or it could lead to hiring more engineers, because now each produces twice as much value as before. It all depends on how the economics of the situation works out. What's clearer is that jobs will shift to involve more of the harder-to-automate tasks, and fewer of those that can be done by AI systems. So this means that if you want your skills to stay relevant in the future, focus more on learning the hardest-to-automate skills, perhaps such as the ones above. And also focus heavily on learning how to use AI to augment your productivity. The workers who do best in the future will probably be those most able to make use of AI and automation to solve important problems. Beyond the next 5-10 to years, it becomes near impossible to know what will happen. Ultimately, it seems like AI systems will be able to do basically all jobs better than humans. And who knows how the economy will look at that point. Concrete steps for gaining career capital. Which career capital is best for you to focus on depends on where you're aiming to end up longer term, which we encouraged you to think about in the last chapter. It's worth asking yourself, if I want to end up working in a particular position, what next step would most accelerate me in that path? We'll talk about this more in Chapter 9 on career planning. But it's also worth thinking about which options will most boost your capabilities in general. To help come up with ideas for that, below are some steps that our readers have found to be good for gaining career capital in general. Note down any that could be a good fit for you. You can add these to your list of ideas for next steps that we'll make later in the guide. 1. Work at a growing organisation that has a reputation for high performance in your path. If you've just graduated, you're probably not very good at doing real work. 
In college, you're told to answer well-defined problems with clear answers over short timeframes, which are possible to master. In the world of work, much of the challenge is working out what the problem is in the first place and prioritizing what to work on. Projects don't automatically have well-defined scopes or success criteria. Great performance might not be possible or could take many years. You probably don't know how to do the basics, like run a weekly check-in meeting, read financial statements, give good presentations, or speak to a boss. So, often one of the most useful things you can do after college is to go and work with any high-performing, high-integrity team, where you can be mentored in the highly useful skill of generally getting stuff done at work. If the organization also has a good reputation, then you'll also get the credential of saying you've worked there. And you'll probably be able to meet lots of other ambitious people, building your connections. If it's rapidly growing, you'll have more opportunities for promotions, morale will be better, and your future achievements will be more impressive. It's hard to meet all of these criteria in one job, but they're all worth looking out for. Here are some more considerations in choosing where to work. Should you work in the private sector or at a non-profit? The private sector might actually be a better place to learn productivity because the clear feedback mechanism of profit weeds out ineffective work faster. Our impression is that many conventional non-profits are pretty dysfunctional, which is one reason why non-profit leaders often recommend training up elsewhere. Another big factor is there are far more jobs in the private sector, and the higher pay can help you build up your runway. That said, there are lots of great organizations and teams across all sectors, including nonprofits, government, and academia. Even putting impact aside, working in an organization with a social mission can offer major advantages, such as getting to learn about a pressing global problem, meeting and being around other people who want to do good, and more motivation and meaning. Should you work for a small or large organization? In smaller organizations, you can usually learn a wider variety of skills and potentially get more responsibility faster. Larger organizations are usually more well-known, so offer good credentials for your CV and have roles with lower variance and often have more capacity for training and mentorship. More speculatively, smaller organizations may have better feedback loops between performance and success, while succeeding in large organizations becomes more about navigating politics and bureaucracy, though these can be valuable skills too. If you want to work in the non-profit sector longer term, many of the organizations are small, so working at a smaller organization may give you more relevant skills. However, if you want to work in government and policy, large organizations could be better preparation. What will the people be like? There's a lot of cultural variance between organizations and even between teams within the same organization. If your goal is career capital, you should prioritize working somewhere you'll get good mentoring and feedback on your work. It's hard to learn without good teaching or role models. Likewise, the character of the people you work with will rub off on you. Which concrete options seem best? One option to especially consider is working in a promising tech startup, which can potentially combine many of the benefits above. High-performing teams with strong incentives to produce results, rapid growth, and the opportunity to gain a generalist skill set. If the startup succeeds, you'll also get a good credential and money. Bonus points if you can find a company where you can learn skills relevant to a top global problem. Of course, a lot of startups are terribly run and likely to fail. But you can take steps to increase your chances of working at a good one. Another option to consider is working at top AI labs, such as OpenAI or DeepMind. These are high-performing organizations that can let you learn about and make connections within AI research, while also gaining great backup options. This would ideally be in a role directly working on AI safety or policy, as simply boosting the development of AI capabilities could easily be harmful due to their potential risks. We don't recommend taking harmful roles to gain career capital. However, not all experts agree on the size of those risks. Within the private sector, some options people commonly consider include working in big tech, top financial firms, consulting, which can also let you experience several industries, 
professional services, like working at one of the big four accounting firms, and law. You should eliminate options you think are harmful and focus on those where you might have the best fit. 2. Go to graduate school in carefully chosen subjects. People often drift into expensive graduate programs that don't offer good backup options, even if they're not sure about academia. This is often not a good move. Bilal did a research project in cosmology at the end of his undergraduate degree. Continuing into a PhD just seemed like the natural next step. But once he started his PhD, he concluded that it wouldn't be good at teaching him much except how to do academic cosmology. And he didn't think a career in academic cosmology would be an especially good way for him to make a difference. While it would have been easy to simply continue with the path he was on, he decided to leave early and retrain in a different skill. However, some graduate school programs can boost your career a lot. If we had to pick, the most attractive grad programs might be economics or machine learning PhDs. Almost all economics and machine learning PhDs can get jobs involving economics or machine learning if they want, which is not the case with most doctorate degrees. Machine learning is directly related to one of the world's most pressing problems, risks from artificial intelligence, while economics prepares you to work on a variety of important problems, including AI policy, global priorities research, international development, and many more. You can go from economics into the rest of the social sciences or into important positions in policy. Likewise, machine learning skills can be applied in many other fields of study. And they both have high-earning backup options. Besides economics and machine learning, some other useful subjects to highlight given our list of pressing problems include other applied quantitative subjects like computer science, physics and statistics, security studies, international relations, public policy or law school, particularly for entering government and policy careers, subfields of biology relevant to pandemic prevention like synthetic biology, mathematical biology, virology, immunology, pharmacology or vaccinology, and studying China or another emerging global power like India or Russia. Of course, many people should study options that aren't on this list. For instance, we've written about how we'd like to see more of our readers study history, and many of the team at 80,000 Hours have a background in philosophy. However, these subjects are more competitive and have worse backup options, so require a higher degree of personal fit. And other options can make sense depending on your situation, for example, doing an MBA if you're in the corporate sector. Which subjects are best also depends on your longer-term career goals. We aim to discuss which kinds of graduate study are most useful to particular longer-term paths within our career reviews and problem profiles. See appendices 8 and 9 for summaries. How can you compare graduate subjects? Weigh up your options in terms of personal fit. Will you be good at the subject? If you're good at the area, it's more likely you'll be able to pursue work in that area later on. You'll enjoy it more, and you'll do the work more quickly. Flexibility. Does it open up lots of options, both inside and outside academia? If you're uncertain about academia, watch out for programs that mainly help you with academic careers, for example, philosophy PhD or literature PhD. And if you do a maths PhD, you can transfer into economics, physics, biology, computer science, and so on, but the reverse is not true. Also, some graduate programs give you better odds of landing academic positions. For example, more than 90% of economists can get research positions, whereas only about 50% of biology PhDs do. Relevance to your long-term plans. Does it take you towards the options you're most interested in? Lots of people are tempted to do graduate study even when it doesn't particularly help with their longer-term plans. For instance, potential entrepreneurs are tempted to do MBAs when they're not particularly helpful to entrepreneurship. Lots of people are tempted to do a random master's degree when they're not sure what to do. Some people consider doing a law degree when they're not confident they want to be a lawyer. Which programs are best within a subject? There's a huge amount of variation between schools and specific programs within a subject. Pay attention to Will you get good mentorship? Learning how to do good research is a craft that gets passed down mainly via hands-on training. So this is vital. 
getting good mentorship helps hugely with motivation and your future opportunities in academia. It often comes down to the specific person you'll be working with and your fit with them. Will the particular university be an environment where you can flourish? For example, in terms of location and culture? What's the reputation of the professor and university? Your supervisor's reputation in the field will impact your future opportunities in academia. Being at a well-known university is useful for opportunities outside of academia, for example, as a communicator or in policy. And will you get funding? It could easily be better to do a subject you think offers fewer options in general if you find a particular opportunity that's strong in these criteria. Should you do graduate study? It's not a decision to be taken lightly. In particular, PhD programs are often demoralising and people doing them often struggle with mental health or don't complete them. And master's degrees can cost a lot of money. Both take substantial time. It's also not a question we can answer in the abstract. It depends on your other options. For now, if any graduate school options seem plausible, add them to your list of ideas for next steps. Then later in the guide, we'll come back to narrowing them down. Or if you want to think about it now, you could compare graduate schools to your best other options using our career decision process in Appendix 4. Example, Dylan couldn't imagine studying anything except philosophy. Then he found out about the research that shows our interests can easily change. Convinced, he decided to try out economics and computer science as minor courses, because he thought these would open up more options in philosophy. He liked them more than he expected, and is now doing a PhD in economics. 3. Take an entry-level route into policy careers. Tom Khalil spent 16 years working for the Clinton and Obama administrations. He worked to foster the development of the internet, then nanotechnology, and then cutting-edge brain modelling, among other things. But the way he first got involved was his decision to volunteer for Michael Dukakis's campaign for the presidency in 1988. Dukakis lost, but some of the people Khalil worked for also wound up working for Bill Clinton in 1992. And Clinton won. As we saw in the previous chapter, careers in government and policy can be very high impact. There's also a very wide range of roles in this area, which often share common entry routes. This means these entry routes can open up a lot of impactful options, while potentially also giving you a general professional training, knowledge and connections in the policy world, and credentials. The options differ slightly depending on the country you're in. We focus on the US here because it's the country where we have the largest number of readers. But there are often similar options available in other countries, and we highlight a few. Executive Branch Fellowships and Leadership Schemes like the President Management Fellowship in the US or the Civil Service Fast Stream in the UK, among other possibilities. There are other options in the US depending on your background, the AAAS Fellowship for people with science PhDs or engineering masters, or the Tech Congress Fellowship for mid-career tech professionals. If you're a STEM graduate, also consider the National Security Innovation Network's Technology and National Security Fellowship. These are especially good options if you want to work anywhere in the policy world or social sector. Working for a politician, for example, as a researcher or staffer is often the first step into political and policy positions. It's also demanding, prestigious, and gives you lots of connections. Our impression is that the very top staffers often have graduate degrees, sometimes including degrees from top law schools. From this path, it's also common to move into the executive branch or to seek elected office. Working on a political campaign. Some of the top people who work on winning campaigns eventually get high-impact positions in the executive branch. This is a high-risk strategy. It only pays off if your candidate wins. And even then, not everybody on the campaign staff will get influential jobs or jobs in the areas they care about. Running for office yourself involves a similar high-risk, high-reward dynamic. Think tank research roles. These can help you learn about social issues, are reasonably prestigious, and open up options in policy and the social sector. And entry-level roles in the executive branch. 
In the US, you could take an entry-level role as a federal employee, ideally working on something relevant to a problem you want to help solve. Elsewhere, look for relevant entry-level roles in the executive branch, like the UK civil service. As with all options, whether these roles are a good option for building career capital depends on the specific job and the people you'll be working with. Will you get good mentorship? What's their reputation in the field? Do they have good character? Does their policy agenda seem positive? Will the culture be a good fit for you? Some people we know have entered promising policy positions, but later felt like the culture was a terrible fit for them. There's also a risk of doing harm if you get things wrong. So it's important to think about each specific opportunity, whether it's a job, a degree, or something else, and think carefully about your fit. 4. Develop a useful skill. Any option that gives you a provable, useful, transferable skill can be a good move. Some concrete options here include, in no specific order, software engineering. We know lots of people who started with no technology background and within six months ended up with highly paid programming jobs they enjoy far more than their old jobs. Programming is also an in-demand skill that can be used in many areas, including on some of our top problems. Even if you don't have much background in software engineering, or even a quantitative background, it's often possible to learn rapidly through self-study or programming boot camps, which can take you from zero experience to having a job in six to 12 months. Machine learning, or ML, and applied AI. ML will probably continue to be increasingly relevant to the world over the next few decades as AI becomes more widely applied. So besides preparing you to work on reducing risks from AI, you'll be able to apply ML to many other pressing problems and likely earn over $100,000 a year. If you're currently at college, you might be able to take an ML course even if you're not majoring in computer science. Or if you want to self-study, we list some places you might start in Appendix 7. Management, a skill that increasingly becomes required in a very wide range of positions as you move further along your career whether it's managing people, long and complex projects, or both. There are lots of ways to become better as a manager. Most importantly, find ways to start managing on a small scale. Ideally, work under a great manager or find a mentor or coach who is, and then regularly check in with them about what is and isn't working. Make sure to collect feedback from the people you manage. There are also lots of concrete habits and processes that can make you better as a manager, which you can practice applying while doing the above. To learn more, we have a list of resources in Appendix 7. Information security. Protecting organizations from cyber attacks that could compromise their mission, data, or assets. Some organizations need help protecting information that could be hugely dangerous if it was known more widely, such as harmful genetic sequences or powerful AI technology. Breaches in areas like these could have disastrous consequences, which makes information security a great option for people who want to have a high-impact career. And because it's an in-demand skill with high salaries, it provides great backup options. Data science and applied statistics. Data science is a cross between statistics and programming. The boot camps are a similar deal to programming, although they tend to mainly recruit science PhDs. If you've just done a science PhD and don't want to continue with academia, this is a good option to consider, but we'd probably recommend ruling out programming first. Similarly, you can learn data analysis, statistics, and modeling by taking the right graduate program, as discussed above. Marketing. Learning to market toilet paper doesn't seem like the most socially motivated option, but almost all types of organizations need marketing, and demand for the skill is growing. You can learn the skill set, then transfer into an organization with a social mission. Failing that, you'll have a lot of backup options, and you could earn to give instead. You can learn marketing skills by taking an entry-level position at a top firm, or working under a good mentor in a business. We'd especially recommend focusing on the style of marketing that's more data and technology-driven, rather than traditional creative advertising. Sales and Negotiation Similar to marketing and management, sales skills can be hugely useful, whatever your job. 
and whether or not it has sales in the title. If you want to hire people, promote an important cause, rent an office, get a job, or do almost anything, you'll need to sell. Sales can feel adversarial, like you're trying to persuade people to do something against their interest. But the best kind of sales is collaborative. It's about finding ways to meet the needs of both parties. Much of good selling comes from genuinely trying to benefit and build good relationships with people. We'll give you some practical advice on how to build connections in Appendix 2, and a list of some of the best resources we've found to develop these skills in Appendix 7. And develop expertise in China or another important emerging economy. China has grown rapidly into an important global power, and is increasingly an important player in many of our top global problems, as well as the economy more broadly. However, very few people outside China have much knowledge of it. For these reasons, becoming a China specialist may be a very impactful career path, especially with a focus on global catastrophic risks. Knowledge of China could also open up other positions in business and policy, with the caveat that recent tension between the US and China could mean that spending significant time in China could exclude you from certain government positions in other countries. You can make a similar case about India, and to a lesser extent about Russia, the Arabic world, and Brazil. 5. Do anything where you might excel, even if it's a bit random. We came across someone who had a significant chance of becoming a magician and maybe landing a national TV show in India, and was deciding between that and... consulting. It seemed to us that the magician path was more exciting, since the skills and connections within media would be more unusual and valuable for work on the world's most pressing problems than those of another consultant. A common mistake is to think that building career capital always means doing something that gives you formal credentials, like a law degree, or is prestigious, like consulting. It's easy to focus on hard aspects of career capital, like having a well-known employer, because they're concrete. But the soft aspects of career capital, your skills, achievements, connections, and reputation, are equally important, if not more so. The very best career capital comes from impressive achievements. You can build these soft aspects of career capital in almost any job if you perform well. Doing great work builds your reputation, and that allows you to make connections with other high achievers. If you push yourself to do great work, then you'll probably learn more too. This is why doing something less conventional, like starting a new organisation, can sometimes be the best path for career capital. If you succeed, it'll be impressive. But even if you don't succeed, you'll learn a lot and meet interesting people. Doing anything that will give you a concretely visible project that seems impressive can also be helpful, such as writing a successful blog or doing a project that appears in the media. For someone who wants to make a difference, it can even be worth doing something that seems a bit random, if you're going to be great at it. Earlier in the guide, we talked about how it's possible to have a big impact through communication, community building, and donations. This means that excelling at almost any path can set you up to have a big impact since it'll give you connections, influence, money, and credibility, which can be used to support pressing problems. So if you want to build career capital, it's worth considering any area where you have a good fit, even if it doesn't seem like a good option in general. Bodybuilding isn't usually how to advance your career, but Arnie made it work. 6. Do what contributes. When I, Benjamin, founded 80,000 Hours, we hadn't yet come up with the concept of career capital. But if we had, it's likely I would have concluded working in finance would have been better career capital than starting a non-profit. But I think that would have been a mistake. I gained better career capital from working at 80,000 hours because I learned more, achieved more, and met great people. Learning by doing is often the most effective way to learn. Most people can't see a route to having a significant positive impact right at the start of their career. But if you do, just pursuing that might well be your best option for career capital. This could look like joining a startup social impact project you think could succeed over 5 to 10 years, 
or it could mean directly entering one of the career paths you think are most impactful. If you succeed, it'll be impressive, benefiting your career capital. And if you're someone who cares about doing good, you'll probably find it more motivating to work on something meaningful, making you more likely to succeed. In addition, if you want to tackle pressing global problems, then at some point you need to learn about those problems and meet others who want to work on them too. This is usually easier to do if you work in those areas than if you, for instance, work in a random corporate job. And of course, you might have a positive impact. Although career capital should probably be your top priority early on, any positive impact you can have early in your career matters too. All these pros can make up for other weaknesses of this path. For example, often you'll receive less training. Whether to take the plunge and try to do something impactful early on is a difficult decision. It will depend on the chances of success of the project, who you'll be working with, what kind of training you might get, and so on. But if you can see a way to significantly help with one of the most pressing global problems right away, it's certainly worth considering, even just from the perspective of gaining useful skills, achievements, and connections. As we saw in the chapter on job satisfaction, doing what contributes is a good strategy both for helping others and being personally satisfied. But also, if you try to do what's most important for the world, it can sometimes be the best strategy for career capital too. Transferable versus specialist career capital. One trade-off you might face is between the following two types of career capital. Transferable career capital is relevant in lots of different options. For example, social skills, productivity and management skills, which are needed by almost every organisation, or achievements that are widely recognised as impressive. Specialist career capital prepares you for a narrow range of paths, like knowledge of malaria or information security. Which should you focus on? All else equal, when you're earlier in your career, you should focus more on transferable career capital. At the start of your career, you're more uncertain about what's best, so it's more useful to have flexibility. And more generally, the more uncertain you are about what roles you want in the longer term, the more you should focus on transferable career capital. Unfortunately, however, all else is often not equal. While specialist career capital gives you fewer options, it's often necessary to enter the most impactful jobs, so it's still probably worth focusing on at some point. Should you wait to have an impact? If you could work as an AI safety engineer today, should you still do a PhD to try to open up potential research positions you think might be higher impact? If you do the PhD, not only do you give up the impact you would have had early on, you're also delaying your impact further into the future. Most researchers on this topic agree that, all else being equal, it's better to put resources towards fixing the world's most pressing problems sooner rather than later. For instance, once transformative AI systems have been built, your work might be too late. Moreover, in the meantime, there's a risk you could give up on trying to have an impact, and informal polls suggest the annual risk of this might be quite high. This means the boost in career capital you gain from doing a PhD needs to be substantially more than the career capital you'd gain as someone working directly on AI safety, say a software engineer in a safety team, to be worth those costs. But often it is worth it. It's not out of the question that you could have twice as much impact as a researcher than a software engineer. And as we saw above, it's plausible that some people become 10 times more productive over their career by gaining particularly good career capital. We have seen people take on projects they weren't equipped for early in their careers, like starting a new non-profit, when they would have been better off getting some good mentorship in a well-respected firm. So while gaining career capital should be a significant priority for most people early in their careers, as your career progresses it becomes harder to strike the right balance between impact and career capital. Ultimately, getting this balance right will often come down to the quality of the opportunities you've found as well as your beliefs about the urgency of global problems, and how old you are. The earlier you gain career capital, the longer you have to use it. How can you get career capital in any job? You don't need to change jobs to build career capital. Just as you can have an impact in any job through donations or advocacy, 
You can build career capital in any job if you use your time well. We'll explain how in Appendix 2. Conclusion You may not be sure how to best contribute today, and you may suspect that you have few valuable skills. But that's fine. Although we like stories of people who achieved apparently instant fame and early success, like the Forbes 30 Under 30, they're not the norm. Besides those who just got lucky, behind most great achievements are many years spent diligently building expertise. We've seen people transform their careers by doing things like learning to program, being mentored by the right boss, and going to the right graduate school. If you build valuable career capital, then you'll be able to have a more impactful, satisfying career too. We've now explored which options to aim for long-term and how to work towards them. In the next chapter, we'll explain how to narrow them down. Apply this to your own career. 1. Given the longer-term paths you'd most like to take, what steps might most accelerate you toward them? 2. Go over all the six paths to career capital and ways to gain career capital in any job, and note down the three next steps you could take to gain career capital. A few ideas to get you started. Can you think of any opportunities to work at a high-performance growing organisation? Do any graduate study options make sense? Are there any options in policy to consider? Can you do something where you can learn a useful, transferable skill? Is there an option where you might achieve something impressive? And could you make a contribution right away? 3. What's the most valuable career capital you already have? Identifying this can give you clues about what you'll be best at and help you convince employers to hire you. Review each of the categories. Skills and knowledge, connections, credentials, character, and runway. If you're stuck, list out two to five achievements you're most proud of and ask yourself what they have in common. We've now explored which options to aim for long-term and how to work towards them. In the next chapter, we'll explain how to narrow them down. The bottom line. Which jobs put you in the best position for the future? Career capital is anything that puts you in a better position to make a difference in the future, including skills, connections, credentials, character, and financial runway. To get career capital, we suggest getting good at something useful. To do that, you need to focus on learning valuable skills, learn skills that are a good fit for you, practice for many years with good mentorship, and increase your chances of being in the right place at the right time, for example, by working in new and rapidly growing fields. Gaining career capital, especially early in your career, is vital, because it's what will allow you to become far more productive over your life. In your first couple of jobs, it's rare to have a big impact, and typically gaining career capital should be a greater priority. Here are some common routes to gaining career capital, which can help you get ideas for next steps. Working with organisations or people that have a reputation for high performance in your field. We often highlight jobs in technology startups or top AI labs, but you can find good teams and organisations in any sector. Undertaking certain graduate studies, especially subjects relevant to our priority paths like economics, machine learning or synthetic biology, that provide good backup options outside of academia. Taking entry routes into policy careers, such as certain congressional staffer positions, joining a congressional campaign, or working in certain executive branch positions. Doing jobs that build useful skills for working on a pressing problem and also provide good backup options, such as management, software engineering, data science, information security, knowledge of China or other emerging economies, or marketing. Taking opportunities that allow you to achieve anything impressive. For example, founding an organization, anything where you might excel or reach the top of a field. And if you're fortunate enough to do something with significant positive impact in the next five years, that can often be a great choice. Not only is it impressive, but it also gives you connections and skills that are highly relevant to solving the problem you're working on. While career capital is usually the top priority in your first couple of jobs, 
After that, it becomes difficult to know how much to prioritise career capital versus impact. It depends on the specific opportunities in question. Likewise, the question of how much to prioritise specialist versus transferable career capital depends on the circumstances. There are also lots of ways to gain career capital within your existing job, which we cover in Appendix 2. Chapter 8. How to find the right career for you. Everyone says it's important to find a job you're good at, but no one tells you how. The standard advice is to think about it for weeks and weeks until you discover your talent. To help, career advisors give you quizzes about your interests and preferences. Others recommend you go on a gap year, reflect deeply, imagine different options, and try to figure out what truly motivates you. But as we saw in the last chapter, becoming really good at most things takes decades of practice. So to a large degree, your abilities are built rather than discovered. Darwin, Lincoln, and Oprah all failed early in their careers, then went on to completely dominate their fields. Albert Einstein's 1895 schoolmaster's report reads, It will never amount to anything. Asking, what am I good at, needlessly narrows your options. It's better to ask, what could I become good at? That aside, the bigger problem is that these methods aren't reliable. Plenty of research shows that while it's possible to predict what you'll be good at ahead of time, it's difficult. Just going with your gut is particularly unreliable, and it turns out career tests don't work very well either. Instead, you should be prepared to think like a scientist. Learn about and try out your options, looking outwards rather than inwards. Here we'll explain why and how. Being good at your job is more important than you think. Everyone agrees that it's important to find a job you're good at. But we think it's even more important than most people think, especially if you care about social impact. First, the most successful people in a field account for a disproportionately large fraction of the impact. A landmark study of expert performance found that a small percentage of the workers in any given domain is responsible for the bulk of the work. Generally, the top 10% of the most prolific elite can be credited with around 50% of all contributions, whereas the bottom 50% of the least productive workers can claim only 15% of the total work. And the most productive contributor is usually about 100 times more prolific than the least. So, if you were to plot degrees of success on a graph, it would look like this. Here's a graph with workers in a field in order of success on the x-axis and the level of success on the y-axis. It's the same spiked shape as the graph we've seen several times before in this guide. In the chapter on high-impact jobs, we saw this in action with areas like research and advocacy. In research, for instance, the top 0.1% of papers receive 1,000 times more citations than the median. These are areas where the outcomes are particularly skewed, but our review of the evidence suggests that the best people in almost any field have significantly more output than the typical person. The more complex the domain, the more significant the effect, so it's especially noticeable in jobs like research, software engineering, and entrepreneurship. Now, some of these differences are just due to luck. Even if everyone were an equally good fit, there could still be big differences in outcomes just because some people happen to get lucky while others don't. However, some component is almost certainly due to skill. This means that you'll have much more impact if you choose an area where you enjoy the work and have good personal fit. Second, as we argued, being successful in your field gives you more career capital. This sounds obvious, but can be a big deal. Generally, being known as a person who gets shit done and is great at what they do can open all sorts of often surprising opportunities. For example, many organisations will hire someone without experience of their area, if that person has done something impressive elsewhere. For example, many AI companies have hired people without a background in AI. Charity and company board members are often successful people recruited from other fields. Or you might meet someone in another field who admires your work and wants to work together. Moreover, being successful in any field, even if it seems a bit random, 
gives you influence, money, and connections, which, as we've also covered, can be used to promote all sorts of good causes, even those unrelated to your field. Example, Isabel Bermaki started out as a fashion model, but after speaking to experts who said nuclear energy was needed to tackle climate change, she pivoted to using her social media following to promote it. Becoming a fashion model isn't normally one of our recommendations, but it could still be the right choice if your fit is high enough. Third, being good at your job and gaining a sense of mastery is a vital component of being satisfied in your work. We covered this in the first chapter. All this is why personal fit is one of the key factors to look for in a job. We think of personal fit as your chances of excelling at a job if you work at it. If we put together everything we've covered so far in the guide, this would be our formula for a perfect job. Career capital, that's skills, connections, and credentials, plus impact, that's pressing problem and the right method, plus supportive conditions, that's engaging work, colleagues, basic needs, and fit with the rest of your life, all added together, then multiplied by personal fit. You can use these factors to make side-by-side comparisons of different career options. Learn more about how to do this in Appendix 4. Personal fit is like a multiplier of everything else, which means it's probably more important than the other three factors. So we'd never recommend taking a high-impact job that you'd be bad at. But how can you figure out where you'll have the best personal fit? Hopefully you have some rough ideas for long-term options from earlier in the guide. Now we'll explain how to narrow them down and find the right career for you. Why introspection, going with your gut, and career tests don't work. Performance is hard to predict ahead of time. When thinking about which career to take, our first instinct is often to turn inwards rather than outwards. Go with your gut or follow your heart. People we advise often spend days agonizing over which options seem best, trying to figure it out from the armchair or through introspection. These approaches assume you can easily work out what you're going to be good at ahead of time. But in fact, you can't. Here's the best study we've been able to find so far on how to predict performance in different jobs over the next couple of years. It's a meta-analysis of selection tests used by employers, drawing on hundreds of studies performed over 100 years. Here are some of the results. Here's a table with types of selection tests and correlation with job performance as an R value. IQ tests, 0.65. Interviews, structured, 0.58. Interviews, unstructured, 0.58. Peer ratings, 0.49. Job knowledge tests, 0.48. Integrity tests, 0.46. Job tryout procedure, 0.44. GPA 0.34, work sample tests 0.33, Holland type match 0.31, job experience in years 0.16, years of education 0.10, graphology 0.02, and age 0.00. Almost all of these tests are fairly bad. A correlation of 0.6 is pretty weak, and the accuracy for longer term predictions is probably even worse. So even if you try to predict using the best available techniques, you're going to be wrong much of the time. Candidates that look bad will often turn out good and vice versa. Anyone who's hired people before will tell you that's exactly what happens. And there is some systematic evidence for this. And because hiring is so expensive, employers really want to pick the best candidates. They also know exactly what the job requires. If even they find it really hard to figure out in advance who's going to perform best, you probably don't have much chance. Don't go with your gut. If you were to try to predict performance in advance, going with your gut isn't the best way to do it. Research in the science of decision-making collected over several decades shows that intuitive decision-making only works in certain circumstances. For instance, your gut instinct can tell you very rapidly if someone is angry with you. 
This is because our brain is biologically wired to rapidly warn us when in danger and to fit in socially. Your gut can also be amazingly accurate when trained. Chess masters have an astonishingly good intuition for the best moves. This is because they've trained their intuition by playing lots of similar games and built up a sense of what works and what doesn't. However, gut decision-making is poor when it comes to working out things like how fast a business will grow, who will win a football match, and what grades a student will receive. Earlier, we also saw that our intuition is poor at working out what will make us happy. This is all because our untrained gut instinct makes lots of mistakes, and in these situations it's hard to train it to do better. Career decision-making is more like these examples than being a chess grandmaster. It's hard to train our gut instinct when, one, the results of our decisions take a long time to arrive, two, we have few opportunities to practice, and three, the situation keeps changing. This is exactly the situation with career choices. We only make a couple of major career decisions in our life. It takes years to see the results, and the job market keeps changing. Your gut can still give you clues about the best career. It can tell you things like, I don't trust this person, or I'm not excited by this project. But you can't simply go with your gut. Why career tests also don't work. Many career tests are built on Holland types or something similar. These tests classify you as one of six interest types, like artistic or enterprising. Then they recommend careers that match that type. However, we can see from the table above that Holland type match is only weakly correlated with performance. It's also only weakly correlated with job satisfaction. Studies find correlations of around 0.1 to 0.3. So that's why we don't pay much attention to traditional career tests. What does work in predicting where you'll excel, according to the research? In the table above, interviews rank near the top, which suggests the following method. Talk to people who have experience recruiting in the field and ask them how you'd stack up compared to other candidates. This makes a lot of sense. Experts are probably pretty good at making this sort of judgment call. The cluster of job tryout procedures, job knowledge tests, and work samples also do well. And that suggests another intuitive method. Try to get as close to actually doing the work as possible, and then see how that goes. We talk about some ways to do that below. Surprisingly, IQ tests correlate the most. But they're not so useful for helping you figure out which kind of job is the best fit for you relative to other jobs. And that's setting aside the question of what IQ tests actually measure. All this said, it's important to keep in mind that none of these methods work that well. It's just hard to say where you might be able to excel or not in the future. And this means you should keep an open mind and give yourself the benefit of the doubt. You probably have more options than it first seems. And ultimately, the only way to find out is to take the plunge and actually try things. How can you find a job that fits? Think like a scientist. If it's hard to predict where you'll perform best ahead of time, and going with your gut intuition doesn't work, then we need to take an empirical approach. One, make some best guesses, hypotheses, about which options seem best. Two, identify your key uncertainties about those hypotheses. And three, go and investigate those uncertainties. And even when your investigation is complete and you start a job, that too is another experiment. After you've tried the job for a couple of years, update your best guesses and repeat. Finding the right career for you isn't something you'll figure out right away. It's a step-by-step process of coming to better and better answers over time. Here are some more tips on each stage. Make a big list of options. The cost of accidentally ruling out a great option too early is much greater than the cost of investigating it further, so it's important to start broad. And since it's so hard to predict where you'll excel, that also means it's hard to rule out lots of paths. 
This can also help you avoid one of the biggest decision-making biases, considering too few options. We've met lots of people who stumbled into paths like PhDs, medicine, or law school because those options felt like the default at the time. But if they'd considered more options, they could easily have found something that fit them better. We also meet a lot of people who think they need to stick narrowly to their recent experience. For example, they might think that because they studied biology, they should mainly look for jobs that involve biology. But what major you studied rarely matters that much. So start by making a long list of options, longer than your first inclination. We'll talk more about how to do this in Chapter 9. Figure out your key uncertainties. You don't have time to try or investigate every job, so you need to narrow down the field. To start, just make some rough guesses. Roughly rank your options in terms of personal fit, impact, and supportive conditions for job satisfaction. Plus career capital if you're comparing next steps rather than longer-term paths. Then ask yourself, what are my most important uncertainties about this ranking? In other words, if you could get the answers to just a few questions, which questions would tell you the most about which options should be top? People often find the most important questions are pretty simple things, like, one, if I applied to this job, would I get in? Two, would I enjoy this aspect of the job? Three, would the pay be high enough given my student loans? And four, what's the day-to-day routine actually like? We have some more tips on how to predict your fit below. Do cheap tests first. Now that you have a list of uncertainties, try to resolve them. Start with the easiest and quickest ways to gain information first. We often find people who want to, say, try out economics, so they apply for a master's program. But that's a huge investment. Instead, think about how you can learn more with the least possible effort. Cheap tests. In particular, consider how you might be able to eliminate your top option. Or consider what you might need to find out to move a different option to the top slot. When investigating a specific option, you can think of creating a ladder of tests. After each step, re-evaluate whether the option still seems promising, best, or if you can skip the remaining steps and move on to investigate another option. One such ladder might look like this. 1. Read our relevant career reviews, all our research on a given topic, and do some Google searches to learn the basics. 1 to 2 hours. 2. Speak to someone in the area. 2 hours. 3. Speak to three more people who work in the area and read one or two books. 20 hours. 4. Consider using some of the additional approaches to predicting success below. 5. Given your findings in the previous steps, look for a relevant project that might take one to four weeks of work, like applying to jobs, volunteering in a related role, or doing a side project in the area, to see what it's like and how you perform. And 6. Only then consider taking a two to 24-month commitment, like a work placement, internship, or graduate study. Being offered a trial position with an organisation for a couple of months can be ideal because both you and the organisation want to quickly assess your fit. If you're choosing which restaurant to eat at, the stakes aren't high enough to warrant much research. But a career decision will influence decades of your life, so it could easily be worth weeks or months of work to make sure you get it right. Try something and iterate. You'll never be certain about which option is best, and even worse, you may never even feel confident in your best guess. So when should you stop your research and try something? Here's a simple answer. When your best guess stops changing. If you keep investigating but your answers aren't changing, then the chances are you've hit diminishing returns and you should just try something. Of course, some decisions are harder to reverse or higher stakes than others. For example, going to medical school. So all else equal, the bigger the decision, the more time you should spend investigating and the more stable you want your answers to be. Once you take the plunge and start a job, 
it helps to remember that even this is just an experiment. In most cases, if you try something for a couple of years and it doesn't work out, you can try something else. With each step you take, you'll learn more about what fits you best. Advanced. What are the best ways to predict career fit, according to the research? Our key advice on predicting fit is to define your key uncertainties and go investigate them in whatever way seems most helpful. But it's also true that, based on the research and our experience, some approaches to predicting fit seem better than others. You can use these prompts to better target your efforts to gain information and to make better guesses before you start doing lots of investigation. 1. What is a job actually like? We often meet people who speculate on their fit for, say, working in government, but have little idea what civil servants actually do. Before you go any further, try to get the basics down. Can you describe what a typical day might look like? What tasks create value in the job? What does it take to do them well? 2. What do experts say? If you can, ask people experienced in the field about how well you'd perform, especially people with experience recruiting for the job in question. But be careful. Don't put too much weight on a single person's view and try to find people who are likely to be honest with you. 3. What's been working for you so far? One simple method to predict your success is to project forward your track record. If you've been succeeding in a path, that's normally a good reason to continue. You can also try to use your track record to make more precise estimates of your chances. For instance, if you're at grad school, roughly the top half of your class will go into academia. So if you're in the top 25% of your class at grad school, you could roughly guess you'll be in the top 50% of academia. To get a better sense of your potential over the long term, you should try to look at your rate of improvement rather than just recent performance. 4. What drives success in the area, and how do you stack up? Your answers to steps 1 to 3 give you a starting point, but then you can modify that up or down depending on specific factors that could increase or decrease your chance of success. The aim is to develop a model of what's needed for success. You can try to do this by asking people in the field about what's most needed, and trying to understand what causes people to succeed or not. Then try to assess how you stack up on these predictors. This is how good job interviews work. They try to identify the traits most important for the job and then ask you about evidence that you've displayed those traits in the past. 5. Does the job match your strengths? One useful way to find your strengths is to look for activities that don't feel like work to you, but do for most people. We have an article with an evidence-driven process to assess your personal strengths. 6. Do you feel excited about it? Gut-level motivation isn't a reliable predictor of success. But if you don't feel motivated, you probably won't be able to put in the effort you'd need to to perform well. So a lack of excitement should definitely give you pause. It might be worth exploring what precisely you find uninspiring. 7. Will you enjoy it? This matters even if you mainly care about social impact. To stick with any career for long enough to make a difference, it'll need to be reasonably enjoyable and fit with the rest of your life. For example, if you want a family, you'll probably want a job without extreme working hours. And 8. Combine all these perspectives. Predicting career success is hard, and there's no single approach that's reliable. So it's useful to consider all of the perspectives above and focus on options that seem good from several of them. See our individual career reviews in Appendix 8 for more advice on how to assess your fit with a specific job. Making good predictions in general is difficult, but it's also very useful if your aim is to do good. So we also have an article on how to get better at making decisions and predicting the future. How much should you explore in your career? Suppose you've decided to try a job for a few years. You now face a trade-off. Should you stick with it or quit with the hope of finding something better? Many successful people explored a lot early in their career. 
Tony Blair worked as a rock music promoter before going into politics. Maya Angelou worked as a cable car conductor, a cook and a calypso dancer before she switched into writing and activism. While Steve Jobs even spent a year in India on acid and considered moving to Japan to become a Zen monk. That's some serious exploration. Examples of people who specialised early, like Tiger Woods, often stand out to us, but it doesn't seem necessary to specialise that early, and it's probably not even the norm. In the book Range, Why Generalists Triumph in a Specialised World, David Epstein argues that most people try several paths, and that athletes who try several sports before settling on one tend to be more successful, holding up Roger Federer as a foil to Tiger. A 2018 study in Nature found that hot streaks among creatives and scientists tended to follow periods of exploring several areas. And today it's widely accepted that many people will work in several sectors and roles across their lifetime. A typical 25 to 34-year-old changes jobs every three years, and changes are not uncommon later, too. And if personal fit is as important as we've argued, it could be worth spending many years finding the job that's best for you. But of course, exploring is also costly. Changing career paths can take years, and if you do it too often, it can look flaky. Also, some paths can be hard to re-enter once you've left them. Steve Jobs liked to say that you should never settle. But that's not realistic advice. The real question is how to balance the costs of exploration with the benefits. Fortunately, there's been plenty of research in decision science, computer science, and psychology about this question. We interviewed Brian Christian, author of Algorithms to Live By, The Computer Science of Human Decisions, about how to summarise this research. These are some of the key findings. Explore more when you're young. Everyone agrees that the earlier you are in your career, the more exploratory you should be. This is because the earlier you discover a better option, the longer you have to take advantage of it. If you discover a great new career at age 66 and retire at age 67, you've only benefited for one year. But if you discover something new at age 25, you may have decades to enjoy it. In addition, early on you know relatively little about your strengths and options, so you learn a lot more from trying things. Society is also structured to make it easier for younger people to explore. For instance, many internships are only available to people who are still at college, so the costs of trying other paths are also lower when younger. Consider trying several paths with careful ordering. One exploration strategy is to try several paths and then commit to whichever seems best at the end. This is similar to the solution to the anachronistically named secretary problem in computer science, which is about how long to spend searching for the best candidate to hire from a pool of applicants. This strategy is most suitable while an undergraduate or in your first couple of jobs, when exploration is easiest and most valuable, and when your uncertainties are greatest. The main downside of this strategy is that it's costly to try out several paths. However, it's often possible to reduce the costs significantly by carefully ordering your options. For example, you can try out a surprising number of paths between undergraduate and graduate school, during summer breaks, or by putting more reversible options first. Here's some more detail about how to order your next steps. One. Explore before graduate school rather than after, and put other reversible options first. In the couple of years right after you graduate, you're not expected to have your career figured out right away. Generally, you have license to try out something more unusual like starting a business, living abroad, or working at a non-profit. If it doesn't go well, you can use the graduate school reset. Do a master's, MBA, law degree, or PhD, which lets you return to a standard path. We see lots of people rushing into graduate school or other conventional options right after they graduate, which makes them miss one of their best opportunities to explore. It's especially worth exploring before a PhD rather than after. At the end of a PhD, it's hard to leave academia. This is because going from a PhD to a postdoc and then into a permanent academic position 
you're unlikely to succeed if you don't focus 100% on research. So if you're unsure about academia, try out alternatives before your PhD if possible. Similarly, it's easier to go from a position in business to a non-profit job than vice versa. So if you're unsure between the two, take the business position first. Two, choose options that let you experiment. An alternative approach is to take a job that lets you try out several areas by letting you work in a variety of industries. Freelance and consulting positions are especially good for this. Letting you practice many different skills. Jobs in small companies are often especially good on this front. And giving you the free time and energy to explore other things outside of work. Three, try something on the side. If you're already in a job, think of ways to try out a new option on the side. Could you do a short but relevant project in your spare time or in your existing job? If you're a student, try to do as many internships and summer projects as possible. Your university holidays are one of the best opportunities in your life to explore. Four, consider including a wild card. One drawback of the strategies above is that your best path might well be something you haven't even thought of yet. This is why in computer science, many exploration algorithms have a random element. Making a random move can help avoid settling into a local optimum. While we wouldn't recommend literally picking randomly, the fact that even computer algorithms find randomness helpful illustrates the value of trying something very different. That could mean trying something totally outside your normal experience, like living in a very different culture, participating in different communities, or trying different sectors from the ones you already know, for example, non-profits, government, corporate. For instance, I, Benjamin, went to learn Chinese in China before I went to university. I didn't have any specific ideas about how it would be useful, but I felt I learned a lot from the experience, and it turned out to be useful when I later worked to create our resources for people working on China-Western coordination around emerging technologies. Jess, a case study in exploring. Here's a real-life example. When Jess graduated from maths and philosophy, she was interested in academia and leaned towards studying philosophy of mind, but was concerned that it would have little impact. So the year after she graduated, she spent several months working in finance. She didn't think she'd enjoy it, and she turned out to be right, so she felt confident eliminating that option. She also spent several months working in non-profits and reading about different research areas. Most importantly, she spoke to loads of people, especially in the areas of academia she was most interested in. This eventually led to her being offered to study a PhD in psychology, with a focus on how to improve decision-making by policymakers. During her PhD, she did an internship at a think tank that specialised in evidence-based policy and started writing about psychology for an online newspaper. This allowed her to explore the public intellectual side of being an academic and the option of going into policy. At the end of her PhD, she could have either continued in academia or switched into policy or writing. She could also have gone back to finance or the non-profit sector. Most importantly, she had a far better idea of which options are best. A rational reason to shoot for the stars. Young people are often advised to dream big, be more ambitious, or shoot for the stars. Is that good advice? Not always. When asked, more than 75% of Division I basketball players thought they would play professionally, but only 2% actually made it. Whether or not the players in the survey were making a good bet, they overestimated their chances of success by over 37 times. Telling people to aim high doesn't make sense when people are so overconfident in their chances of success. But when you're more calibrated, it often is good advice. Suppose you're comparing two options, earning to give as a software engineer or research in AI safety. Imagine you think your chances of success in research aren't very high, so most likely you have more impact earning to give. But if you do succeed in research, 
it would be much higher impact. If you only get one shot to choose, you should earn to give. But the real world isn't normally like that. If you try the research path and it doesn't work out, you can most likely go back to earning to give. But if it does work out, then you'll be in a much higher impact path for the rest of your career. In other words, there's an asymmetry. It means that if you can tolerate the risk, it's better to try research first. More generally, you stand to learn the most from trying paths that might be really, really good, but that you're very uncertain about. In other words, long shots. In this sense, the advice to shoot for the stars makes sense, especially for young people. An aggressive version of this strategy is to rank your options in terms of upside. That is, how good they would be if they go unusually well, say in the top 10% of scenarios. Then start with the top-ranked one. If you find you're not on track to hit the upside scenario within a given time frame, try the next one, and so on. This is usually only suitable if you have good backup options and the fortunate position of being able to try lots of things. A more moderate version of this strategy is to use it as a tiebreaker. When uncertain between two options, pick the one with the bigger potential upside. If unsure, quit. The sunk cost bias leads us to expect people to continue with their current path for too long, want to avoid the short-term costs of switching, and be averse to leaping into an unknown new option. This all suggests that if you're on the fence about quitting your job, you should quit. This is exactly what an influential randomised study found. Stephen Levitt recruited tens of thousands of participants who were deeply unsure about whether to make a big change in their life. After offering some advice on how to make hard choices, those who remained truly undecided were given the chance to flip a coin to settle the issue. 22,500 did so. Levitt followed up with these participants two and six months later to ask whether they had actually made the change and how happy they were on a scale of 1 to 10. It turned out that people who made a change on an important question gained 2.2 points of happiness out of 10. Of course, this is just one study, and we wouldn't be surprised if the effect were smaller on replication. But it lines up with what we'd expect. Apply this to your own career. In the earlier chapters, you should have made a list of some ideas for longer-term career paths to aim towards. Now you could start to narrow them down. 1. Make a rough guess at which longer-term paths are most promising on the balance of impact, personal fit, and job satisfaction. 2. What are some of your key uncertainties about this ranking? List out at least 5. 3. How might you be able to resolve those key uncertainties as easily as possible? Go and investigate them. Consider doing one or two cheap tests. 4. Which option do you think has the most upside potential? 5. If you were going to try out several longer-term paths, which would be the ideal way to order those tests? And six, how confident do you feel in your longer-term options? Do you think you should, one, do more research into comparing your longer-term options? Two, try to enter one, but with a backup plan? Three, plan to try out several longer-term paths? Or four, just gain transferable career capital and figure out your longer-term paths later? If you want to think more about your longer-term options, Try our full process for comparing a list of career options, which you can find in Appendix 4. Conclusion We like to imagine we can work out what we're good at through reflection, in a flash of insight. That's not how it works. Rather, it's more like a scientist testing a hypothesis. You have ideas about what you can become good at, hypotheses, which you can then test out, research and experiments. Think you could be good at writing? Then start blogging. Think you'd hate consulting? at least speak to a consultant. If you don't already know your calling or your passion, that's normal. It's too hard to predict which career is right for you when you're starting out, and even sometimes when you're many years in. 
Instead, go and try things. You'll learn as you go, heading step-by-step towards a fulfilling career. Next, we'll show you how to tie together everything we've covered in the guide and avoid some common planning mistakes. The bottom line, how to find the right career for you. Your personal fit for a job is the chance that, if you worked at it, you'd end up excelling. Personal fit is even more important than most people think because it increases your impact, job satisfaction, and career capital. Research shows that it's hard to work out what you're going to be good at ahead of time. Career tests, trying to introspect, or just going with your gut seem like poor ways of figuring this out. Instead, think like a scientist. Make some best guesses, hypotheses about which careers could be a good fit, identify your key uncertainties about those guesses, then go and investigate those uncertainties. Look for the cheapest ways of testing your options first, creating a ladder of tests. Usually this means starting by speaking to people already working in the job. Later it could involve applying to jobs or finding ways to do short projects that are similar to actually doing the work. It can take years to find your fit, and you'll never be certain about it. So even once you take a job, see it too as an experiment. Try it for a couple of years, then update your best guesses. Early in your career, if you have the security, it can be worth planning to try out several career paths, aiming high and being ready to quit if something is going so-so rather than great. You can make this easier by carefully considering which order to explore your options and making good backup plans. Chapter 9. How to make your career plan. People often come to us trying to figure out what they should do over the next 10 or 20 years. Others say they want to figure out the right career for them. The problem with all of this is that, as we've seen, your plan is almost certainly going to change. You'll change, more than you think. The world will change. Many industries around today won't even exist in 20 years. And you'll learn more about what's best for you. It's very hard to predict what you're going to be good at ahead of time. In a sense, there is no stable, right career for you. Rather, the best option will keep changing as the world changes and you learn more. Many people we've advised would never have predicted the job they've ended up doing. Long-term planning could even be counterproductive. There's a risk of becoming fixated on a specific plan and failing to change your plans as your situation changes. All that said, giving up on planning and setting goals probably isn't wise either. As Eisenhower said, plans are useless, but planning is essential. Having some idea of where you'd like to end up can help you spot much better opportunities to advance. In fact, if you want to have a big positive impact, we'd argue that planning is even more important. Many of the highest impact roles require specialist career capital you're unlikely to get by accident, such as connections to people in biosecurity or expertise in particular technical skills. Likewise, getting to the top of many fields often requires decades of focused effort. This is the planning puzzle. Most plans will radically change long before they're completed, but we can still benefit from having them. Given all this, how should you make a good career plan? Here are our main tips. Don't keep your options open. A very common response to the planning puzzle is to try to keep your options open. There is some wisdom in this idea. If you gain transferable career capital, you'll have more options in the future. And if you're extremely uncertain what to do, just building transferable career capital and coming back to your plan later is a reasonable course of action. But through advising thousands of people with their careers, we've seen that it can have some serious pitfalls. Deciding to just keep your options open can lead to you spending far too long working in a generally prestigious job like consulting that you know you don't want to do long-term and just isn't that relevant to your longer-term goals. Stop you committing, so you end up pursuing a middle-of-the-road job that gives you some flexibility, 
rather than going for something that might be outstanding in career capital and so ultimately give you better options, or turn into an excuse to not think hard about what's best. So what should you do instead? The three key stages to a career. Move through the following three stages. One, explore. Take low-cost ways to learn about and test out promising longer-term roles until you feel ready to bet on one for a few years, most likely to be the top priority ages 18 to 24. Two, build career capital. Take a bet on a longer-term path that could go really well by building the career capital that will most accelerate you in your chosen path, but with a backup plan, age 25 to 35. And three, deploy. Use the career capital you've built to tackle pressing problems and bargain for a job you find personally satisfying, age 36 and up. And then keep updating your plan every one to three years as you continue to learn more and the world changes. Career capital, exploration, and of course, the impact of your work are always going to be relevant to every career decision you face throughout your career. But your focus should change over time. The stages last different amounts of time for different people. If you're especially uncertain about what to do longer term but feel like you're learning a lot about where to focus, you might stay focused on exploration for longer. Or just build transferable career capital and figure out your vision later. Or someone mid-career who's made a dramatic career change might shift back to exploration. If you've already hit diminishing returns on career capital, you might move to the deploy stage faster, and vice versa. And if you think work on your chosen problems is especially urgent, which many people think is the case for AI safety, and the opportunities around today are better than those that will be around in 10 years, that's a reason to skip to the deploy stage, even if you'll be less well prepared for it. Next, we'll look at some more ways we recommend going about career planning, while taking the uncertainty involved seriously. Have a longer-term vision. Although the future is very uncertain, we think for most people it's helpful to have at least a vague idea of where you'd like to end up longer-term. This is your vision. Your vision should be broad enough that it won't constantly change, but narrow enough to provide some direction. Your vision should include 1. A list of 2 to 5 global problems you'd most like to work on longer term, as covered in Chapter 5. And 2. A list of 1 to 5 roles or types of work you'd like to aim towards, as covered in Chapter 6. Types of work you could aim for include the categories of high-impact careers we looked at earlier, like being an entrepreneur, writer, or organisation builder. Longer term could mean anything from 5 to 25 years. Just pick a time frame that makes sense to you. If you've done the exercises in previous chapters, you should have a short list already. Here's an example. Megan was studying in Beijing when someone suggested she take a look at 80,000 hours. After reading our guide, she decided that she wanted to work on reducing existential risks, and in particular the risks from AI and nuclear war. She had spent some time doing research in academia, but she felt that academic work in her field, international relations, was unlikely to provide her with a high-impact career path. So her best guess was to aim for a career path in government and policy. Her vision, if all went well, was that she could become an expert in multilateral relations and then advise key players on multilateral agreements around AI. Your vision may feel much more uncertain than this, though, and that's fine. You only need a rough idea to help spot opportunities and guide your exploration. As we've covered, finding the best career for you is a step-by-step process so you'll update your vision every couple of years, adding or removing options from your list and making the items more specific. For example, you might start looking at organisation-building roles and later focus on becoming a PR specialist. A common mistake is to obsess about which longer-term options seem best in the abstract. So once you have a rough idea of longer-term options, turn your attention to generating ideas for concrete next steps. 
spend longer planning your next steps. Ultimately, the decision you need to make is what to do next. Thinking about your vision is useful, but only because it helps to guide that decision. Your next step could be a new job, but it could also be a course or a new project. Typically, it'd be something you might do for a couple of years, though it could be from a few months to five plus years. For example, accepting a job at Oxfam, spending a summer studying Chinese, or starting a blog while continuing in your current job. Trying to work out whether you should, for instance, be a researcher, like Dr. Narlin, or a communicator like Rosa Parks, longer term, is hard because it's abstract. It's often a lot easier to work out which concrete job or graduate program to take. Sometimes it makes a decision really obvious. For instance, if you don't get into any good graduate programs, that'll be off the table. It's also even possible to skip having a vision and only focus on next steps. With each step, you'll ideally gain some career capital, learn more about what fits you best, and increase your impact, putting yourself into a better and better position and having more and more impact over time. In this way, you can build a great career step by step, even if you have no idea where you're going to end up. Hopefully, this feels like a relief. Even if you have no idea what you want to do longer term, you can still build a great career iteratively. And if you do have some good ideas for your vision, that's a bonus. So, while we recommend most people spend some time thinking about their longer-term vision, most people should spend even more time identifying and comparing concrete next steps. Working backwards. If you know your long-term vision, work out how to get there. To come up with next steps, there are two broad approaches. The first is to work backwards from your vision. Think about where you'd like to end up and then identify the most direct routes to get there. The best way to do this is to ask people in the field how someone with your background can advance most quickly. For example, ask, if I wanted to be in role X in five years, what would I need to do? Also, look for examples of people who have advanced unusually quickly and figure out how they did it. Think about which types of career capital will be most important. For example, Bill Clinton knew that to succeed in politics, he'd need to know a lot of people, so even as an undergraduate, he kept a list of everyone he'd met on a paper notepad. We do some of this analysis in our career reviews, but there's no substitute for getting personal advice on the best next steps for you. If you're feeling uncertain about a longer-term option, another question to consider is, how might I eliminate that option? Is there something you could do that would decisively tell you whether pursuing that longer-term path made sense or not? Working forwards, look at the opportunities immediately in front of you. That said, it's important not to get wedded to a particular pathway. Most great careers also involve working forwards, being alert to the opportunities that happen to be in front of you, following your nose and going with what's working, even if you're not sure where it'll eventually lead. One reason is the inherent unpredictability of career success. Another reason is because next steps vary so much in how promising they are, so the variation between specific jobs can trump the variation between broad career paths. For example, maybe you think bio-risk policy is more pressing than nuclear risk policy on average, but if you find a job in nuclear policy with an unusual amount of responsibility or that's an unusually good fit for you, or where you work with a great mentor, it could easily be better to work in nuclear policy. To go back to Megan, when she was figuring out what to do after her master's, in order to work backwards, she considered ways she might most rapidly advance in a government and policy path. She put common options like getting a job at a think tank on her list of options. But she also realised her current position, living and studying in China, could open up some additional opportunities off the standard path. She saw an ad for a job working for the US Department of State in Beijing as a Chinese social media analyst and got it. She's since managed to find a role at the Department of Homeland Security towards her vision of working on reducing the risk posed by AI systems. When you're working forwards, 
It helps to make a big list of interesting jobs and training opportunities, even if they don't obviously feed into your current longer-term plans. Here are steps you could use. Earlier in the guide, we covered a list of next steps to gain general career capital, so you might have some ideas from there. Ask your friends, colleagues, people working on pressing problems, and people you admire what opportunities they know about. The best opportunities are usually found through people you know. Check out the jobs listed on our job board. Do any of them seem interesting? Are there any opportunities, areas to learn about, side projects, or people you feel especially excited about right now? Is anything you're doing right now going better than expected? Could you spend more of your time on that? Many opportunities also only emerge after you start looking. So one of the most useful strategies is to simply pursue lots of specific jobs and make lots of applications. We often come across people agonising about different longer-term paths, whereas if they'd simply made applications, the next step would have become obvious. We'll look at how to manage the job application process in the next chapter. Have backup options. The ABZ plan. Startup founders have a broad vision for the company but face enormous uncertainties in the details of their product and strategy. To overcome this, they test lots of approaches and gradually improve their plan over time. You face similarly large uncertainties in your career, so we might be able to borrow some of the best practices in entrepreneurship and apply them to career strategy. This is the premise of The Startup of You, a book by the founder of LinkedIn, Reid Hoffman. One of his tips is making an ABZ plan, which we've also found useful while giving one-on-one advice to our readers. Writing an ABZ plan helps you think about specific alternatives and backup plans putting you in a better position to adapt when the situation changes. 1. Plan A. Your ideal scenario. Your plan A is your best guess at the route you'd most like to pursue. This could be a particular vision you're going to bet on and the next step that would imply. For example, try to become an academic economist who works on global priorities research or AI policy. Vision. By studying these extra maths courses at undergrad. Next step. If you're more unsure about your vision, you could also plan to try out several longer-term paths by taking a couple of carefully ordered next steps, as we covered in the chapter on personal fit. Or your plan A could just be to build some valuable transferable career capital, for example, learn people management or get a degree in statistics, and then re-evaluate your plan later. 2. Plan B. Nearby alternatives. These are promising alternatives that you could switch to if your plan A doesn't work out. Writing them out ahead of time helps you stay ready for new opportunities. To figure out your plan B, ask yourself, what are the most likely ways your plan A wouldn't work out? If that happens, what will you do? And what other good options are there? List any promising nearby alternatives to plan A, which may be other promising longer-term paths or different entry routes to the same paths. Then come up with two or three alternatives. For instance, if you're already in a job and applying to master's programs, One possibility is that you don't get into the programs you want. In that case, your plan B might be to stay in your job another year and to assess later, or to apply for a master's in another discipline. Or if your plan A is to work in policy by getting a job in the executive branch, your plan B could be to try think tank internships or working on a political campaign. 3. Plan Z. If it all f***s up, this is your temporary fallback. Your plan Z is what you'll do if this all goes wrong. In other words, if your A and B plans don't work out, what will you do to pay the bills until you can get back on your feet? Having a plan Z can not only help you avoid unacceptable personal outcomes, but it can help you get more comfortable with taking risks. Knowing you'll ultimately be okay makes it easier to be ambitious. Your plan Z can be very short if you're comfortable with the risk you're taking, 
or are in a secure position. If you're in a higher stakes situation, for example you have dependents, you might want to do more careful planning. Some common examples are sleeping on a friend's sofa while paying the bills through tutoring or working at a cafe, living off savings, going back to your old job, moving back in with your family, or taking a job you find relatively undemanding. It could even mean something more adventurous, like going to teach English in Asia, a surprisingly in-demand, uncompetitive job that lets you learn about a new culture. Then ask yourself, is this plan Z acceptable? If not, you might need to revise your plan A, or prioritise building your safety net for a while. Optional. Further ways to reduce risk. Sometimes you need to take risks in order to have a big impact. Thinking about them ahead of time can make this easier. First, clarify what a realistic worst-case scenario really is if you pursue your plan A. It's easy to have vague fears about failing, and research shows that when we think about bad events, we bring to mind their worst aspects, while ignoring all the things that will remain unchanged. This led Nobel laureate Daniel Kahneman to say, Nothing in life is as important as you think it is, while you are thinking about it. Often, when you think through the worst realistic scenario, you realise it's not so bad and is something you could overcome in the long term. The risks to pay most attention to are those that could permanently reduce your happiness or career capital, such as burning out, getting depressed, or ruining your reputation. You might also have dependents who rely on you. Second, is there anything you could do to make sure that the serious risks don't happen? Many people think of entrepreneur college dropouts like Bill Gates as people who took bold risks to succeed. But Gates worked on tech sales for about a year part-time as a student at Harvard, and then negotiated a year of leave from study to start Microsoft. If it had failed, Gates could have gone back to study computer science at Harvard. In reality, he took hardly any risk at all. Usually, with a bit of thought, it's possible to avoid the worst risks of your plan. Third, make a plan for what you do if the worst-case scenario does happen. Think about what you'll do to cope and make it less bad, as well as having a fallback plan Z job as above. If it helps, remember you'll probably still have food, friends, a soft bed, and a room at the perfect temperature. Better conditions than most people have faced in all of history. Fourth, if at this point the risks are still unacceptable, then you may need to change your plan A. For instance, you might need to spend more time building your financial runway. Going through these exercises makes risk less scary and makes you more likely to cope if the worst does happen. Set a review point. Your plan should change as you learn more, but it's very easy to get stuck on the path you're already on. Not changing course when a better option exists is one of the most common decision-making mistakes identified by psychologists and can be caused by the sunk cost fallacy or status quo bias. To help avoid this mistake, you need to set a review point. Here are some options. Pick a time frame to review your plan, typically 6 to 24 months. Go for shorter time frames when you're more uncertain and learning a lot, and longer ones when you're more settled. Around the new year is often a nice time. Review your plan when you next gain significant information about your career. For example, publishing lots of papers in top journals is key to advancement in academic careers, so you could commit to reassessing whether you want to be an academic if you don't publish a certain number of papers by the end of your PhD. When you do the review, the most important question to ask is, what have I learned since I last made a plan, and what might that imply about what longer-term paths and next steps are best? Then go and discuss your thinking with someone else. Other people are better able to spot the sunk cost fallacy, and having to justify your thinking to someone else has been shown to reduce your degree of bias. If you have more time, it can be helpful to start from a blank slate. If I were making a career plan today, 
which vision and next steps would seem best. This can help you step out of your current situation and see things afresh. Apply this to your own career. Bringing all this advice together, here are the seven steps to building your own career plan. One, what's your career stage? Exploring, building career capital, or deploying your existing career capital. Two, what's your vision? If you haven't already, sketch out your best guess shortlist of longer-term paths to aim towards and global problems to work on. Your vision. Three, now clarify. What's the very next decision you need to make? Then generate a big list of ideas for next steps. You should already have some ideas from the chapter on career capital. Lean towards including more rather than less, including some that seem like a stretch. Work backwards. What steps would most accelerate you towards your vision? Work forwards. What other interesting opportunities are you aware of? Four, now make an initial guess at which five to ten next steps are most promising. If you're struggling to narrow them down, you can also use our decision process to help. Look at the lists of questions for comparing options in terms of career capital and in terms of personal fit from earlier in the guide. Five, then make an initial guess at your plan A, your top longer term plan, plan B, nearby alternatives, and plan Z, fallback options. Six, what are your most pressing key uncertainties about all the above? We introduced the idea of a key uncertainty in chapter eight, but it can be applied to all aspects of your plan, vision, strategy, next steps, and ABZ options. What information would most change your rankings of options or your plan A? Seven, how might you best resolve those key uncertainties? If you have time, go and do that. Ideally, keep investigating until your best guesses stop changing. At this point, often what seems best is to simply pursue your list of next steps and then reevaluate your plan after you have concrete options on the table. We'll talk about how to get jobs in the next chapter. Now is also a good time to consider applying to speak to our team one-on-one. Just go to 80,000hours.org slash speak hyphen with hyphen us. They can help you check your plan, decide which next steps to prioritize, and start toward them. Once you have concrete job offers on the table, you can use our career decision process to choose between them. It's the same process for comparing longer-term paths, but it can also be applied to next steps. You can find it in Appendix 4. Finally, once you start your job, set a review point. It could well be worth spending a whole weekend on career planning. If you'd like to do that, we've created a planning worksheet covering all the key exercises from the guide so far. You can find that at 80k.link ncp. If you fill it out, you'll have a complete career plan. Try getting a friend to do it with you for moral support and to discuss options. The bottom line, how to make your career plan. Your career should move through three stages. One, explore to find the best longer-term options for you. Two, build career capital towards those options. And three, deploy the career capital you've built to tackle pressing problems and bargain for a job you find personally satisfying. Your plan will change and most people can't predict what job they'll be doing in 10 to 20 years. But it's still useful to have a broad, longer-term vision, two to five global problems you might try to solve, and one to five potential roles you'll steer towards longer term. It's even more important to devote time to finding your best concrete next step, a specific job, educational opportunity, or project you're going to do in the next one to three years that will increase your impact or career capital. Generate a long list of ideas for next steps by working backwards, Look for options that accelerate you towards your longer-term vision. And working forwards, look at the opportunities right in front of you, even if you're not sure where they'll lead. Then, 
Create an ABZ plan. Plan A is the top option you'd like to pursue, or a series of paths you want to try out. Plan Bs are the promising nearby alternatives you can switch into if Plan A doesn't go as intended. And Plan Z is your temporary fallback in case everything goes wrong. It helps you feel more comfortable taking chances. Identify key uncertainties with your plan, then investigate them. If you need help narrowing down your vision or your next steps, take a look at Appendix 4. Finally, set a time to review your career, typically within 6 to 24 months. You can use our tool to help, available at 80,000hours.org slash career hyphen planning slash annual hyphen career hyphen review. Chapter 10. All the best advice we could find on how to get a job. When it comes to advice on how to get a job, most of it is pretty bad. 1. College feed suggests that you be confident as their first interview tip, which is a bit like suggesting you should be employable. 2. Many advisors cover the clean your nails and have a firm handshake kind of thing. 3. One of the most popular interview videos on YouTube, with over 8 million views, makes the wise point that you definitely mustn't sit down until you're explicitly invited to do so by the interviewer. Who could ever recover from taking a seat a few seconds too early? Over the years, we've sifted through a lot of bad advice to find the nuggets that are actually good. We've also provided one-on-one coaching to thousands of people who are applying for jobs and hired about 30 people ourselves, so we've seen what works from both sides. Here, we'll sum up what we've learned. Let's be blunt. You're not entitled to a job, and hiring is rarely fair. Rather, getting a job is, at root, a sales process. You need to persuade someone to give you responsibility and a salary, and even put their reputation on the line in exchange for results. We'll list key advice for each stage of the sales process. 1. Finding opportunities, leads. 2. Convincing employers, conversion. And 3. Negotiating. The common theme is to think from the employer's point of view, and do whatever they will find most convincing. That means instead of sending out lots of CVs, focus on getting recommendations and proving you can do the work. While the rest of this guide is about working out which job is best for you in the world, here we focus on the practicalities of taking action on your plans. Just bear in mind there's no point using salesmanship to land a job you wouldn't be good at. You won't be satisfied, and if your performance is worse than the next best applicant, you'll have a negative impact. But we wrote this chapter to prevent the opposite situation. We've seen too many great candidates who want to make a difference failing to live up to their potential because they don't know how to sell themselves. Stage 1. Leads. A lead is any opportunity that might turn into a job, like a position you could apply for, a friend who might know an opportunity, or a side project you might be able to get paid for. You need a lot of leads. We interviewed someone who's now a top NPR journalist. But when he started out, he applied to 70 positions and got only one serious offer. This illustrates the first thing to know about leads. You probably need a lot of them. Especially early in your career, it can easily take 20 to 100 leads to find one good job, and getting rejected 20 times is normal. In fact, the average length of a spell of unemployment in the US is six months, so be prepared for your job hunt to take that long. This is especially true if you're applying to jobs that are especially desirable and competitive, which are normally more selective and therefore require more leads. This includes most jobs directly working on the pressing problems we talk about, in part because we focus on neglected problems, so there just aren't that many jobs available. For instance, if you want to work on preventing catastrophic pandemics, but can only find 10 leads, that's normally not enough to make it likely you'll find a job. You might need to apply to jobs in other areas or career paths until you've got at least 30 leads. To compound the problem, there's a huge amount of luck involved. Most employers are not only looking for general competence, 
they're also looking for someone who will fit that particular team and organisation, and the specific requirements of the job. They also have to make decisions with very little information, which means they'll make a lot of mistakes. You can be very talented but simply not find a match through bad luck. While bad luck can derail even the best candidates, many people struggle in their job search through a lack of confidence. We know a lot of people who thought they'd never get a certain job, but went on to not only land the job, but also to excel within it. Others are overconfident. We've met people whose backup option was to work at an effective altruism organisation, but those roles are also super competitive, so they aren't really a backup at all. Unfortunately, it's hard to know whether you're underconfident or overconfident, so it's important to pursue both backup and stretch positions. Backup positions are those that are less attractive, but you think you're likely to land. Applying to them reduces the risk of not ending up with anything, and having offers can improve your negotiating position. Stretch positions are those you think you're unlikely to get, but would be great if you do, so offer a lot of upside. Making all these applications is a lot of work. It helps to bear in mind that it's also one of the best ways to assess your fit with a career path. Indeed, job applications are specifically designed to assess fit as quickly as possible. This means you stand to learn a lot from applying. You might even discover a totally new career path. Pursuing lots of jobs is also one of the best ways to find even more opportunities. Maybe one employer doesn't have any openings, but they know someone else who does. How to get leads. Don't just cold email your CV, use connections. Many large organisations have a standardised application process, such as the UK Civil Service and Teach for America. They want to keep the process fair, so there isn't much wiggle room. In these cases, just apply. But what do you do in all the other cases? The most obvious approach is to send your CV to lots of companies and apply to the postings on job boards. This is often the first thing career advisors mention. We would recommend doing this sometimes and have our own job board. But the problem is that sending out your CV and responding to lots of internet job ads has a low success rate. Richard Bowles, the author of What Colour Is Your Parachute, the best-selling career advice book of all time, estimates that the chances of landing a job from cold emailing your resume to a company is around 1 in 1,000. This means that unless your application is much stronger than average, you need to send out 100 resumes just to have a 10% chance of landing a job. We'd guess responding to a job listing on a job board has about a 1% chance of success. Moreover, the positions on job boards need to be standardised and are mainly at large companies, so they don't include many of the best positions. The best opportunities are less competitive because they are hidden away, often at small but rapidly growing companies, and personalised to you. You need a different way to find them. Consider the employer's point of view. Employers prefer to hire people they already know, or failing that, to hire through referrals, an introduction from someone they know. Which would you prefer? A recommendation from someone you trust, or 20 CVs from people who saw your job listing on Indeed.com? The referral is more likely to work, because the person has already been vouched for. It's less effort. Screening 20 people you know nothing about is hard. Referrals also come from a better pool of applicants. The most employable people already have lots of offers, so they rarely respond to job listings. For these reasons, many recruiters consider referrals to be the best method of finding candidates. But job seekers usually get things backwards. They start with the methods that recruiters least like. Here's a diagram titled, Many if not most employers hunt for job seekers in the exact opposite way from how most job seekers hunt for them. The diagram's an inverted pyramid. At the bottom, at the pointy bit, we have the way a typical job seeker prefers to fill a vacancy. And then in the reverse direction, starting from the broad end and heading towards the point, we have the way a typical employer prefers to fill a vacancy. And then the pyramid is divided into steps, such that the final step for the employer is the first step for the job seeker and vice versa. So the first step for the employer, from within, promotion of a full-time employee or promotion of a present part-time employee. 
or hiring a former consultant for in-house or contract work, or hiring a former temp full-time. Employers' thoughts? I want to hire someone whose work I have already seen, a low-risk strategy for the employer. The implication for job seekers? See if you can get hired at an organisation you have chosen as a temp, contract worker, or consultant, aiming at a full-time position only later, or not at all. Now the second step for an employer, and the second last step for the typical job seeker? Using proof. Hiring an unknown job seeker who brings proof of what he or she can do with regard to the skills needed. The implication for job seekers? If you're a programmer, bring a program you have done, with its code. If you're a photographer, bring photos. If you're a counsellor, bring a case study with you, etc. Now the third step for the typical employer? Or the third last step for the typical job seeker? Using a best friend or business colleague. Hiring someone whose work a trusted friend of yours has seen. Perhaps they worked for him or her. The implication for job seekers? Find someone who knows the person who has the power to hire at your target organisation, who also knows your work and will introduce you to. The fourth step for typical employers, and the fourth last step for the typical job seeker? Using an agency they trust. This may be a recruiter or search firm the employer has hired, or a private employment agency, both of which have checked you out on behalf of the employer. The fifth step for the typical employer, and the second step for the typical job seeker, using an ad they have placed, online or in newspapers, etc. And the last step for a typical employer and the first step for a typical job seeker, using a resume, even if the resume was unsolicited, if the employer is desperate. That diagrams from the 2015 edition of What Colour Is Your Parachute? Applicants find about 50% of jobs through connections, and many are never advertised. So if you don't pursue referrals, you'll miss many opportunities. Moreover, speaking to people in the industry is the best way to get information about how to present yourself and how to approach opportunities. It's also among the best ways to assess your fit, helping you to focus on the best opportunities. How to get referrals. You need to master the art of asking for introductions. We've put together a list of email scripts you can use. That's found at 80,000hours.org slash articles slash email hyphen scripts. To get referrals, here's a step-by-step process. If you're not applying for a job right now, skip this section until you are. 1. First, update your LinkedIn profile or personal website, etc. This isn't because you'll get great job offers through LinkedIn. That's pretty rare. It's because people who are considering meeting you will check out your profile. Focus your profile on your most impressive accomplishments. Be as concrete as possible. For example, ranked third in the nation. Increased annual donations 100%. Cut the rest. It's better to have two impressive achievements than two impressive achievements and three weak ones. Add links to any portfolio projects relevant to the job. Two, search yourself on Google and do anything you can to make the results look good. For example, delete embarrassing old blog posts. Take a look at the extra resources for this chapter in Appendix 7 for a guide. Three, if you already know someone in the industry who can hire people, then ask for a meeting to discuss opportunities in the industry. This is close to going directly to an interview, skipping all the screening steps. Plus, you'll be able to ask them really useful information about how to best apply and learn more about which positions might be your best fit. Remember, there doesn't need to be an open position. Employers will often create positions for good people. Before you take the meeting, use the advice on how to prepare for interviews below. Four, if you know them less well, ask for a meeting to find out more about jobs in the industry, an informational interview. If it goes well, ask them to introduce you to people who may be able to hire you which is effectively getting a referral from this person. Do not ask them for a job if you promised it was an informational interview. 5. When asking for introductions, prepare a one-sentence, specific description of the types of opportunities you'd like to find. A good example is something like an entry-level marketing position at a technology startup in education. Two bad examples are a job in software or 
a job that fits my skills. Being concrete makes it easier for people to come up with ideas, so lean towards too narrow rather than too broad. 6. Failing the above steps, turn to the connections of your connections. If you have a good friend who knows someone who's able to hire you, then you could directly ask that friend for a referral. The ideal is to ask someone you've worked for before, where you performed really well. 7. If your connection is not able to refer you, then ask them to introduce you to people in the industry who are able to hire. Then we're back to informational interviews, as in step 2. 8. To find out who your connections know, use LinkedIn, Twitter, or other social networks. Say you want to work at Airbnb. Go to LinkedIn and search Airbnb. It'll show you a list of all your contacts who work at Airbnb, followed by connections of connections who work at Airbnb. Pick the person with the most mutual connections and get in touch. 9. Remember, if you have 200 LinkedIn connections and each of them has 200 connections that don't overlap with the others, then you can reach at least 10,000 people using these methods. 10. There are lots of people in the 80,000 Hours LinkedIn group at linkedin.com groups slash 505-7625 who are happy to give advice on applications and may be able to make introductions. 11. If you still haven't got anywhere, then it may be worth spending some time building your connections in the industry first. Read our advice on how to network in Appendix 2. Go back to our advice in the last chapter on how to network. Start with people with whom you have some connection, such as your university alumni and friends of friends of friends, third-order connections. Your university can probably give you a list of alumni who are willing to help in each industry. There are probably some good groups you can join and conferences to attend. Otherwise, you can resort to cold emailing. Take a look at the extra resources for this chapter in Appendix 7 for guides to getting jobs with no connections and to finding anyone's email address. Recruiters and listings. We prefer the above tactics, but recruiters can be worth talking to and are often more effective than just making cold applications. Look for those who have a good network in the industry you're interested in. You can also browse job listings, which does sometimes work and is also a useful way to get ideas. In particular, check out our job board, which lists the best jobs we can find to put you in a better position to tackle the world's most pressing problems. Stage 2. Conversion. When you're speaking to someone who has the power to hire you, How do you convince them? Again, think about it from their point of view. Once, at 80,000 hours, we were trying to hire a web engineer. Most applicants just filled out our application form, while one sent us a redesigned version of our old career quiz. Which application is more convincing? The person who sent the quiz was immediately in the top 20% of applicants, despite having very little formal experience. Employers are looking for several qualities. They want employees who will fit in socially, stick around, and not cause trouble. But most importantly, the employer wants to be sure that you can solve the problems they face. If you can prove that you'll get the results the employer most values, everything else is much less important. So how can you go about doing that? When the process is highly standardised, in these cases like Teach for America or many government jobs, you have to jump through the hoops. Maximise your chances by finding out exactly what the process involves and practising exactly that. For instance, if it's a competency interview, find out which competencies they look for, then have a friend ask you similar questions. Some public service organisations publish the rubrics they use to assess candidates. The most useful thing you can do is find someone who recently went through the process, ask them how it works, and if possible, practice the key steps with them. Sometimes there are books written about exactly how to apply. Most employers, however, don't have a fully standardised process. What do you do in those cases? If you've already done the same work before, then you just need to practice telling your story. Skip ahead to the interview tips. But what if you don't have much relevant experience? The basic idea is just do the work. Just do the work. 
the most powerful way to prove you can do the work is to actually do some of it. And as we saw, doing the work is also a great way to figure out whether you're good at it, so it'll help you avoid wasting your own time too. Here are four ways to put that into practice. Do a portfolio project. For example, if you want to become a writer or a journalist, try to keep a blog or Twitter feed about a relevant topic. If you want to become a software engineer, put projects on your GitHub. Include these projects on your personal webpage and or LinkedIn profile. Mention them in your applications or during interviews. The pre-interview project. The pre-interview project is what the web engineer did with our career quiz. Do your own project. 1. Find out what you'd be doing in the role. This already puts you quite a way ahead. 2. In particular, work out which problems you'll need to solve for the organisation. To figure this out, you'll probably need to do some desk research, then speak to people in the industry. There's a link to a simple guide on how to research a company in the resources for this chapter in Appendix 7. 3. Spend a weekend putting together a solution to these problems, and send a one-page summary to a couple of people at the company with an invitation to talk more. 4. If you don't hear back after a week, follow up at least once. And 5. Alternatively, write up your suggestions, and present them at the interview. Ramit Sethi calls this the briefcase technique. Speaking from personal experience, we've overseen four years' worth of competitive application processes at 80,000 hours, and doing either of these projects would immediately put you in the top 20% of applicants, if your suggestions make sense. It demonstrates a lot of enthusiasm, and most people hardly know anything about the role they're applying for. Trial period. If the employer is on the fence, you can offer to do a two- to four-week trial period perhaps at reduced pay or as an intern. Make it clear that if the employer isn't happy at the end, you'll leave gracefully. Only bring this out if the employer is on the fence, or it can seem like you're underselling yourself. Go for a nearby position. If you can't get the job you want right away, consider applying for another position in the organisation, like a freelance position, or a position one step below the one you really want. Working in a nearby position gives you the opportunity to prove your motivation and cultural fit. When your boss has a position to fill, it's much easier to promote someone they already worked with than to start a lengthy application process. Just check that the position can actually lead to the one you want. For example, we often see people apply to operations positions at research organisations with the hope of later becoming a researcher. The paths require very different skill sets, so are treated as separate tracks, but lots of people would prefer to do research. This means that while it does sometimes work out, it's rare and can be frustrating for both sides. How to prepare for interviews. If you can show an employer that you can solve their problems, you're most of the way there, and you probably don't need to ace the interview. However, there's more you can do to become even more convincing. Here's some of the best advice we've found on preparing for interviews. It's also useful for getting leads while networking. If you're not actively looking for a job right now, skip this section for now. 1. When you meet an employer, ask lots of questions to understand their challenges. Discuss how you might be able to contribute to solving these challenges. This is exactly what great salespeople do. A survey of research on sales concluded, there is a clear statistical association between the use of questions and the success of the interaction. Moreover, when salespeople were trained to ask more questions, it made them more effective. Two, prepare your three key selling points ahead of meetings. These are the messages you'll try to get in during the discussion. For instance, one, I have done this work successfully before. Two, I am really excited about this company. And three, I have suggestions for what I could work on. Writing these out ahead of time makes it more likely you'll mention what's most important, and three points is about the limit of what your audience will remember. That's why this is standard advice when pitching a business idea. If you're not sure what you have to offer, look back at the exercise at the end of Chapter 7. Three, focus on what's most impressive. What sounds better? 
I advised Obama on energy policy, or I advised Obama on energy policy and have worked as a high school teacher the last three years. Many people fill up their CVs with everything they've done, but it's usually better to pick your one or two most impressive achievements and focus on those. It sounds better, it makes it more likely you'll cover it, and it makes it more likely the audience will remember it. 4. Prepare one to two concrete facts and stories to back up your three key messages. For instance, if you're applying to be a web engineer, rather than, I'm a hard worker, try, I have a friend who runs an organisation that was about to get some press coverage. He needed to build a website in 24 hours, so he pulled an all-nighter to build it. The next day, we got a thousand sign-ups. Rather than say, I really want to work in this industry, tell the story of what led you to apply. Stories and concrete details are far more memorable than abstract claims. 5. Work out how to sum up what you have to offer in a sentence. Steve Jobs didn't sell millions of iPods by saying they're 30% better than MP3 players, but rather with the slogan, a thousand songs in your pocket. Having a short, vivid summary makes it easy for other people to promote you on your behalf. For instance, something like, he's the guy who advised Obama on climate policy and wants a research position, is ideal. 6. Prepare answers to the most likely questions. Write them out, then practice saying them out loud. The following three questions normally come up. 1. Tell me about yourself. This is an opportunity to tell the story of why you want this position and mention one or two achievements. 2. Why do you want this position? And 3. What are your questions for us? Then, usually the interviewer will add some behavioural questions about the traits they care most about. They usually start, tell me about a time you... and to finish with things like, exhibited leadership, had to work as a team, had to deal with a difficult situation or person, failed or succeeded. 7. Practice the meeting from start to finish. Meet with a friend and have them ask you five interview questions, then practice responding quickly. If you don't have a friend to help, then say your answers out loud and mentally rehearse how you want it to go. Ask yourself what's most likely to go wrong and what you'll do if that happens. And eight, learn. After each interview, jot down what went well, what could have gone better, and what you'll do differently next time. Improve and adapt your process. Applying to jobs is a difficult skill that takes time to learn. After every interview or other important interaction with an employer, jot down what went well, what could have gone better, and what you'll do differently next time. If you've done five to ten interviews and didn't make it through to the next stage, then it's time to do a more thorough reassessment. You might be making a mistake in how you present yourself. Ask someone in the area, ideally someone with hiring experience, to check over your materials and do a mock interview with them or explain what happened in the interviews. Similarly, if you've made 20-plus applications and haven't been invited to any interviews, ask someone in the area to review your application materials. If you can't find a mistake, then you might be applying to jobs that aren't a good fit and should consider a different area or position. If you've done 10 interviews and have made it through to the latest stages a couple of times, but haven't yet had any offers, then keep going. Often 3 to 10 people make it through to the final stages, so you'll probably have to do at least 5 final stage interviews before you get an offer. On the other hand, if you're getting offers relatively easily, then apply to more stretch positions. Stage 3. Negotiation. Negotiation begins after you have an offer, once the employer has said they'd like to hire you. Most people are so happy to get a job, or awkward about the idea of negotiating, that they never try. But 10 minutes of negotiation could mean major benefits over the next couple of years. So the key message here is to actually consider doing it. For instance, you could ask the employer to match your donations to charity. That could mean thousands of dollars of extra donations per year, making those 10 minutes you took to negotiate among the most productive of your life. You could also negotiate to work on a certain team, have more flexible hours, work remotely, or learn certain skills. 
All of these could make a big difference to your day-to-day happiness and career capital, and are often easier to ask for than additional salary. Negotiation is not always appropriate. Don't do it if you've landed a highly standardised offer like many government positions. They won't be able to change the contract. Also, don't do it if you're only narrowly better than the other candidates or have no alternatives. And definitely don't negotiate until the employer has made an offer. It looks bad to start negotiating during the interview. However, we think negotiation should be tried in most cases once you have an offer. Hiring someone takes months and consumes lots of management time. Once an employer has made an offer, they've invested many thousands of dollars in the process. The top candidate is often significantly better than the next best. This means it's unlikely that they'll let the top candidate get away for, say, a 5% increase in costs. It's even more unlikely that they'll retract their initial offer because you tried to negotiate. Stay polite, and the worst case is likely that they'll stick to their original offer. Negotiation should be most strongly considered when you have more than one good offer, because then you have a strong fallback position. How to negotiate. The basic idea is simple. Explain the value you'll give the employer and why it's justified to give you the benefits you want. Then look for objective metrics and win-win solutions. Can you give up something the employer cares about in exchange for something you care about? For instance, other people with my level of experience in this industry are usually paid $50,000 and can work at home two days per week. But I'd prefer to work with you. Can you match the other companies? I'm really motivated to learn sales skills, so I'd like to work alongside person X. This will make me much more effective in the role in six months. If your position is weaker, you could negotiate about a future promotion or salary increase. I'd like to work towards this insert position name. What would I need to do in the next six months to make that happen? Then ask them to commit to it if you hit their conditions. Negotiate after you've started. Once you start the job, try to perform as well as possible, and then negotiate again. Most employers will be very unwilling to lose someone who's already doing excellent work. Just bear in mind, most companies have a standard performance review process, so wait until then to make your request. Lots has been written about salary negotiation, so this hardly scratches the surface. Appendix 7 contains a list of resources to learn more. Have a plan to stay motivated. Your first job search may be one of the hardest things you've ever done. You've probably never been rejected 30 times in a row before. It can involve months of work. and You may have to do most of it alone. It can make online dating look easy. This means that you'll need to throw every motivational technique you know at the job hunt. Here are some tips. 1. Perhaps the most useful single tip our readers have found is pairing up with someone else who's also job hunting. Check in on progress and share tips and leads. Alternatively, find someone who is recently successful at a similar hunt and is willing to meet up and give you tips. 2. Set a really specific goal, like speaking to five people each week until you have an offer. Publicly commit to the goal and promise to make a forfeit if you miss it. 3. Make it easier to face rejections. Maybe make yourself a loyalty card that you stamp every time you get a rejection and reward yourself with an ice cream once the card is filled up. 4. Treat it like a job. You're most likely going to be doing the job for years at 40 hours per week, so it makes sense it might take 5% or more of that time to secure the position, and it's already one to two months of full-time work. The more time you can put into it, the better the results are probably going to be. And if you're not in a job right now, treating your job search as a job itself can help a lot with motivation. Turn up at 9am and work till 5pm. 5. Apply other tips on how to motivate yourself. For example, check out the book The Motivation Hacker by Nick Winter and the advice on productivity in Appendix 2. Never job hunt again. Your job hunts will get easier and easier as you build career capital. The most important thing you can do to put yourself in a better position is to gain more connections, so you can get better referrals. 
We have tips on that in the next chapter. Once you're in a job, focus on developing strong skills and excel in your work. The best marketing is word of mouth. Employers seeking you out rather than the other way around. If you're great at your job, then people will actively want to refer you to employers because it's doing them a favor as well as you. Conclusion. Getting a job can be an unpleasant process, but if you go through the steps in this chapter, you'll give yourself the best chance of success. And that will make sure you fulfill your potential to find a satisfying career and contribute to the world. Apply this to your own career. What are the most important three steps to take in order to get into your top options? Try to be as specific as possible. Some good examples? Follow up with my boss at my last internship. Write 10 applications. Meet three people in the industry and find someone to job hunt with. The key steps probably involve speaking to people. When are you going to do each of these? Many studies have shown that writing down when you'll do a task makes it much more likely you'll actually do it. It's called an implementation intention. The bottom line, how to find a job. Getting a job is a sales process. Think of it from the employer's point of view and do what the employer will find most convincing. Get lots of leads, especially by asking for introductions. Prove you can do the work by actually doing it. Do a project before the interview. Explain exactly how you can solve their problems or seek a related position first. Once you get an offer, actually negotiate. And do whatever it takes to keep yourself motivated, such as make a public commitment to apply for one position per day or find a job search partner. Chapter 11. One of the most powerful ways to improve your career, join a community. Not many students are in a position to start a successful cost-effective charity straight out of a philosophy degree. But when Thomas attended an effective altruism conference in London in 2018, he discovered an opportunity to start a non-profit that could have a major impact on factory-farmed animals. Through the community, he received advice and funding and ended up in an incubation program. Today, Thomas's charity, the Fish Welfare Initiative, has reduced the suffering of around 1 million factory-farmed fish and has an annual budget of over half a million dollars. If Thomas had just added loads of people on LinkedIn, this would have probably never happened. And this illustrates what many people miss about networking, the value of joining a great community. Finding the right community can help you gain hundreds of potential allies in one go. In fact, getting involved in the right community can be one of the best ways to make friends, advance your career, and have a greater impact. Many people we advise say that finding their people was one of the most important steps in their career and life in general. What's more, a group of people working together can have more impact than they could individually. In this chapter, we'll explain how joining a community can help and how to get involved. Why joining a community is so helpful. There are lots of great communities out there. We've enjoyed being part of Y Combinator's entrepreneur community. It made us more ambitious and more effective at running a startup, hopefully. We've also enjoyed participating in the Oxford philosophy scene, the World Economic Forum's Young Global Shapers, and many others. Joining any good professional community can be a great boost to your career. In part, this is because you'll get all the benefits of having more connections, finding jobs, gaining up-to-date information, and becoming more motivated. But it goes beyond that. Let's suppose I want to build and sell a piece of software. One approach would be to learn all the skills needed myself, design, engineering, marketing, and so on. A much better approach is to form a team of people who are skilled in each area, and then build it together. Although I'll have to share the gains with the other people, the size of the gains will be much larger, so we'll all win. One thing that's going on here is specialization. Each person can focus on a specific skill and get really good at it, which lets them be more effective. Another factor is that the team can also share fixed costs. They can share the same company registration, operational procedures, and so on. 
it's also not three times harder to raise three times as much money from investors. This lets them achieve economies of scale. In sum, we get what's called the gains from trade. Three people working together can achieve more than three times as much as an individual working alone. It's the same when doing good. Rather than have everyone try to do everything, it's more effective for people to specialise and work together. An especially good thing about trade is that you can do it with people who don't share your goals. Suppose you run an animal rights charity and meet someone who runs a global health charity. Now, also suppose you don't think global health is a pressing problem, and the other person doesn't think animal rights is a pressing problem, so neither of you think the other's charity has much impact. But maybe you know a donor who might give to their charity, and they know a donor who might give to your charity. You can trade. If you both make introductions, which is a small cost, you might both find a new donor, which is a big benefit. This shows it can be valuable to join a community even if the people in it have different aims from your own. That said, it's far better again to join a community of people who do share your goals. Which brings us to finding the right community for you. The people you spend the most time with have a big effect on what feels normal. If you spend time around generous people, you'll see generosity as the norm. If you're around people who regularly bend the truth, you're likely to become less honest because it'll feel ubiquitous and acceptable. So choose your communities carefully. Each community has a unique culture, so we recommend trying out several and seeing which are best for you. And it's healthy to spend time in several communities, so your sense of your identity and connections aren't too dependent on one group or set of ideas, which can make the views of the group hard to question and have an echo chamber effect. As an exercise, make a list of several communities you might join. Meet a variety of people and attend events within each one. And then get more involved in those, ideally more than one, that you think are most supportive for you at this time. By community, we mean something very broad. It could be anything from a casual group of friends who are interested in the same thing to larger movements like animal welfare with conferences and websites. So when thinking about the communities you'd like to join, don't only think about formal organisations. Rather, think about the types of people you'd most like to be around and then think how you might achieve that. This could even involve setting up your own small community by getting together a group of friends, starting a reading group or Slack and so on. Here are some categories to help you generate ideas. If you're interested in working on a specific global problem, such as biosecurity or factory farming, there is probably at least one community or several in that field. If you're focused on a particular way of doing good, such as research, writing, journalism or entrepreneurship, there are probably communities around that. There are relevant political and ideological communities dedicated to broad ways of doing good, such as social entrepreneurship, progress studies, animal welfare, socialism, libertarianism and social justice. Many of our readers also join communities that aren't directly about doing good, but are supportive for personal development. For example, nonviolent communication, rationality, and religious communities that promote important virtues. Finally, there's the effective altruism community, which we count ourselves as part of. How can the effective altruism community boost your career? Effective altruism is the project of finding better ways to have a positive impact. For example, by looking for issues that are big in scale, highly neglected, and tractable. It's both a research field that aims to identify the world's most pressing problems and the best solutions to them, and a practical community that aims to use those findings to do good. We helped to start the community back in 2011, along with several other groups. Applying effective altruism means aspiring to apply four key values. Doing more to prioritise more effective ways of helping others. Striving to treat others more equally. Trying harder to question our beliefs. And working cooperatively with high integrity. Anyone who shares these values and is trying to find better ways to help others is participating in the project of effective altruism and has good reason to get involved in the community. In fact, we know people who have been involved with Harvard Business School, 
the Fulbright Scholarship, the World Economic Forum, and other prestigious networks. But many of them say they find it more useful to meet people in the effective altruism community. Why? One reason is that this community has a lot of amazing people, such as many of the people we interview on our podcast. Another reason is that, as we've argued, you can increase your impact by working on issues and solutions that are more neglected. But if you're working on something neglected, then, by definition, you won't find many others who want to work on these issues in most conventional networks. Likewise, we'd argue it's important to focus much more on comparing different options in terms of impact than is standard. The effective altruism community is useful because you can find lots of people working on these neglected issues and applying these norms gathered in one place. Behind this is an even more fundamental reason, the power of shared aims. You can work with people who don't share your values because you can still trade with them. But if you share aims with someone else, then you don't even need to trade. In the effective altruism community, people share a common goal to help others more effectively. So if you help someone else to have a greater impact, then you increase your own impact too. You both succeed. This means you don't need to worry as much about getting favours back to break even. Just helping someone else is already impactful. This unleashes far more opportunities to work together than would be possible in a community where people don't share one another's aims as much. And because there are so many ways we can help each other, this makes it possible to achieve far more. Earning to give can actually be an example of that kind of collaboration. In the early days of 80,000 Hours, I, Benjamin, and my friend Matt had to choose between running the organisation and earning to give. We realised that Matt had higher earning potential and I would be better at running the organisation. In part, this is why I became the CEO, and Matt became our first major donor, as well as a seed funder for several other organisations. The alternative would have been for both of us to earn to give, in which case 80,000 hours wouldn't have existed. Or both of us could have worked at 80,000 hours, in which case it would have taken much longer to fundraise. Plus the other organisations Matt donated to wouldn't have gotten those donations. Within the community as a whole, some people are relatively better suited to earning money, and others to running non-profits. We can achieve more if the people best suited to earning money earn to give and fund everyone else. There are lots of other examples of how we can work together. For instance, some people can go and explore new areas and share the information with everyone else, allowing everyone to be more effective in the long term. Or people can specialise rather than needing to be generalists. For instance, Dr Greg Lewis did the research into how many lives a doctor saves that we saw earlier. After realising it was fewer than he thought, he decided not to focus on clinical medicine. Instead, he studied public health, with the aim of becoming an expert on the topic within the community, particularly on issues relevant to pandemics. He actually thinks risks from artificial intelligence might be more urgent overall, but as a doctor, he's relatively best placed to work on health-related issues. For all these reasons, if you share the aims of the effective altruism community, it can be a powerful community to join. But we'd be remiss if we didn't mention some of the downsides here too. Effective altruism is still an unusual idea, and that means it attracts some unusual people. Even if you agree with its values, you might find you don't gel with the people who have joined in practice. Some find being part of the effective altruism community stressful. Because of the focus on driving up positive impact, it can feel totalizing to people. Others don't like how tight-knit it is, or other aspects of the culture. Try out getting involved, ideally with more than one group, and then reduce your involvement if it's not supportive, while keeping a foot in some other communities to make this easier. Effective altruism has also faced its fair share of controversy, especially since the collapse of FTX which has many questioning the community's organisations, culture, and even underlying ethos. You can see some of the most common critiques of effective altruism over its history on its Wikipedia page and on the FAQ at effectivealtruism.org. All that said, if you liked this guide, then you'll probably share aims with lots of people in the community and get a lot out of it. We certainly have. If you want to try getting involved, check out the resources in Appendix 7. Other communities you may want to consider joining. 
there are many other great communities that can help you have more impact or be more successful. What matters is that you find people you can learn from and work with. We know less about these communities, but we've got a few ideas about where to start. First, we generally recommend getting involved in some communities especially focused on the global problems you're most interested in. For instance, if you want to work on reducing the existential risks posed by the development of AI, you could consider getting involved with the AI alignment community. If you're focused on factory farming, we'd recommend getting involved in the animal welfare community. If bio-risk, the biosecurity community. If global health, the international development community, especially those focused on more evidence-based approaches like the randomistas. If nuclear war or great power conflict, then part of the international relations community. Lots of academic fields have associated communities. If you're starting out a career in academia or are currently in college or grad school, talk to your professors to find out the best conferences to go to. These are usually worth getting involved in. Finally, there's been some overlap between effective altruism and the rationality community, and many of our readers have found benefits in both. The online hub of the rationality community is less wrong. Next up, let's wrap up our entire career guide. The end. A cheery final note, imagining your deathbed. We're about to summarise the whole guide in one minute. But before that, imagine a cheery thought. You're at the end of your 80,000-hour career. You're on your deathbed, looking back. What are some things you might regret? Perhaps you drifted into whatever seemed like the easiest option, or did what your parents did. Maybe you even made a lot of money doing something you were interested in, and had a nice house and car. But you still wonder, what was it all for? Now, imagine instead that you worked really hard throughout your life and ended up saving the lives of a hundred children. Can you really imagine regretting that? To have a truly fulfilling life, we need to turn outwards rather than inwards. Rather than asking, what's my passion? Ask, how can I best contribute to the world? As we've seen, by using our fortunate positions and acting strategically, there's a huge amount we can all do to help others. We can do this at little cost to ourselves, and most likely while having a more successful and satisfying career too. The entire guide in one minute. To have a good career, do what contributes. Rather than expect to discover your passion in a flash of insight, Your fulfilment will grow over time as you learn more about what fits, master valuable skills, and use them to help others. To do what contributes, build useful skills and apply them to meaningful problems. Here's the three key stages to focus on over time. 1. Explore and investigate your key uncertainties to find the best options, rather than going with your gut or narrowing down too early. Make this your key focus until you have enough confidence in some longer-term options to bet on one. 2. Build career capital to become as great as you can be. This means looking for jobs that let you generally improve your skills, reputation, connections, and character, and that most accelerate you towards your vision, as well as investing in your personal development. Do this until you've taken the best opportunities to invest in yourself. Then, use your career capital to... 3. Deploy. Use your career capital to effectively help others. Do this by focusing on the most urgent social problems, rather than those you stumble into. Those that are big in scale neglected, and solvable. To make the largest contribution to solving those problems, think broadly. Consider earning to give, research, communications, community building, organisation building, and government and policy careers, as well as the direct helping careers that first come to mind. And focus on the paths that have the best personal fit. Although many efforts to help others fail, the best can be enormously effective, so be ambitious. And don't forget you can have a big impact in any job. While doing the above, keep adapting your plan to find the best personal fit. Think like a scientist testing a hypothesis. Make your best guess, 
clarify your key uncertainties, then investigate those uncertainties. Have some ideas about the best longer-term vision, but then put a lot of attention to finding the best next step, both working backwards and forwards. Eliminate any jobs that do significant direct harm, even if it seems like they might let you have a greater impact. If you keep learning more and improving your skills with each step, you can build a better and better career over time. Seek community to be more successful. By working together, in our lifetimes, we can prevent the next pandemic and mitigate the risks of AI. We can end extreme global poverty and factory farming. And we can do this while having interesting, fulfilling lives too. So let's do it. You have 80,000 hours in your career. Don't waste them. What now? If you still need to make a career plan, try out our planning template at adk.link ncp. If you found this guide useful and know someone else in the midst of planning their career, we've created a simple tool to give them a free copy. 80,000hours.org gift. The rest of this book. As you may have noticed, you're not at the end quite yet. In the rest of the book, we include some additional articles that further explore our key ideas, summaries of our career reviews, summaries of our top problem area profiles. If you'd like more reading after that, we admire your stamina. Check out our advanced series at 80,000hours.org slash advanced hyphen series. You made it to the end. Congrats. Uh, you should uh, give yourself a pat on the back for that. The full audio version of the book also has nine appendices, which we've left out here because they would bring the length of the whole thing up to too long. It just uh, just would be, would be too much to stick in, in one MP3. Those appendices are uh, in order. The meaning of making a difference, evidence-based advice on how to be more successful in any job. Uh, I really like that one. Four biases to avoid in career decisions. How to make tough career decisions. Is it ever okay to take a harmful job in order to do more good? College advice, additional resources, career review summaries, and finally, problem profile summaries. If you want to hear one of those appendices, or maybe multiple of them, you can find the full audiobook, uh, all of it, either on Audible or as a podcast by searching for 80,000 Hours Career Guide wherever you get podcasts. And of course, uh, well, everything that you've heard so far and uh, all of those appendices are also available as written articles uh, on our website or as a physical book that you can buy on Amazon. All right, we'll be back before too long with another more regular episode. And until then, uh, stay happy and healthy.